What else is going to happen in 2020? Santa Claus has the AIDS, and he was unable to be there yesterday, in case you wonder why your Christmas was not very good and the presents under your tree were not very numerous. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live at 11.07 p.m. Pacific Time, Saturday night, December 26th, 2020. The final Poker Fraud Alert Radio of the year. Who would have known the year would have been like this? when we began in January, and no one had any idea what was coming. Hopefully 2021 will be better. Obviously nothing's going to magically improve next week. I kind of hate when people say, oh, it's, it's great the year's over. Oh, wow, 2021, come on. It's not going to be any different. It's gonna be, all the problems you have today are going to be here next week. But hopefully after the vaccine gets going to the wide population, then the COVID matter will greatly improve it will be very interesting to see what happens and i am hoping for the best as i'm sure all of you are why is the show on this late and why is the show a day late well this is the holiday season i was going to do it last night but uh, i ended up with family and uh, i was with benjamin yesterday and we were trying to get uh, things going on his new computer so I just said, you know what? I'm going to delay it a day. I'm going to delay it a day. We'll do it on the 26th. And then uh, today I was trying to get my new computer, which I got, uh, it's not that new. I got it in the fall, but I was not able to do radio on it because the sound card has no stereo mix feature. So every week I bring out the five-year-old computer with a very flickery screen, which gives me a seizure. And... I do that for radio, and then I turn it off and go back to my new computer. So I got a sound card that was external that I could just put into the USB port and should work. But turns out it doesn't. Turns out Sound Blaster makes cards also without stereo mix, which I didn't know until uh, I tried it tonight. So I'll have to get a different Sound Blaster card. Now I have a list of them that supposedly have stereo mix, so I'll give that a shot. And hopefully I won't have to use this uh, five-year-old computer anymore. Which actually still works well, it's just the screen does not work well. And it's very hard to look at during radio, but I put up with it because it's the only computer that I can broadcast from right now. Hopefully that will change by next week. So uh, I canceled the free roll and there was a lot of anger about it. I figured at 11 p.m., you know, who's going to play the free roll? It's 2 a.m. Eastern Time. I know it's Saturday night, but still. Like, I just figured, like, I don't want another 12-person free roll. So I said, I'm not going to waste our 50-plus dollars donated by the community on a free roll with like 10, 12 people. But there was such anger about it, I decided to meet them halfway. So after I canceled a lot of anger and uh, objection. So we're doing our lowest ever free roll of $30. I don't even feel bad about it because it was going to be zero, but it's $30 coming from three sources. Winona86 gave $10. Thank you to him. Tridaruski gave $10, and Larry Legend gave $10 involuntarily because it was forfeited from a March 2020 win that he never collected. So $30 total, 20 for first, 10 for second. Nothing for third. First time we've never paid third place, but that's the way it goes. 
I'm not going to split a $30 prize three ways. That's insane. So 20 for first, 10 for second, that's it, which is fine because it's going to be a small field. So, of course, there's a few spots paid. In fact, I'll probably be paying more than 10% of the field, so it'll be fine. So that's the free roll. It started at 11 o'clock Pacific time, so you still have 14 more minutes to get in with a full stack on the No Fraud online poker room. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to learn about the qualifications to win the free money. I can pay you in various ways, by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, and then there's some other methods. I can pay you with some other methods, including one that I couldn't pay you with for a while. Now I can again, so... That is back open, so I can pay you uh, a number of ways. I try to make it as easy as possible for you to get your money. I want you to get your money. So if you roll it over and donate it, then that's always appreciated, but not expected. You're always welcome to collect every penny you win on this site. We do this every week here on PokerFraudAlert.com. The money comes from the users, almost always, and the only income we even have for this site is at the very bottom we have an Amazon banner where I get like 3 to 6% of the purchases that are made after clicking the banner. But aside from that, I don't have any other income here. So if you wonder what that banner is about, that's what it's there for. But uh, I don't have any regular sponsors, and this does cost money to run. And, of course, it takes time to run. I have many ways I could be monetizing this, and I'm choosing not to. So just keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. And I thank everybody who donates... Every week to this free roll, it's very generous of them. Nobody is expected to give me a penny. I don't expect others to support me or my site or to donate to the free roll. So anything that is done is very much appreciated. I never feel entitled to any of that money. And I always get mad when I see people who feel entitled to others' money. If you want to call the show, phone number 775-FRAUD-55-775-372-8355. You can call anytime to that number during the show, but I probably won't answer unless it's between segments or unless I'm saying I'm going to take the call. So your best luck in reaching me will occur when you call during one of those uh, periods in the show. If I'm in the middle of a rant, there's no way I'm going to answer. And do not hammer me over and over. I will block your number. If you do that and you don't want that, then you won't be able to call me again. So just, just be polite if you're listening live. Most of you are, a few of you aren't. The alternate number to the show is the Mount Charleston line. I flew to Mount Charleston today. I did. I flew to Mount Charleston. I crashed into Mount Charleston twice. And somehow I'm still here to tell the tale. It's because I did it on a flight simulator. But we have an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. A cabin I crashed into today. The phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. The Mount Charleston line. You can text the show anytime, before, after, or during the show. If you text during the show, there's a good chance I will read it on the air, unless you ask me not to at the very beginning. Same as our main number, 775-372-8355. You know what else is coming here? The call to listen line. I mention it every week. It's a number you can call and listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require a computer or the internet or even a strong cell phone signal. You just need any phone that can dial, that can complete a call. It never buffers, never freezes. It just works. Trust me. The phone number 
is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. They both work the same way. You can call either one. They both will get to the show. You can listen live on there. You can listen to the streaming reruns on there. Remember, when we're not live, the show runs anyway. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I do turn it off like a few hours before live radio starts. Other than that, there's always something on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. So when we're not live, it is playing a random rerun. And you can catch that on the call to listen line. You can catch that on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com. You can use the TuneIn app. Whatever way you use to listen live, you can listen to the streaming reruns. And we do get people. I, I can see how many are listening. And usually, 24 hours a day, there is at least one listener. And often more than that. Like often a lot more than that. To where I'm surprised sometimes how many people listen to old stuff rerunning. I understand why we have a number of live listeners, but it's very surprising to see how there's always someone listening all day and all night. It's very rare that there's like absolutely nobody listening to the streaming reruns. Of course, uh, if you want to listen in the archives, there's many ways. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Podcasts. We are on uh, Stitcher. We are on the TuneIn app, both for live and in the archives. We are on Spotify and iHeartMedia. We're on an app called Bullhorn. I'm also in the process of trying to get ourselves added to uh, two more platforms. So that might be an announcement soon. So a lot of different ways to listen to the show after it's already been on. You can also download or play the MP3 file of the show which you can find in the Poker Fraud Alert Radio Archives forum. And you can play an MP3 with any device just by clicking on it. You don't need any kind of external player. You just click on it, it plays, or you can download it if you want to download it and save it. A lot of ways to listen. Let me know if there's any other format which you want me to provide. And if it's not too expensive and not too difficult, I will do so. Trader Ruski is not here tonight. He's presumably sleeping. He didn't respond to my texts. Uh, you know how he's been doing it recently. He's been waking up in the middle of the night and calling in. So don't be surprised if he shows up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. And, of course, we're going to be going late because we started near 11 p.m. So this is going to be an all-night show here on Saturday night on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, beginning December 26th, ending December 27th. And i got a lot of topics as usual kind of just all came together. At first I'm thinking, what are we going to talk about this week? We don't have much to talk about. There's not much that happened. And then I, I looked into it and I'm like, oh, no, we, we do have topics. There's a lot to talk about. I always find stuff to talk about. Very rare that I just can hardly find anything to say after a week has passed. All right. So the free roll, seven more minutes to get in there. After that, it is too late. I don't know how many people made it there, but... Hopefully we got some kind of participation. I, I'll be embarrassed if we get like five people, but I think we'll do better than that. A lot of people were disappointed that we took it down. Hopefully they didn't just run off and shut off their computer and not notice that I ended up putting it back up. Oh, we have a chat room. Can't forget that. We have a chat room where you can chat. It does not require Flash. It works on any device now. You just need a Poker Frawler account in good standing. The chat room. Only bother it if it's live. Otherwise, you can go in and scroll back a little bit and see what people are saying. But it's really only worth it to be there if you're listening to the live show. I'll try to read occasionally. 
For example, right now, Blissey6969, who's from Australia, said, good time for Australia. Yeah, it actually is, because Australia right now is five hours earlier than Los Angeles and Las Vegas. So right now in, Las, in the, most of Australia, it is uh, about 6.15, 6.20 p.m. And that's a good time for them. Now, it's the next day. It's Sunday, but it's it's still the early evening there. Uh, for the UK, it is not the best time right now, but it will be soon. Right now, it's uh, like 7 a.m. there, but it'll get better. You know, as the show goes on, it'll be morning. They'll wake up. The Poker Fraud Alert radio will be on. Not good for the East Coast of the U.S., though. Not good for them and not all that good for the West Coast right now either. It's really, for the whole U.S., this isn't the best time. So I see uh, Desert Runners here. He's created some waves in the forum recently. I see uh, Snow Tracks and Shoeshine Box. I am Greek. Bobby Orr. DMD. DKUTR. So we got some people in the chat room. And I'm at 22 people in the free roll. If I knew there would be 22 people, I would have had a bigger free roll than $30. All right. Well, have fun flying for the 30, guys. It's still almost 10% of the field paid, though, so I can't feel too bad. All right, so I want to tell you about a few things going on with me. Uh, first of all, I've been playing Flight Simulator 2020 since yesterday. I will confess that when I should have been doing radio yesterday, I, I was playing Flight Simulator 2020 with Benjamin. <laughs> that, that was the important reason I missed radio. But it kind of was an important reason. You know, ben, ben was excited about it. And Flight Simulator 2020 is something that I was waiting to have come out for a long time. And when I say a long time, I mean a really, really long time dating back to the 1980s. So I played one of the earlier versions of Flight Simulator back in like 85. I don't know if it was the original. It may have been like the second version. Wh- whatever. I played one of the early versions. And... It was it was cool. It was fun. I was only uh, like 13 years old at the time, but it was interesting to fly various planes, and uh, it was somewhat realistic in the way you control them. So it wasn't like a video game so much. It was trying to simulate the real experience of flying planes, and I got to appreciate how difficult it is to fly planes. My dad actually learned how to fly small planes in the 60s, and I had been a passenger of his in various small planes that he would rent to fly around the area. And uh, he even once picked me up from college in a plane and uh, flew me back to his house. So I've, I've been in Cessnas before, but never as a pilot. I never learned how to do it myself. So it was, it was fun to play for a short time, but here was the problem. Here was the problem with Flight Simulator in the 80s. The scenery sucked. It would come on one disc. There was almost no scenery. There were a few, like, stick-like versions of landmarks, like the Statue of Liberty and the Golden Gate Bridge, but it really looked like someone just traced a very rough outline of them and made them the right color. So the the Statue of Liberty was like a bunch of uh, bluish lines, and the the Golden Gate Bridge was a bunch of uh, reddish lines, and that, that was pretty much it. it. It roughly looked like them, but you weren't like, oh, wow, I'm really flying over the Golden Gate. Like You're like, oh, cool, the Golden Gate Bridge, but that was about it. Like It, it wasn't that exciting, and there was basically zero landscapes on the ground. It was pretty much just white with a bunch of dots. So as you can imagine, it got boring pretty quickly because you weren't flying over anything real. So I gave up on it pretty quickly. I thought to myself as I gave up on it, that one day, 
one day, many years into the future, and I thought probably decades into the future, that I will be able to play a flight simulator game on my computer where I can fly anywhere in the world over actual realistic scenery. Like the actual scenery which exists. Actual buildings which exist. Not just major landmarks, but just I'm going to be able to fly over everything. But my question at the time that I couldn't resolve in my mind was how they would be able to do it from a technical standpoint. Now, I knew that storage would definitely increase tremendously between the mid-80s and several decades from the mid-80s. I knew that uh, they wouldn't need to shoehorn all the data into, uh, what, uh, one megabyte. I knew that that was impossible. But I thought, okay, the amount of data that would be required to have a realistic depiction of landscapes all over the world would be such an insane amount of data that, number one, I couldn't even picture how much that would be, and number two, I could not imagine that this would be possible to store, even in decades. And I was right. There, like, It would not be easy to distribute such a thing. It would be just about impossible to do from a consumer level to distribute all of that scenery even to people today. So I was right about that. But that, that concern was well-founded. But I thought, oh, maybe they'll find a way to do it. Well, they did. And it took 35 years from when I was first thinking of it. Because Flight Simulator 2020 solves that problem by sending the data to you over the internet. So your computer does not have to store all that data. Your computer stores an initial amount of data it downloads for wherever you want to fly, and then from there it loads as you're flying. And then the detail you see is based upon a number of factors, including uh, your computer speed, your graphics card, your internet connection, a bunch of stuff comes together to see how good of an experience you're going to get as far as how detailed the scenery is and how smoothly the whole thing flies. But the data is not a problem because it's all drawing from the same source where there's a massive amount of storage. I'm not even sure how much it all takes, but uh, it's something that could never be distributed to the consumer, nor would it ever fit on a modern device. So that's how they did it. And of course, I didn't think about the internet being used for that because the internet existed in the mid-80s, but not in this form, and nobody was thinking of the internet being used that way in the mid-80s. So they finally did it. Finally, the flight simulator I was dreaming of was going to be released in 2020. And when I saw that was announced, I'm like, ah, that's it. That's what I've been waiting for. So I was looking forward to it, and then the year passed, and it wasn't coming out. <laughs> so finally, in August, it came out. But I realized the second problem. I don't know why I didn't think of it until it came out. But I'm like, oh, crap. I don't have the right computer for it. Because this is a very, very graphic-intensive program. Because what your computer is doing is after it downloads that landscape data, it has to quickly display it as you fly over it and as it's ahead of you and behind you and all that. So there is so much computation involved that this is very, very hard on a computer and without a proper graphics card to do it quickly and efficiently, then there is no way to do it. So my laptop has an ordinary graphics card for just basic consumer use. That's not going to cut it. It it might be able to technically run, but it it wouldn't look good and it'd be jumpy and it'd be crappy. So I realized in August that there was no point to get it because it was not going to work well or at all. So then uh, four months passed and I decided as a gift for Benjamin 
that since he's into gaming anyway, that I'm going to get him a gift that I can use too. And that is a gaming machine. So I bought a gaming machine, spent a lot of money on it. In fact, it's the most money I've ever spent on a computer ever, even inflation adjusted. It's the most money I've ever spent. But uh, I did get a good deal on it. And I got uh, a very good uh, NVIDIA 3070 GeForce uh, graphics card, which is near the top of the line right now. And I was very happy with how it has been running because uh, I can put it on what's known as ultra mode as far as the detail for the landscapes. And it runs smoothly. It runs very well. It looks very good and it's smooth and I get a good frames per second rate. So it works great. So it was a good decision to break out the Jew wallet and actually spend a lot of money on this particular machine. So anyway, I was uh, learning that, and Benjamin was very interested in it too, and he's also interested in getting Roblox VR working, which you also need a gaming machine for. So we were getting that going as well. So anyway, all that going on is how we were spending uh, yesterday. And I I didn't want to interrupt it, and I I saw this coming like hours before. So I said, okay, we're going to do it tomorrow. That's, uh, That's why I delayed the show. But here's my experience with Flight Simulator so far. And keep in mind, I'm a novice. I had not really used any flight simulators in over 30 years. And uh, I'm not a pilot, so I have to learn a lot of these things or relearn what I once knew. And I uh, was trying to do what most people would want to do. I wanted to fly over my house. I wanted to crash into my house. I wanted to fly around the surrounding area. I wanted to fly to certain places of immediate interest to fly over, especially knowing the landscape is good. So I flew around the area where I live. I flew from where I live to where my parents live and flew over my the house where I grew up. I also flew to Las Vegas. I flew to Mount Charleston, of course. That was the last thing I did before tonight's show. In fact, that's part of the reason I was late. I was messing around with Mount Charleston, but also because I was uh, trying to get the sound card working. So it was two things. It was uh, I spent too long flying around Mount Charleston and crashing into it, and then I was like, oh, crap, I've, I never tried to get the sound card working. So then I had to work on that. So it's kind of a combination of two things. Then I also flew uh, to Mammoth and flew over Mammoth Mountain, eventually crashed into Mammoth Mountain. So... Uh, Let me tell you my experience so far with it. First of all, I think the tutorial needs some work. The concept of the tutorial was pretty cool. Where you're in the plane, there's an unseen but pleasant-sounding flight instructor, a female flight instructor with a nice voice, who's uh, telling you, you know, giving you lessons, telling you how to do things. And on the surface, that seems like it'd be cool. You, You can't see her. You can look around the whole cockpit. There's nobody else but you there, but somehow she's supposed to be in there with you. But anyway, the concept is cool. It just doesn't direct you very well. Like the the tutorial just isn't written very well as far as really teaching you how to fly. And Benjamin found the same thing when he tried to do it. But I didn't learn that much from the tutorial. I found it frustrating. I found that uh, it was sometimes too restrictive, sometimes not restrictive enough, sometimes uh, not giving enough detail of what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. And uh, I also found myself just kind of spinning around in circles and not really making any progress where I was flying. 
it, it gives you a tutorial over uh, Sedona, Arizona, which is an interesting place. But anyway, it didn't really teach me that much other than the very, very basics of flying. So I, I'm not saying it was useless. I'm glad I did it, but I quickly abandoned it after I learned the very basics. And I said, like, you know what? I'm just going to fly on my own. I'm going to pick an airport near here and try to fly on my own. Uh, there's still some things I'm trying to figure out with it, like uh, taking off is difficult. I can do it sometimes, but a lot of times I uh, I just can't get to where I can get enough altitude before I start having the choice of either uh, losing airspeed and crashing for that reason or uh, losing altitude because I'm not pointed up. So if I'm pointing up, then I'm going slower and slower, and eventually I lose airspeed, and if I don't point up, then I don't go high enough. So I've had some trouble taking off. I've been able to do it successfully sometimes and sometimes not. Uh, you can start mid-flight. So if the taking off frustrates you, you just want to kind of fly around, you can pick any place on the map to just start off in the air. Uh, landing, I have not tried very much yet. I tried it once and I crashed. I actually came fairly close to landing successfully, but I know that's the hardest thing about flying in general, in real flying. So... I wasn't expecting to learn that instantly, especially since this uh, attempts to be a realistic simulation. Though you can set this to easier modes, which are, I have it on the easiest mode right now. But I'm, I'm still learning a lot of things. I've only been using it for a day, so I don't expect to be a master yet. Uh, the scenery, while it does have some errors and some weird things, uh, it's very cool. It's very impressive. It's really nice to fly over things that... Uh, like, like, for example, I flew from Vegas to Mount Charleston, and I know the drive. I've done the drive a lot of times, but uh, I've seen the scenery along the side, and now I actually got to fly over it. I, I got to see what it looks like, where otherwise I wouldn't have that chance. And even flying, like, in the Mount Charleston area, like, I can fly to areas that I could not get to normally. And uh, I was able to, even in my own area, fly over the hills and the mountains and take a look at stuff I had not seen yet. So it's it's realistic enough to where you can go places that you've always wondered what they look like and fly over them and see a pretty realistic, not 100% realistic, but a fairly realistic representation of them that is fairly detailed, especially if you have a good machine with a good graphics card that is aimed at gaming. So you do need like a gaming machine to get the most out of flight simulator, and that's expensive. So that's – and of course the the – really good graphic cards that are going to really provide the good experience, like what I have here, is, is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be over $2,000. So some people either don't have that money to spend or don't want to waste it on a gaming machine. I understand that, especially if you don't have much interest in gaming aside from this. It may be hard to bring yourself to spend $2,000 on something you're going to mainly use for Flight Simulator. But uh, I, I'm enjoying it, and I'm still learning some things. I did find some weird bugs. Like, here's the weirdest bug that I just can't figure out why it says this when you're taking off and i'm just using the default controls on the keyboard when you're taking off it gives you the advice that you're supposed to press eight to lift off well eight puts your nose down so i don't know what they're talking about that's not going to lift you off it's gonna that's gonna slam you into the ground and i even tried it i'm like could they possibly be right no you try pressing eight and it slams you into the ground so it keeps telling. I did not change the default keyboard settings. I don't understand why it's telling me to press eight when I'm when taking off. What I really mean is press two. 
to take off. So that's a weird thing where it advises you that. Also, I, I noticed like sometimes it's hard to take off the parking brake, that the buttons you press to do that, it just doesn't respond. There's some weird things like that. It's some weird bugs that I'm surprised still exist four months into it. Hopefully these will be taken care of with uh, future releases. I would have thought this would have been worked out by now. That's a good thing of having waited four months. But uh, also I've had some trouble like once I kind of start losing control of the plane, like once it starts to pitch back and forth, it can be tough to get out of it. I've improved with it, but it like it's kind of sucks when you've flown somewhere for a while and you've made a lot of progress and then that starts happening. You're like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm going to crash. Ah, then you crash and you have to start over. Now you, you can place yourself back fairly close to where you were if you know where you were. I don't know how to start it to where you start in the air from where you crashed, but uh, maybe there's a way. Uh, something I do find that I wish it had that I don't think it does, and if you know how to do this, please let me know. I want to see roads labeled. Not every single road, but I'd love to see like major highways labeled so I can kind of get a bearing for where I am sometimes, where I kind of have a feeling I know where I am, but I don't quite know, especially because the scenery isn't 100% perfect, and sometimes you'll see things even in an area where you're familiar, and it just doesn't look right, partially because maybe you haven't seen it from the air before and it just looks different, and partially because sometimes there's some weird things in the scenery that just don't quite make sense, or missing buildings, or whatever. Apparently they didn't get this information from Google Maps, and some people are saying they should have, because it would have been better. I think the scenery is very good. I'm not really complaining about the scenery or, or the maps. I'm just saying there are, there are some errors and there are some things that look a little bit weird. Uh, something else is weird. If you crash, that uh, the buildings then in most places look like junk. Like it looks like you're in Detroit in the areas that have become dilapidated and where everything has decayed, you know, where people don't live anymore. That's what a lot of these buildings look like. Even my own house when I crashed into it, that's what my house looked like. That's the whole neighborhood looks like. It's kind of like, looks dilapidated, kind of broken down, kind of discolored. It, it doesn't look anywhere like where you thought you were. Yet when you're in the air, even low in the air, it looks good. So it doesn't render at the street level, which is possible. They easily could do it because there's like Google Street Maps. So had they teamed up with Google, they could have done this. But here's the weird thing. when I And the same thing in Vegas. When I crashed like at a hotel in Vegas, same thing. The hotel just looked like trash, like on the ground. But here's the weird thing. Catalina Island, which is in Southern California, it's uh, 26 miles west of uh, Southern Los Angeles. If you crash in Catalina Island, everything looks perfect. <laughs> that's, for, that's, for some reason, that's like the one place I crashed where all the houses are really, really well drawn and defined. And I, I don't understand why that is. There must be something special they did over there. That, that was another place I visited that I forgot to mention. So anyway, it's cool. If, if you have a gaming machine, I would recommend getting it. It's 60 bucks to get. Or you could get the Microsoft uh, Game Pass for PC, which is uh, like a dollar for the first month and then $10 a month where you can access like 100 games for as long as you have the Game Pass. So I got that, especially because I found there's ways to get it cheaper than $10 a month, which I may be sorry when, like if I don't have a need for it eventually and then I have to buy Flight Sim anyway. But I figured, okay, for the first month it's a dollar, so I'm risking very little and then I can see what I want to do. But that's how I got it. It was the biggest download I ever did in my life for a game or anything. I downloaded 128 gigabytes to start. So it was a long time between when I bought the game and got to play the game. Like 
many hours it took because it's 128 gigabytes. That's huge. Not megabytes, gigabytes. <laughs> I could not believe that download. I'm not exactly sure what it was downloading, but that's because it's, it's downloading the terrain as you, as you fly and also before you fly. So I don't understand that original download, but that's what it did. At least it was a one-time thing. That's pretty crazy. I've never downloaded anything of that size ever. So I enjoyed it. I recommend it though. It got some idiosyncrasies and bugs, but it's, it's cool. It's pretty much what I was expecting and hoping for all these years. So I'm going to be playing that some more in the coming weeks for sure. And probably a lot more than that. And I haven't tried to fly jets yet. I've only been flying a Cessna. I'll soon graduate to jets and try that too. Of course, I had to crash into things that I knew, like my own house. Like one of the first things I wanted to do was go fly to my house and then crash into it. That was, that was a goal of mine. And I did. In fact, the first time I crashed into my house, I wasn't even trying to crash into my house, but I happened to crash into somewhere in the neighborhood. I go, oh, look, it was my house. I actually crashed my house. Okay. That was good luck. Okay. So speaking of games, I'm going to tell you another little story here that has nothing to do with poker or gambling, but has to do with fraud. It does have to do with fraud. And it has to do with my son, Benjamin, who was a victim of fraud. We'll take a call later on. I don't feel like taking a call right now. I'm going to tell you a story about my son, Benjamin, who was a victim of fraud on the game Roblox. Now, you might wonder, what is Roblox? If you don't have a kid, you may never heard of Roblox before, because Roblox is a kid's game. And we don't have many kids who listen to this show. We may have a few that listen along with their parents. In fact, it's not really a show aimed at kids. But, in fact, it's really not a show appropriate for kids. But Roblox is a game that it seems like you have heard of if you have kids and you have not heard of if you don't. Like, seriously, that's what I've noticed. I kind of thought, like, everyone would have heard of it by now because it's huge. But that I mentioned Roblox to people, even ones I would think would know about it. And they go, what? What's Roblox? They go, you haven't heard of Roblox? No. And then I tell them and they say, okay. So I guess I probably would not have heard of it either if I did not have a kid. But it's become probably the biggest game for young kids. I'd say ranging from about age 7 all the way through teen. So my son, who's 10, is right in the range of... He's right there in the center of who would be playing Roblox. There are some kids younger than 7 who play. There are some people in their 20s who play. But it's mainly kids and teenagers who play it. And the reason it's not that good for kids like younger than seven is there's like a lot of reading you have to do. When I say a lot, I mean, if you can't read, it's hard to play because that's just there's a lot of things in the games you have to read. And when I say games, I didn't say that erroneously. Roblox is not a game itself. Roblox is a platform of a ton of games, probably more than 100,000 games that have been written for it by third parties. So Roblox is the, the, as I said, the platform where you create a character and you can dress up your character and get accessories for the character. And then your character goes into various games and plays these games within Roblox. And the Roblox games are written in a language, it's a scripting language called Lua, and anyone can write Roblox games. In fact, I helped Ben write a Roblox game because I know programming and he did not. So I had to help him with it. But uh, there's 
tons of games on Roblox. Some very, very big that are like multi-million dollar operations with like 30 employees all working on the game and that makes tens of millions of dollars per year. Those are the biggest games. One's called like Adopt Me is one of the big ones. Bloxburg is one of the big ones. And then there are small games like the one I help Benjamin with that just individuals write and you hope to get popular and hope people will find it and enjoy it. So that's what Roblox is, and uh, the kids really love it. If you know anyone with kids, ask them about Roblox. They've probably heard of it. It's actually played by both boys and girls. I think it's a little more popular with boys, but girls enjoy it too. So it's not just a game that's aimed at one gender either. There are all kinds of games on there of every kind you could imagine. Roblox has an in-game currency called Robux. R-O-B-U-X. Robux is what you use within Roblox to buy things. So you can buy accessories for your character. You could buy clothes for your character. You can spend it on individual games where you spend a certain amount of Robux and it will get you some kind of uh, advantage in the game. Kind of like uh, games you'll play on your, your phone. You know, you can download and play the game for free, but then if you, you spend extra money on – not extra money. If you spend any money on the game, it's to get power-ups or other things you can do in the game to make your experience better or to give yourself an advantage or whatever. I'm sure you've seen that. They're called in-app purchases. Here on, Roblo- on Roblox, it's not really in-app purchases. It's you buy these Robux first, and then you spend the Robux within the program within the uh, the platform of Roblox, and of course they're good in any of the games. There's no way to buy things directly for money. You spend Robux everywhere, and then the game developers who receive the Robux, they can actually trade the Robux back in for real money at a reduced rate, but they, that's how they make money. That's how the big games really make a lot of money is they they have tons of stuff you can buy for Robux, and if the games get really popular with thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of players, then you can imagine how the Robux roll in and then they can trade those back in for real cash. And that's how some of the top games there make over $10 million a year. So that's a little primer on Roblox. And the reason I'm telling you guys this is that uh, Benjamin, who loves Roblox and plays it all the time, uh, he was the victim of a hacking on there. Now, Benjamin is actually pretty good about not getting scammed or hacked. Maybe because he takes after me. But he's very good for a 10-year-old at seeing through scams, phishing attempts, whatever. Like, things will be tried on him that adults fall for. And he says, ah, no, that's a scam. I'm not doing that. And he'll show me. You go, Daddy, look at this scam. And he'll show me. And I'll go, oh, wow, cool. Like, I'm impressed that he's able to figure this out at at the age of 10 when, of course, uh, 10-year-olds are not typically that sophisticated. Even if they are technically competent – they, you would think, would be gullible and be able to be fooled easily, and a lot of them are, but Ben's not one of those kids. He's actually good at being able to tell when uh, there's scam attempts, and there's tons of scams on Roblox, especially because you can trade in the Robux for real money. So as you can imagine, the scammers, especially ones from other countries, target that game big time. So he did not get fished, and he did not seem to get hacked in a traditional sense, like them guessing his password or anything like that. But Nevertheless, he told me one day in uh, early December that 500 Robux, which is worth about $5, Robux worth about a penny, 
about 500 Robux disappeared from his account. And he was sure that he didn't accidentally purchase something. He was sure that uh, he looked in his history and saw that an item was bought with 500 Robux, that there's no way he would have bought it, nor would he have been in the place to have bought it. Like he, It was a place that there's nowhere he would have gone ever to have bought it in the first place. It was like it was an object that was bought from another account that was obscure that he wouldn't have been browsing in the first place. So I believed him. I'm like, this is really weird. So uh, he, he changed his password. And uh, I did notice something weird, though, that his password had not been changed. He still had access to his account. So you'd think if someone hacked it, they just changed the password completely. Also, the person didn't steal all the Robux in his account. He had... Uh, uh, 4,800 Robux in there, and they only bought this item for 500. So it looked like that someone got into his account and bought a junk item that they were selling under like a duplicate account, and then probably sent the Robux in some way to whoever was in charge of the scam, and that was the point of it. But I wasn't understanding why they didn't drain his account completely, and I wasn't understanding why they didn't take over the whole account. So I thought at the time it was probably like an inside job, that maybe someone who works within Roblox found a way into the system, or maybe hackers found their way into the back end and were able to just like force a purchase that he didn't really make. That was my theory at the time that I wasn't sure. Anyway, we changed his password to be safe, and I also emailed Roblox, and I said, uh, hey, this is, a, this is an unauthorized purchase. I don't know how this happened. And I told them that I would like my 500 Robux back. Now, we've never made a request like this before. He's been playing for two and a half years. We spent a lot of money on the game. Not obscene money. You should see what some kids spend through their parents. But I'm responsible about it. I don't give him too much. He basically gets uh, 500 Robux per month automatically, which costs me $5 per month. And then he gets, uh, on, on special occasions, I'll give him more. And that's it. The the uh, Robux that were in his account, the 4,800, were actually my Robux. I put in there to, uh, to I, I told him I'll help promote his game. So I actually put that in there to spend promoting his game within the system. So it was actually <laughs> my Robux that were sitting there. It wasn't even his. But, but either way, um, 500 of it got stolen. And... Uh, so I, I requested them back, and I got a message back from Roblox support saying, "Okay, uh, yeah." They sent me this like long form letter saying all, a bunch of stuff about how to keep your account secure, blah blah blah. Most of it was obvious stuff I already knew, and it was this just long, long, long convoluted thing, which I didn't read every word of it because, you know, who's going to? Who's going to read, like, a long-form letter? It wasn't like they wrote something specific about our account. They sent this, like, thing that take it's, like, several pages long. So I responded saying, yeah, okay, we, we've secured the account, so please restore the 500 Robux. So they said, okay, well, send us a screenshot of the transaction, and we'll do it. So I did. I screenshotted the transaction. I sent it to them. I get back an email from them saying, okay, Here's your one-time credit of 500 Robux. And I thought, what do, you, what do they mean one time? So I, I already was like, I, I wasn't feeling that comfortable about that when they're saying one time. So, okay, next time we get hacked, it's tough luck. Because this, this isn't just in-game currency. This is stuff we spend real money on every month. So when Robux gets stolen there, they can't just say, okay, well, this is the one time you get them. Think if you're playing poker and someone hacks your account. Uh, and, and they transfer 
your money over to uh, their friend. Now, if the friend has already dumped it, then that's that's a different story. But uh, this isn't even real money. But think of the poker site. If they could recover your money, if they say, nope, you've been hacked once, so the, the, the hacker gets to keep your money this time. You'd say, what the hell? If the money's still on the system and hasn't been dumped, then send it back to me. Well, it seemed like Roblox was saying, we're not going to do that. Even if we can recover the Robux that got stolen, uh, we're not doing it a second time. So I started to understand what was happening. Um, of course, this game is mainly played by kids. And kids are not the best at keeping their accounts secure, as you might guess. And kids fall for scams and phishing attempts and things like that all the time. So they best get constant emails from both kids themselves and the parents saying, hey, can you restore the Robux? There's also probably situations where kids have regrets about making rash purchases with the Robux that their parents give them. And then the parents say, hey, what happened to the $50 for the Robux I got you yesterday, yesterday for Christmas? Oh, I've already wasted it all. So then the parents get pissed off and want, and want a refund. So what Roblox did, which I didn't know at the time, what Roblox did was they came up with a one-time refund and, and account rollback for any reason lifetime policy, which is stupid. So they don't want to put the effort or the time into evaluating whether you deserve a refund or not or whether they can recover the Robux or not. They've just made a blanket policy that each account, whether intentional or unintentional, that if there's something you don't like that happened to your account, whether others did it or you did it to yourself or whatever it was, that one time through the lifetime of the account, you can get it rolled back to what it was 24 hours beforehand. And after that, you'll never get it again. So we used our one time, basically. We actually used our one time, which they didn't make clear to me. I said, hey, can you give me the 500 back? We got hacked. Okay, here's a six-page form letter. And I say, okay, yeah, great. Uh, so can you do it? Yeah, sure. Okay, it's done. Oh, by the way, you've just used up your one time. I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't know this. So yes, had I gone through all, like every word in the six pages and found like buried on page four, it's telling me about the one time, but that's not good business practice. They... When, when you're spending so much money on a game over time, and I'm not unusual in this. You know, anyone who has kids that play this, uh, the, the parents end up spending money over time on something like this. And you're giving your customers a big fat middle finger. If you're only going to give them one time, it has to be really clear. You don't bury this in the middle of page four of a form letter. You Before you do the restore, you say, okay, just want you to know you get one of these lifetime – are you sure you want to do this over a matter of 500 Robux, which is worth $5? Are you sure you want to waste it on this? I didn't get anything like that. I just got like a six-page thing. I say, yeah, restored. Okay, we're restored. You've used it through one time. <laughs> so so I thought that was crappy. I, I Was it illegal? Probably not. Was it unethical? Definitely. So I already wasn't happy about that. And then guess what happened? A week later, Ben comes to me and says that his Robux have all been drained. Someone got in again. So his account was down to... 0.0. So all 4,800 were gone. The 500 they gave back to us, and everything else that was there, 4,800 Robux was gone. The account was down to zero. Someone drained it in the same way even though we had changed the password. At this point, I realized it probably wasn't an inside job, or otherwise this would have been widespread and Ben had 
not heard of anything happening on Roblox, on Roblox that was uh, widespread. And I didn't think we would be targeted just individually. So I had a feeling that there was something else to this. So sure enough, I figured out that it was likely done through a Google Chrome extension for Roblox that was made by a third party that had been installed. And I hadn't even thought of that because I didn't know he had put those on there. So it turned out it was, it was probably done through a Google Chrome extension, which steals the cookies of the browser to basically log in as him without even knowing the password. And then they are able to uh, make these purchases through you know, buying just junk that they're selling on alternate accounts and drain the Robux that way. So once we knew what happened, I quickly uninstalled all the Chrome extensions, and I'm fairly certain this won't happen again. I'm not 100% sure, but this is what it looks like was the culprit. So I thought, oh, no, I used up my one time for $5. So now I'm going to be asking them for the $48 worth of Robux back, and I'm sure they're going to tell me to eat shit, especially because their support is known to be notoriously bad. And like many companies in 2020, they're hiding behind COVID. What do I mean by hiding behind COVID? Well, Bovada is doing it, and many other companies are doing this now, where you attempt to call them for customer service, and you get a recording that due to the pandemic and the safety of their employees – they are not providing phone customer service anymore, and now you have to email them or chat with them. Well, really, this is just a cost-cutting measure. There's plenty of ways to provide phone customer service in 2020 without requiring people to come into an office. You, there's plenty of ways to have people take these calls at home. You've probably made a lot of customer service calls in 2020 where you hear people's dog barking in the background and their kids crying in the background. And you understand, you know, you realize that 2020 is a different year and that uh, sometimes you got to put up with that type of stuff. Like as long as you're reaching someone who's taking care of it, that's fine. But people don't need to be in an office to take customer service calls and company quickly adjusted to this. And that's why some companies, a lot of companies are taking customer service calls as they were before. And then there's other companies which decided to be unethical and use it as a as an excuse to save money and also to provide uh, worse customer service because the truth is customer service is usually to uh, have customers call up and ask for something back, ask for something to be fixed that was not in their favor. So it's actually to most companies' benefit to have lousy customer service and that uh, customers don't get to recover things and, and fix errors that are against them. Now, yes, this may drive customers away, but there is an argument from a financial standpoint that providing good cust- bad customer service can sometimes help a company overall, depending upon how likely it is that the companies will the, that the customers will return anyway, even if the customer service sucks. A good example: the cable company, the cable company, which is uh, not quite a monopoly anymore because there are some uh, forms of competition in most areas, but it's it's close to one, and a lot of people just tolerate really, really bad customer service from the cable company because there, there isn't a whole lot of choice of where else to go. So that's a good example of uh, a company that actually finds it beneficial to provide worse customer service or not to spend much money on customer service. So we're seeing this in 2020. As I said, Bovada is doing it. A number of companies that before you could call, before 2020, you could call them and you could no longer call them in 2020. Roblox is one of them. So I hate not being able to call customer service because you cannot really reason with customer service reps in email because they have a long time to respond and they can just not answer your questions. They can just avoid questions. They can just send you form letters and you can't make them answer you. On the phone, if someone just spouts off nonsense to you, you can say, no, no, you didn't answer me. 
again, and you say the same thing back, and then you expect them to answer. And unless they hang up on you, they're stuck dealing with you. They're stuck answering you. They may not always give you the answer you want, but at least they're forced to give an answer. They're forced to address your concerns, whereas through email, they're not. And the whole thing moves so slowly through email, they can just kind of frustrate you out of uh, continuing with it, or they can just close the matter. They can just say, matter's closed, we have nothing more to say. So that's actually what they did to me on Roblox. They actually told me, we have nothing more to say, you used up your one time, and that's it. You're done. You're not getting it. We've already told you. If you don't understand, go back and read the previous emails. They actually said that to me in like a more polite way. That I'm sorry we have nothing more to add here. Please consult previous emails if you need more information. Matters closed. So they closed it on me and said, nope, you're not getting it back. You used your one time. And I was pissed. And you know what pissed me off the most was that since I was not really the consumer, since Ben's the consumer, I could not choose to stop doing business with him. I mean, I guess I could, but I would really, really disappoint Ben by taking away the thing from him that he likes the best. So I take away his favorite thing in the world or continue to support them and pay them money every month after they've stiffed me out of $48. Because all I was asking for was give the Robux back, which, if you think about, doesn't cost them anything. These are internal dollars they have in their system. And yeah, they could technically be eventually exchanged back in, but most of them don't. Most of them never end up being uh, working their way all the way through to someone who's a, a game developer that, that exchanges it back because there's a high minimum of what you have to exchange. It, it's a difficult process, and there's a big markdown. So the bottom line is they, they can just invent 4,800 Robux out of thin air and send it to me, and it costs them almost nothing. But they wouldn't do it. And I kept telling them, if I understood that I was using it my one time, I would not have used it for a matter of $5. There's no way I would have used it on that. And you guys were not clear about this. You can't bury this in the fine print. Of course, I just get back form letters saying tough luck. So it looked like I was just going to have to deal with that. I just had to eat the 48 bucks, which isn't the end of the world. It just pissed me off. It just got me angry. So finally, I came, I came to an idea. I actually thought of something that I usually don't think of, that I usually don't even consider. And that is something that is very misunderstood by American consumers, but I've understood it for a long time and have long thought it was useless, and that is the Better Business Bureau. You may or may not know that the Better Business Bureau is not an official government organization. It is a private company. It does not have any power whatsoever. It cannot compel businesses to do anything. When I was much younger, I thought the BBB was some kind of government organization that actually did have authority. But no, it actually has zero authority. It gives itself fake authority just in the power to give bad ratings to businesses which don't cooperate with it. That's all it is. It's a private business that rates other businesses, that takes complaints from consumers about those businesses, and then demands that these businesses respond through their portal. And the businesses, of course, can give them a big fat middle finger and say, no, we're not playing ball with you guys. You guys are, you guys have no authority over us. F you, we're not responding. And then the BBB can give them an F for not responding, which often happens. So when you see something has an F on the Better Business Bureau, sometimes it's not because it's a bad company. Sometimes it's because the company does not want to waste the time playing the Better Business Bureau's games. <laughs> it said, you guys have no authority over us. We're not going to, just because you're compelling us to respond, we don't have to. 
you have no power to make us respond. We're not going to. So give us an F. We don't care. So most businesses take that approach. Most businesses do not respond. Most businesses have a bad rating on the BBB for that reason. And that's why the BBB is useless. But in the semi-rare case that the business cares about their BBB rating, then the BBB can be useful. Not because they have any power, but because if the companies that they are rating care about what rating the BBB gives them, then they have to play ball with the BBB. So amazingly, shockingly, Roblox, of all things, cares about their BBB rating. Why? I don't know. Like, how many times do you think a parent goes and looks at the BBB rating of Roblox when their kid wants to play on there? Nobody does that. I I can't imagine one parent ever brings up the BBB to see how Roblox is rated before they let their kid play on there or before they buy Robux on there. It, it, It makes no sense why Roblox even cares at all. They're huge. They're one of the biggest games in the world. They're they're a multi-billion dollar company at this point. Why do they care what the BBB thinks of them? The BBB has no power to impact them, but but somehow they care. I'm thinking it might be because Roblox is going to go public soon, and maybe they're afraid a bad BBB rating uh, could somehow uh, be to their detriment in the process of going public or their stock price. I don't know. That's just a wild guess. But I, I just took a look, and what do you know? I noticed a lot of resolved complaints where people had complaints, not just like mine, but along the same lines of customer service told me to eat shit. Customer service told me my matter's closed and wouldn't fix it. And I'm stuck and what do I do? So I'm making this complaint here. And then like two weeks later, I see complaint closed, uh, customer accepts resolution. So I'm thinking, okay, they, they wouldn't have a whole lot of customer accepts resolution after they had previously told the customer to fuck off, unless the BBB was influencing them to do the right thing. And I noticed they had a BBB rating, which is actually pretty good. Because most people go to the BBB site because they've been screwed over already. <laughs> so so if, if it has a B rating, with all the complaints people are putting through, I'm thinking, okay, well, this might be the one thing they care about. This might be the one thing that can change their mind from telling me F you to give me a chance and listening to me. So I did the first, for the first time in my life, I'm almost 49 years old. I've never done this before in my life. But the first time in my life, I submitted a BBB complaint about a company. And I did it about Roblox. I explained the whole story I just told you. I submitted it. I was a little worried maybe they wouldn't accept my complaint, the BBB, because I was asking for Robux and not real dollars back. I just wanted my 4,800 Robux back. But they accepted my complaint and they said, we are asking Roblox to respond to you. And if they don't, it's going to hurt their rating. I said, okay, sweet. I think they will. Well, sure enough, they responded very quickly. But they responded with something stupid saying, oh, we, we can't find your account in question, uh, which is stupid because I gave them all the info to find my account. But we can't find this. We can't find it. So just contact uh, customer service and we'll we'll clear it up for you. So that didn't help. I already contacted customer service and they told me to go jump in the lake. So uh, I rejected that response and again told them to go look at the original complaint, and again, that I gave all the information they need right there. So then, like a week passed, and nothing happened. No response. So I emailed the BBB a few days ago, and I said, hey, Roblox isn't responding to me now. Well, then they didn't respond. So I'm like, oh, boy. All right, well, maybe because this is a holiday, maybe because people are not working during uh, this week at the BBB. 
because of Christmas, but I think maybe this is going to end up going nowhere. So I was going to give it another shot on Monday the 28th. And then today I got notification from Benjamin. Daddy, my 4800 Robux are back. So the BBB, they didn't email me anything about it, but that's definitely what happened because they, they closed my matter and told me they're not discussing it further. Then I contacted the BBB. Then I got back that stupid letter from Roblox. Then I rejected it. Then no action, no action, no action. About 10 days later, the Robux are back. And I got an email from Roblox tonight telling me that they've basically given me my one time a second time, but that this time they really mean it. <laughs> this, this time they are not going to give them back if the same thing happens again, which, okay, I guess that's reasonable. But the first time when I didn't know I was using my one time and they weren't clear about it, and it was over a matter of $5, that that was really lousy. So victory was ours here, thanks to the BBB. I had never thought that the BBB would have ever resolved anything for me in my life. But that is a bit of a lesson that if you really get nowhere with a company, check the BBB because maybe they actually are responding. Maybe they care about their rating there, even when you would think they do not. I feel a little bit better now. I still think the customer service is horrendous and they don't appreciate their customers and they're a shitty company, but at least uh, we got back what was stolen. Okay, enough about me. Let's get to someone else in a personal battle in poker. And that is a woman named Kristen Ting. You may or may not have heard of her. She's not a major poker player, but some of you may have heard of her and known her in Vegas. But uh, she is a middle-aged Asian female. I don't know her exact age. doesn't really matter. I don't think I've met her before. If I have, I don't remember meeting her. Uh, it's an interesting story, though. And it was actually brought to my attention by Alan Kessler. And Alan Kessler is actually uh, a little bit involved in the story in that he started to go fund me for her. I don't know what Alan Kessler's relationship is with her or if there is one. I know Alan Kessler does like Asian women, so it's possible he has a crush on her or something. But anyway, that's not really important here. But the story is interesting, and because it's someone in poker, I thought I would tell it to you guys. So here's what's going on. Kristen Ting is actually in a very unusual custody battle. She is looking to be granted parental rights and full custody of a child which she has no biological relation to and also never had any uh, parental rights for in the past and was never married to anyone who had parental rights to that child in the past. So you're th you may think, well, how could she possibly want custody? Is it possible that maybe the parents died? No. Both parents of the child, both natural parents, are still alive and not in jail. So what's going on? How, how could she possibly think she has a chance to be granted parental custody of a child that is not hers, that she was never married to anyone who is uh, the parent of the child, and that both parents, who are not together anymore, are alive and not in jail? How could, how could this ever be possible? Well, I'll tell you, and it actually makes sense. Kristen, who lives in Las Vegas and has for a long time, had a boyfriend for seven years between uh, 2012 and 2019. Four years into the relationship in 2016, 
her boyfriend was informed that he had a kid, a kid he did not know about, and it appears to have been from a one-night stand. And the uh, kid was, I guess this one-night stand was right before he got with Kristen. I guess it's possible that's just the story they're telling and that uh, the guy cheated on Kristen early on, but I, uh, I guess I'll believe it that uh, you know, the guy was just screwing around when he was single and got some uh, one-night stand pregnant and then she didn't know how to contact him or whatever, and he just learned about it uh, four years in. The kid is uh, was three years old at the time, I presume. Uh, Kristen took it well, and in fact, uh, there was a decision that had to be made, and that was... Uh, they were asking the dad to take custody of this boy that he never knew existed because uh, the mom was a complete train wreck. The mom was a drug addict. The mom had been arrested a number of times. The mom had a lot of issues, and as a result, the kid was having a lot of issues. The mom apparently did drugs when she was pregnant, and it affected the development of the kid. She also just was a very irresponsible parent, probably mostly due to the drugs. And uh, the kid was not where he was supposed to be milestone-wise at the age he was at the time. So the kid really needed a lot of help at the time. And they were asking the dad, uh, Child Protective Services or some department like that in Las Vegas, was asking the dad, who previously didn't know the kid existed, hey, can you just take custody? Because we're, we're taking custody away from the mom. And I don't know how they found him, but they did. They said, we found you. You're the dad. And uh, can you take the kid? So he said, yes, he took the kid. Now, Kristen was living with him and Kristen was okay with that. She did not object to it. She didn't say, hey, you know, I don't want this kid here. This isn't my kid. No, she was fine with it. She she was uh, not only was she okay with it, but she actually was happy to have the kid there. She did not have any kids yet of her own. Uh, I don't know how old she was then, but I, I don't know if she could still have kids at that point. She's not, she doesn't look like a young woman. Whatever it was, she was actually uh, happy to have this kid and developed a bond with the kid. So she didn't just tolerate the kid being there. She actually took on the mothering role. She pretty much became the kid's mom. And uh, the real mom, the biological mom, was out of the picture. Uh, I don't know if she was in jail or she was in rehab or whatever it was. She she had a years-long history of trouble including when she had the kid, including when she was pregnant with the kid. I guess she was seeing the boy occasionally with like supervised visits, the mom. But really, it was Kristen and her boyfriend, the dad of that kid, who were uh, raising him. And uh, then came something weird. Here's the weird part. So far, this, you know, it's fairly standard. I mean, it's a little interesting to have the... Uh, it's not all that common where you, you find out you had a kid you didn't know about and then you end up taking the kid because the mom was on drugs, but uh, this happens. It's, it's not, like, unheard of. There are a number of dads out there that don't know their dads because they just either were never informed by the mom of the kid or sometimes the mom had no way to reach them, which, again, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how it happened that he just didn't know and how they located him if she didn't know who the dad was. It's possible she knew his name and just didn't know how to reach him and just didn't bother and then when she got in trouble and they took the kid away, well, do you know who the father is? And maybe she told them and then they looked him up. Whatever, whatever. it doesn't matter. In 2019, so we're, only, we're, we're further up in the story now, and of course the kid has gotten older by this point. The kid has bonded with Kristen. The kid has greatly improved 
through Kristen's much better parenting skills than the biological mom. The kid has uh, gotten a lot closer to reaching the milestones for his age. I think he's probably, as of last year, was probably like seven years old, six years old, something around there. Doing much, much better. The kid had a lot of problems when he first showed up because of the mom. And Kristen apparently really helped him thrive and do much, much better. And that's great. That's a very, very uh, nice story to hear because she wasn't related to this kid. She just pretty much took him in as if he were her her own and she loved him. And uh, it's a very heartwarming story. But here comes the weird part that in 2019, her boyfriend left her. I don't know the details, but he just decided he was done. And then there was a matter of, okay, what do you do about the kid? Because the kid got to know her. Like, I don't know if he actually calls her mom, but he got to know her like she's his mom. And it's not trivial for her to just get up and leave, either for her, because she loves the boy, and also for the boy who loves her. So what do you do? Well, believe it or not, the boyfriend did not attempt to take him away from Kristen. In fact, it was the opposite. The boyfriend said to her, you know what? I think you actually do the best job with this kid of anybody. (laughs) I think you're better than me. I think you're better than his mom, for sure, his drug addict mom. I think that my son is best off with you. So since we're not going to be together anymore, not only am I not going to separate you from him, which he would have the legal right to do, he could have easily just said, okay, thank you for all the help, but we're not together anymore. You have no legal right. Uh, It's going to be too confusing to him with us not together, so just scram. It would have kind of messed up the kid, maybe, but he would have had the legal right to do it, and there'd be nothing she could do if the father said, sorry, we're just not together, and you have no legal right. Thank you for the help. Goodbye. But he did not. As I said, he actually told her that the kid is actually better off with her, Kristen. So he turned over custody to Kristen, which is a little bit weird. Like I don't know why he didn't want any custody. Like He didn't seem to want the kid on weekends or something. He just like, okay, you know what? Take him. Which is kind of crappy. I can't imagine why a father would do that. Even if the father concedes that he's not as good of a parent as Kristen was, as kind of like a surrogate mother. I don't see why he would just like exit the kid's life or mostly exit the kid's life. But he just said, you know what? You take the kid. And he actually signed over rights for her to be the one to have temporary custody. She she didn't adopt him. If she had, that would have been a different story. But then that there would have been a complication, which I'm about to get to. And that is about the biological mom. The biological mom was aware that the kid was being raised by the dad and by Kristen. And she had no problem with that, at least as far as I know. But the temporary custody was the problem because the dad pretty much gave up custody. He didn't give up that he was the father. He didn't uh, give up the kid for adoption, but he did transfer temporary custody to Kristen. So the mom decided last year that she wants the kid back. And the mom said to Kristen, you're not the mom. This is my biological kid. I'm taking him back. And there's nothing you can do. And Kristen said, no, no, no. The other parent, the dad of the kid, basically gave his parental rights to me. So I'm not just uh, the girlfriend anymore, the ex-girlfriend anymore. I'm actually the one he has transferred custody to. So now you're going to have to take custody from me. And 
if this boy goes back to you, he's going to regress back to all his old problems, and you're going to cause him new problems. You had a lot of chances with him. You were very irresponsible, both when he was uh, in utero and after he was born. You were arrested a number of times, including for child abuse and neglect. You had uh, ongoing drug problems. Uh, When we took the kid in, he was a disaster. It was all your fault. And uh, so we're fi- we finally got him to where he needs to be. He's finally thriving, and now you want to take him and set him back. F you, we're not doing it. Which I understand. I understand. She she really loves this boy. She never had any kids of her own. She sees this child as her son. And not because she's delusional. She really raised him for the last four years. Or back then, I guess, last year is the last three years. But she had raised him for like half his life. And brought him back to normalcy. And now the drug addict mom, who caused all the problems in the first place, wants him back. Who lost him in the first place. So she started a court battle. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen it where the ex of one of the parents is attempting to get permanent custody of the child. Because one parent doesn't want the custody and is happy to have her have the custody. And the other one is uh, an unfit parent, but wants the custody. Now, the funny thing, if it were reversed, if the dad wanted the custody, he would get it, because I I don't know what the issues are with his dad to where he doesn't really want to be in the kid's life anymore, but the dad did not have the issues that the mom did. The dad didn't have a drug problem or arrests or anything like that, to my knowledge. So I had the dad just say, hey, I'm, I'm taking the kid back. I don't care if you've done a lot of work with him. He's mine. He could totally do it. But it's the mom who didn't have the custody at the time and had all the past problems it's not as straightforward. So there has been a legal battle going on for the last year and a half involving this kid whose name is Jaden. And uh, the reason I know about this is because Alan Kessler created a fundraiser a week ago for Kristen Ting. Actually, I guess her name is a Kristen Ting Ho. I only knew her as Kristen Ting, but now I'm seeing it says Kristen Ting Ho legal expenses. But anyway, whatever her name is, uh, it's called Kristen Ting Ho Legal Expenses for Her Son Jaden. And it's a $25,000 fundraiser, which unlike the fundraiser for Patches, which well exceeded its goal, right now this is very far short of its goal, $1,861 has been raised of the $25,000 they're looking for. So this is going to get very far because this is for legal expenses. and <laughs> You know how much $1,800 goes towards uh, legal expenses? It'll probably uh, get you through a few days and that's it. But whatever. This is what it says in the GoFundMe. This is about a little boy who found love and a mom in the most unlikely of places. Kristen loves kids, but having a child was never in the cards for her. She and her nieces and goddaughter, and that was enough for her. She is passionate about animals. She rescues and donates to, to their causes. In 2012, Kristen met her boyfriend and she was happy. In 2016, Kristen and her boyfriend found out about a little four-year-old boy, unbeknownst to them, her boyfriend Her boyfriend had fathered right before they got together. The little boy's name is Jaden. Jaden came to their lives through the Department of Child Services. In 2012, at birth, Jaden was taken by CPS when he was born with drugs in his system and later returned to the biological mother. In 2014, at the age of two, Jaden's biological mother was arrested at a park by an off-duty police officer for child abuse and drug possession. Ugh. Jaden was then taken by CPS and placed into a fifth wheeler off of Boulder Highway behind Arizona Charlie's where he lived until he was four years old. I I don't know what fifth wheeler is. Maybe it's a foster home. 
In 2016, Kristen and her boyfriend fought for nearly a year to bring his son home. In 2017, Kristen's boyfriend was awarded sole legal and physical custody. Having been cooped up in a fifth wheel for two years, Jaden's gross motor skills were improperly developed. Also, as a result of drinking, smoking, and doing drugs while Jaden was in vitro, it caused a lot of speech delays and sensory, sensory issues. I think he was trying to say in utero, but whatever. Jaden was behind his peers in regard to both mental and physical health. He also had an extremely hard time expressing himself. Being speech delayed, his main way of communicating was through screaming and crying. Believing in Jaden with faith and the vision of what he could become, Kristen went to work. Kristen took charge and started on an unknown journey in hopes to create a safe, stable, and nurturing environment for Jaden. She scaled back her travels for work to dedicate herself to Jaden's well-being. Unfortunately, Kristen's boyfriend chose to leave her in 2019, but knowing she'd be the best parent for the son, he signed over temporary guardianship to her. The next two years were filled with therapy, education, patience by the buckets, and most importantly, love. Kristen and Jaden are remarkably close. They are a team. They have a unified family and a small group of friends that completely support their journey. In broken families, non-biological parents, mental and physical health are most are involved. Not everyone understands the who, why, of what, where of the journey. Anyone that has had the pleasure of meeting Jaden would agree that he's the most caring, loving, and giving eight-year-old. He has an infectiously happy personality and has a special way of making a stranger his friend. His previous environment caused plenty of damage, but with the help of amazing therapists and a teacher that has, that has willingly worked with Kristen, he has made great progress overcoming his challenges. Kristen loves him unconditionally, and he deserves the best. She is committed to providing Jaden with a safe, loving environment, despite his biological mom's continuous hostility to get him back. We know based on experience that Jaden's biological mother is not a safe option for him, nor is she fit to take care of him. She only had... She not only has a child abuse case in her past, she was arrested twice for domestic violence, though the charges were dropped. In the last two years, the biological mom has only visited with him 17 times. Fast forward to 2020, after six years of Jaden being out of the biological mom's care, she has decided to pursue legal action to get Jaden back. Jaden loves Kristen. Kristen is his best friend, his mom, and the only stable environment that he's ever known. Remaining in Kristen's care would be the best decision for him, he does not need to regress and go through the hard times with his biological mother. Every child deserves to be unconditionally loved, and most of all, every child deserves a childhood without the constant worry that someone can neglect or abandon them at any time. Even though Jaden has been removed from his mother by Child Protective Services twice, she is fighting to have him return to her. Kristen is currently fighting two court hearings right now over Jaden, a guardianship hearing as well as a custody hearing. The cost of attorney's fees have been crippling for Kristen. Despite all of Kristen's hard work and love she put into raising Jaden, the judge says the case is very complex with a lot of layers. Yeah, that's true. Kristen has no blood relation to Jaden, but the natural father has nominated Kristen to be guardian. Guardianship hearing is set for an evidentiary hearing on March 8th. The custody hearing where the biological mother will argue she has the basic right to raise her child will be on January 19th. The cost of keeping Jaden safe has become extremely expensive. For the past several years, Kristen has supported Jaden on her own. She has received no financial assistance from the biological mom. The cost of raising a child alone on a single income is expensive. The current COVID situation makes earning a steady income different, uh, difficult. I wonder if she's a pro poker player. I wonder if that's the, what that means. But now on top of that, she has the attorney's fees for two separate court battles. It's a tough situation for a single parent to handle that on their own. For this reason, we are asking for donations from everyone that wants to help. Any extra funding not used in Jaden's court cases and care will be donated to another family in need. Kristen loves Jaden as much as any biological parent would love their own, and he, he is happily safe and excelling in school. 
Kristen is Jaden's favorite, favorite person in all the world. He calls her mom. She stepped up when everyone else stepped out. Kristen would love nothing but to be able to continue to provide him with love and the resources he needs. She has no biological children and is doing this out of love and a calling to ensure Jaden's well-being and safety. Their experience has at times been a trying one, but the rewards that it brings to one another's hearts are enormous. Thank you in advance for your help in keeping Jaden where he is, safe, thriving, and happy. And again, that is organized and perhaps written by Alan Kessler. It doesn't really sound like him, but it's, uh, he's the one who created this. Uh, looking at the donations, I don't recognize most of these names. I do see Melissa Burr gave $20 a day ago. I haven't looked through them all. There were 23 different people donating a total of $1,861. So that's not going to get them very far. How do I feel about this? Well, I agree. It's a very complicated battle. I think that the boy is definitely best off with Kristen. There's no question. I mean, I you don't know for sure because this is a story being told by Kristen's side. So maybe the biological mom has uh, her own side. That would explain why she's doing this and why uh, her side has more validity than it appears to be. I'm talking about from a moral standpoint, not a legal standpoint. Legally, it is very complicated for the reasons I stated, that the biological mom is the biological mom, that Kristen has no relation to the child, that Kristen never was able to adopt the child or anything like that, and that Kristen's not even with the dad of the child anymore. So Kristen really, on her own, wants to raise the child, which on the surface seems weird. And I believe the child would be best off with her. But from a legal standpoint, if the mom can show that she has improved, I don't know if she has or not, but if the mom can prove that she has left the drugs behind and that she's gotten through a rehab program and has not relapsed and that she's been responsible and she's working again, whatever, then uh, it might be hard for Kristen to keep the boy, even if the mom's history is pretty bad and even if the mom did do damage to the boy, both in utero and out of utero, that it may be still difficult for Kristen to get to keep custody at this point. So I also wonder if there's a way that the dad could get custody back. I, that, I'm wondering why that's not part of it. Why isn't he saying, okay, well, I'll take custody then. If, if you're going to take it away from Kristen, then, then I want custody. Like, why does it have to go to the mom? The The dad only gave up custody because he wanted the boy with Kristen. I don't think the dad wants the boy with this mom. Otherwise, he wouldn't have fought all this in the first place. Because it seems like a, a, a previous fight occurred that they won to get the boy away from the mom. At first, uh, they, they contacted the dad because the mom was uh, going into rehab or jail or whatever. But then uh, they got permanent custody. And the only reason this is an issue now is because the person with custody is not the dad anymore. So legally, this is very complicated and very non-standard. And that's what the judge was basically warning her. This is not a slam dunk, even if morally it seems like a slam dunk. Legally, it is not. And I agree. But morally, I do think the kid is best with Kristen. And that I think the mom screwed up enough to where, yeah, you don't want to take a kid away from the mom just because there's there's technically someone else out there who could do a better job. Like that that would set a very bad precedence. If you if if you could find a a parent who's willing to raise a child of a bad parent, uh just just take the the child away from the bad parent and give it to this other person. You you can't do that because a lot of this is subjective and even if it's true, uh there there is a certain right that everyone has to their own children. 
And just because better parents may be out there that could raise a child better than the biological parent, that doesn't mean that the biological parent should have to give up the child. But in this case, we see that this is pretty extreme, that uh, a lot of harm came to this child as a result of the actions of the mom, and it occurred over a period of several years. It wasn't just a one-off mistake. It was a mistake that occurred again and again and again, and it looks like the mom just doesn't have her shit together, and even if temporarily she has her shit together, I think we'd all agree that she has a fairly high chance of relapsing at this point. So, like, I... It's it's really hard to believe that this mom, given everything that happened with this boy, wouldn't end up doing the same thing sometime soon. I don't think a lot of you would have faith that she has completely turned over a new leaf and for the remainder of this boy's childhood for the next 10 years that the, the mom's going to be responsible and never get back into drugs and do a great job parenting or even an okay job parenting. Like I, I think most of us most of us have an idea of what's probably going to occur and that's probably the mom's going to be back on the drugs – and be a terrible parent and cause harm to the boy again. So if the boy has gone from being way behind in everything and being speech delayed and and having a very difficult time in school and with peers and just really everything looking like a disaster to finally getting to near where you'd expect him to be for an eight-year-old and that Kristen put all the time and effort to make this happen and basically undid the damage that this mom did, provided this is what really occurred. You know, again, we're going by their story, but provided this is what really happened, then for the boy's sake, I would say yes. You, you leave the boy with Kristen. This, is, this isn't like uh, the boy bonded with Kristen over a period of a few months and then she wants to keep him and she's the better parent. Like that's a, There it would not be justified, but because such a large percentage of the boy's life has been spent with Kristen, especially the, the percentage of his life that he can remember, because remember, most kids can't remember before four years old. Think of your life. Can you remember much before when you were four? Even when you were a kid, could you remember much before you were four? The answer is no. So most of the time the kid can remember, perhaps all the time the kid can remember, was spent with Kristen as his mother figure and with his own mom being an unfit parent. So I don't think it's good to yank that away and shove him back into the situation which damaged him in the first place. If if you've damaged your kid that much, you've pretty much lost the right to be a parent to that kid unless there really is nobody else. So I would agree that uh, you have to give the natural parent more leeway if it's between the flawed natural parent and the foster system because the foster system has all kinds of problems and that's not very healthy. That's really a last resort. So... It is better overall for the kid to be with a parent that you have to take a chance on than just bouncing around the foster system. I agree with that. But when you have a stable home already, which is not a foster home, and where the the parental figure there is acting as a mother and has done a great job with a kid and it's stable, that's a different story. And I I feel here that from what's described – that the mom, the natural mom, did enough damage to that kid to where she shouldn't have rights to the kid anymore, given the alternative that is available here. Again, if it was between this and the foster system, I'd say, okay, give the mom one more shot. But this is not the foster system. So as weird as this is, I'm actually on her side, and I hope she succeeds. If you want to uh, donate to this, 
It's, uh, you know, Alan Kessler is running it. So the good thing with Alan Kessler running it is that, you know, the money's not going to get stolen. Like Alan Kessler is not a scammer. Alan Kessler is reliable. If he says he's going to collect the money for her, he's really collecting the money for her. This isn't, uh, someone doing it in her name is going to run off with it or blow it. Like Alan Kessler is definitely going to give her what it was collected. So if you want to, the, the link to the GoFundMe is in the thread on the Flying Stupidity Forum of Poker Fraud Alert. And it is called uh, Poker Player Kristen Ting in Unusual Legal Battle to Become Guardian of Ex-Boyfriend's Son. Just click on that in the Flying Stupidity Forum and you can find the GoFundMe. Or you can just type in, uh, in Google uh, GoFundMe Kristen Ting, T-I-N-G. And you can even type in Jaden. I'm sure it'll come up. And you could donate there. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not telling you you should or shouldn't donate. I'm just telling you that the story, and I will tell you that I, I believe her story. Like Maybe there's some details that aren't right. Maybe there's some exaggeration. But I, for the most part, believe it. I think this is a, a noble effort on her part. And I think the boy will be best off staying with her and away from the druggy mom. And you know what? If the druggy mom uh, cleans her act up and... Uh, yeah, she can still be in the boy's life. She doesn't have to be the one directly raising the boy. She can visit the boy more. She can spend more time with him. She can, like, the longer time that she's cleaned up, the better chance it is that she's reformed. I just don't think enough time has passed yet even to, to conclude that. I think, I really think there's a good chance if you return this boy to the mom that bad things are going to happen. And I don't want to see that. That's not fair to the kid. I think the mom has already blown her chances. Okay, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Got a text here. Not sure if you're talking about it tonight, but I heard a rumor that Patches is legally changing his name to Punches. (laughs) (laughs) That is from a former guest on the show, by the way. Won't say who. From the 916... This is actually from Desert Desert Runner, talking about himself. In 1997 to 1998, Desert Runner was a professional firefighter for the state of Nevada on Mount Charleston, and one of the biggest calls he responded to was a plane crash. Oh, wow. See? Sometimes life imitates art, and sometimes art imitates life. In this case, it's the latter. Where uh, I was basically uh, reenacting the crash 22 years ago that Desert Runner responded to on Mount Charleston. Yeah, I, I forgot he worked in Mount Charleston. But yes, a Desert Runner is a uh, firefighter. Okay, well, I'm going to move on. We're going to talk about a situation that's a little bit disturbing. A British gambler in a UK casino threatened to burn it down after he lost a lot of money. And he didn't just threaten to burn it down. He actually brought in a big can of gasoline to burn it down. It was more than just a threat. It was a threat with possible action. So here is what happened. And I, I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often. Like Honestly, I'm surprised that we don't have more cases of uh, people showing back up at casinos with guns and just like doing like mass killings there. I'm glad we don't have this very often. Like I, I'm just surprised it doesn't happen more. So here's what the story is about. A British gambler named Amir Abol Abol Ghassem lost 400,000 pounds, which is like uh, around 600-something thousand U.S. dollars. So he lost 400,000 British pounds at 
the Genting Casino, or, sorry, Genting Casino, not Genting. I sound like an idiot saying Genting. I know, I know it's Genting. The Genting Casino in Bournemouth. Now, you may have not have heard of Bournemouth. Bournemouth is a coastal town in southern England. Amir was very unhappy about having lost 400,000 pounds, and I don't think he's that wealthy to where he can lose that and not blink an eye. I believe this was most of his net worth. So he showed up after losing it, came right back with a big container of gasoline, a five-liter container, which is more than a gallon, in case you're in the U.S. and don't know what liters are. 3.8 liters makes a gallon. So he showed up with a five-liter container full of gasoline and poured it all over the roulette table and threatened to burn the place down and had a lighter. He took out a lighter and was ready to light the whole thing on fire and make it uh, blow up into a big ball of flame, that roulette table. I don't know if that's where he lost the money, but uh, that's where he poured the gasoline onto. Amir is 59 years old. He was a regular at the casino. On September 28th, shortly after losing that money, he went to the upper levels of the property and then threw a coffee table off of the balcony to the lower level. He began shouting and yelling, and he warned patrons to leave the premises because he's going to set it ablaze. So first he, first he threw a coffee table off the balcony. By the way, not related to this, but I have seen a poker player throw a chair over a balcony. If you remember Devin Miller from Commerce... And he used to listen to, I don't know if it was this show, but he, he listened to this uh, series of shows that I've been involved with over the years. He listened to Poker Fraud Alert and Dogtown Radio. But uh, Devin Miller, a good limit hold'em player, you can look up his uh, results. It's uh, I think his name is spelled D-E-V-I-N, either I-N or O-N. But Devin Miller, on the Party Poker Cruise in 2006, which admittedly he was very young back then, I think he was 21 or something, but... Devin uh, got drunk and was throwing uh, chairs off the balcony into the ocean. (laughs) I watched it happen. He didn't get caught, but it wasn't because he was losing. Anyway, Amir was losing. He threw the coffee table first over the balcony. It slammed into the lower level. Didn't hit anybody, fortunately. And uh, then he warned everybody to get out because he's going to blow the whole place up. He's going to set it uh, on fire. I guess not blow it up, but set it on fire. So after he uh, dumped the gasoline onto the roulette table, he uh, was sitting there for 17 minutes. He held the lighter there, but didn't uh, actually light it. He took out a lighter and said, I've just put five liters of gasoline on this roulette table, and you know what's going to happen if I light this and throw it onto her? It's going to burst into flames, and this whole place is going to go to the ground. So for 17 minutes, he was threatening it. He never made a flame come out of the lighter. So there was never any actual danger of it occurring other than him actually doing it. But uh, he was threatening to, and he did pour the gasoline on there. And they kept saying, sir, sir, please step away from the table. Put the lighter away. No, no, you know, this has ruined my life. This place needs to burn down. This is uh, a dreadful establishment. It, it uh, just takes and takes and takes. 
has ruined my life and uh, I'm going to prevent it from ruining the lives of others. And I'm going to do this with my five liters of gasoline and this lighter right here. And don't try to stop me. And uh, if you're wise, you will exit the premises so nobody gets hurt. But if you do not, you're taking your life into your own hands. These are not exact quotes, by the way. It's just my my dramatic interpretation of the situation. Then uh, he, he decides to do something else. He decided instead of threatening the casino, he's going to threaten his own life. All right, all right. Uh, so if, if you don't care so much about this roulette table, if you don't think that um, it's going to send the whole place ablaze, if you think perhaps they're going to bring, bring an extinguisher over and uh, put an end to the whole thing, all right, fine, fine. Change of plans. I've also got this knife here. Now, no, 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 don't worry. I'm not going to stab any of you. I'm going to slit my own throat. So this this knife here is going to be used to cut my throat. I'm going to uh, fall onto the roulette table. The blood's going to be everywhere. You're not going to be able to uh, bet on black or red. Like I guess you would be able to bet on red because the red of my own blood will, will uh, encompass the entire table. Every bet on the table will be a bet on red after I'm done with it. So, yeah, I'm going to slit my throat now. So um, all of you stand back. So that was the next thing he started doing, is he was uh, putting the knife to his neck. And they're trying to talk him down. They're trying to say, put the knife away, put the lighter away. The good thing is, neither of these things happened. He did not light the table, as I said, and he did not cut his throat. In fact, he never actually put the knife up to his skin. He put it near his skin, but he didn't actually cut himself. So it it was all a lot of drama. I don't know if he was really considering it or if he just was... uh, doing it for show, or maybe he was trying to get himself to do it, but couldn't get himself to do either thing. Anyway, after they uh, talked him out of this stuff, then he was arrested. And he faced knife-possession charges and threatening to damage property. And he immediately apologized after being arrested. He said that uh, his actions stemmed from a gambling addiction... And also the fact that he didn't have a job anymore because of COVID-19. So he couldn't even make the money back. He was both unemployed and probably broke or close to broke because he lost so much money in the casino. Here's a a tip. If you are unemployed and you cannot afford to make back the money you lose in the casino, do not go to the casino. (laughs) Or if you do, bet at low limits. Do not bet uh, to where you can lose 400,000 pounds if that's all your money, because uh, playing negative expectation games is very likely to result in an overall loss. So if you're just doing it for fun, that's one thing. But if you are gambling with the purpose of uh, making money, or if you're gambling big money you can't afford, it's going to be gone. You're going to end up like a mirror here, and you're going to end up with a five-liter bottle of gasoline on a roulette table. So he has been sentenced for this already. I guess the UK uh, justice system works quicker than what goes on in the US. So the judge says, well, Mr. Amir Abul Abagasem, your actions have been uh, quite uh, inappropriate for a uh, gaming establishment, and uh, we cannot just let this um, go unpunished. It's true you did not light the table ablaze, and it is true that you did not um, cut your own neck. However, we cannot allow this sort of behavior, and uh, there, there always has to be consequences for actions. Therefore, number one, you shall not enter a gambling establishment for the remainder of the 2020s. As long as the calendar has a two as the third digit in the date, 
you shall not be able to enter any British gaming establishment. Not one. Now, in fact, we're going to extend this for nine more months after that. So until September 2030, when you'll be 69 years old, you shall not enter any British gaming establishment. In addition, I shall sentence you to two years in jail for these actions. You, you, you held up the casino for 17 minutes, threatening to burn it down. We just simply cannot uh, allow such a thing. So, so let it be written, so let it be done. It's actually a pretty stiff sentence. Two years when the guy didn't actually cause any harm other than ruining a roulette table with gasoline. He should be... He should get some kind of sentence, but... Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear this is like a rash action because he was distraught over losing the money. And again, there should be some punishment. Two years in jail is pretty tough. Wow. Anyway, that's what happened. So Amir's going to have some time to think about his actions there. So that's a double beat there. He lost 400,000 pounds and is going to be in jail for two years. Wow. And everybody who reads this story will know know him as the psycho who poured gasoline on a roulette table and threatened to burn the place down. Some people should not be gambling, and that includes him. In general, if you're playing high stakes and you're just playing the casino game as normal, if you don't have any actual proven advantage play going on, uh, you should not be doing that unless you really have a ton of money. You should not play high stakes at negative expectation games unless you have so much money that uh, the high stakes don't really mean much to you and you don't care about losing. Like, There's some people who just enjoy gambling and don't mind the fact that it's negative expectation and they have so much money that, again, like 400,000 pounds is not going to do much to them. But most people cannot say that. There's very few people who can say that they won't blink if they lose 400,000 pounds. And the odds will get you. The mathematics will get you if you play negative expectation games at high stakes. That's just the way it works. That's the way it will always be. That's the way it was for high-stakes gamblers before you, presently, and after you. I promise you. Okay, moving on here. You know, I could go back to the U.S. Let's stay in Europe here. A Danish poker player and also Danish hacker, Peter Jensen, also known as Zup, Z-U-P-P online, has been sentenced to three years in prison for a cheating scandal. And yes, a poker cheating scandal. We've talked about it before on this show. But he has finally been sentenced. This is from a Danish publication I can't even pronounce. It's spelled uh, E-K-S-T-R-A-B-L-A-D-E-T. Extrablatet. <laughs> Let me try it again. Extrablatet. I-, I still can't do it. Boy, these Danish words are hard. Extrabladet. I think I got it. Extrabladet. So extrabladet.dk, and uh, I translated it. I, I do not speak Danish, but, but here we are. The Eastern High Court on Tuesday sentenced the professional poker player Peter Willers Jepsen, called Zup, to three years in prison for hacking and fraud. He's also losing uh, 22.4 million Danish crones through confiscation. That'd be yeah, $3.67 million. So, yeah, he's giving up a lot of money here. Jepsen has been convicted in several cases for having installed spyware on his opponent's computers so that he could see their screens. When he played against them online, he was able to see their cards. So this this has been talked about for a number of years, that he uh, was putting 
programs on people's computer exactly the sense here as it says, so he was able to see their screen, then he could see their whole cards, and then he would play them online. He would kind of befriend and hang out with uh, poker players that he knew he would play against at some point, even if he played under fake names, they didn't know it was him. But he would get this on their machine in some way, like if they went to the bathroom, and then would uh, play them heads up and destroy them. In December, Jepson was sentenced to two and a half years in prison in the case in Copenhagen City Court. He chose to appeal that verdict to the high court, but the result was a higher sentence. (laughs) That didn't work out. I think when they say in December, I think they were talking about uh, December 2019. It is half a year more than the city court stated presiding judge Casper Linkus in connection with the sentencing on Tuesday morning. 36-year-old Jepson had turned up with lawyer Arvid Anderson by his side. Throughout the case, Jepson had been representing by, represented by lawyer Andrew Verlick, but he had become ill prior to today's court hearing. So I guess he had a different lawyer with him as he got sentenced. When Linkius handed down the sentence, Arvid Anderson made a movement with his hand towards his client's knee. It seemed like some kind of soothing gesture. I don't know. To me, it sounds kind of gay. <laughs> He's like... Uh, you have been sentenced to two and a half years in prison. And his lawyer's like, oh, oh, uh, Peter Jepson, I feel so bad for you. Oh, yeah, let me touch your knee. Oh, does this feel good? Does this feel good? Does this make you feel more relaxed? Like, what the hell? <laughs> he put his hand towards his client's knee. I, I would think if you're like trying to soothe your client, you kind of pat him on the back. I, I can't think I'd be like squeezing the knee of my client. I, we should have Eric Bensamokin on here and ask him if he would ever do this to one of his clients. I hope he doesn't do this to me. I hope, I hope if I lose the possible case that Eric doesn't squeeze my knee. I don't think he would, but uh, this is a, I know Eric listens to this show. He listens to every episode. I'm going to tell you right now, Eric, please do not squeeze my knee no matter what happens in court. Okay? But that's what happened there in court with uh, Peter Jepson and his lawyer, Arvid Anderson. But the judicial system does not immediately offer more options for Peter Jepson, who with the decision in the high court has received a final verdict. And according to Judge Linkus, there's nothing to rattle on about in connection with the decision. I like this translation. The verdict is unanimous on all points and adds, it is spoken in a mitigating direction that the case has had such a long time course as it has been. The fraud took place from 2008 to 2014. So it's not a new story. Like I think we talked about this on radio like in 2013. Peter Jepson has been sentenced to pay compensation to a victim in the case. That amount is 144,000 US dollars. So you may wonder, well, what about the remainder? Only 144,000? In connection with the investigation of the case, the police have confiscated about 28 million Danish chromes from Peter Jepson. However, the high court estimates that only the, only the evidence has been added to approximately 750,000 Danish chromes that originated from the fraud. But listen to this brutal part. Still, the high court has chosen to confiscate an amount of 22.376 chromes and uh, for, uh, for Peter Jepson has not been able to explain where that amount came from legal activities. Hmm. Remainder of the seizure of about 6.5 million crones. Prosecutor Peter Messerschmidt asked them to uphold the seizure for later confiscation. So he may lose another 6.5 million crones. The money is to be used to pay compensation and legal costs, the prosecutor's claim is. However, the high court will only decide on this later. Hmm. So that's the end of the story. 
which if it sounds weird, it's because it was translated, but it looks like not only does he lose the 22.4, it looks like he's losing another uh, 6.5. So it looks like t- in total he's losing 29 million chromes. And it's interesting how he couldn't explain that it came from legal activities. Now, couldn't he just say he beat opponents fair and square? He's a pro poker player, he's good, and he's a cheater? Like he, You can have both. You could have it to where you cheated some people and also won money legitimately. But I think maybe the problem was that uh, he didn't want that delved into or it would have shown even more cheating. Because they only had proof that he had cheated uh, about 144000 U.S. dollars of the uh, more than $4 million they seized from him. But then they're like, okay, well, show us you won the rest of legitimately. He's like, ah, uh, uh, yeah, I can't. So he may be afraid if he attempts to prove this. And this is just my guess. But he may be afraid that if he attempts to... Uh, show them where he won it, that they'll uncover even more victims and they'll get even a longer sentence. So that he's just pretty much giving up the money. He's not admitting he cheated other people, but he's also not claiming that this money he has that he won not from cheating. So it's very possible that Peter Jepson was never even a winning player when he wasn't cheating. Or maybe at least not at high stakes. So it's possible that all of his winning, or most of his winning lifetime, was from uh, these cheating tools. So that is pretty bad. That is pretty bad. And we've ta- as I said, we've talked about him before on the show. And uh, he's getting uh, one of the rare sentences for poker cheating. How often do you see people sentenced for poker cheating? Like in the U.S., you never see it. So I'm thrilled that someone is finally getting their comeuppance for things like this. That a poker cheater... Not only got his money confiscated, but that he actually got a, like a, a two and a half year prison sentence. I, I like how he tried to appeal the two year sentence and gets a two and a half year sentence. <laughs> That's funny too. I'm, I'm glad about that too. The guy did not want to accept what he did and deal with the consequences of what he did and tried to appeal and it just got worse for him. So great. I wish this happened more in the U.S. Good job. Originally, it was said that uh, Robert Flink, also known as uh, Gilkinez, was also a cheater and had worked with Zup. But uh, I've been reading on 2 Plus 2 that uh, it was really just Zup, that uh, Robert Flink wasn't guilty, that uh, that was – it was pretty much all Zup doing it and – Gilkinist was just his friend who didn't have involvement. That's what that's what I'm hearing. I don't see any proof of that, but that's what I've been hearing. But originally, it was reported that both of them were doing it. Victor Blom was reportedly one of the big victims. Victor Blom accused Jepson of cheating in an article on HighStakesDB.com. And uh, he felt that he was not really playing Jepson and lost a lot of money to someone else on the account. And that uh, it occurred on a bet365.com. Uh, at the time, what happened was that uh, this uh, Robert Flink was saying that uh, it, it appeared simply that uh, it was this Robert Flink playing on the account against uh, Blom on Jepson's account. But then it turned out a lot more than this. It turned out that it was... Uh, it wasn't just uh, multi-accounting. There was actual cheating involved with looking at whole cards. 
I have to imagine this occurred to a lot of people, and there's a number of people who have accused him of having cheated them. So that's a pretty disturbing story, but with a happy ending. Kind of happy ending. Okay, so let's move on to talk about something else, but not really uh, in Europe. I was going to say it's in Europe, but it's it's a company that's not based in the U.S., and it's a company that serves Europe, but this is actually about the U.S. This is about Poker Stars. Poker Stars had a fairly large judgment against them, even, in fact, more than fairly large, a very large judgment against them. And this goes back many years. And it was assumed that this was over, that this was a matter that was closed, that this was not something that was going to be an issue again. But it has come back up. The state of Kentucky sued Poker Stars for basically allowing people to play on the site up through Black Friday on April 15th, 2011. That's when it ended. But they're saying that between 2006, October 2006, when it was explicitly made illegal, through April 2011, that four-and-a-half-year period, that Poker Stars was still offering real money games to residents of Kentucky, that they were violating the UIGEA, the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, and that Kentucky, under state law, was suing them for damages. And they got a judgment for $870 million. And this is not recent. This was a long time ago. This is back in uh, 2015. A trial court ruled that they would win $870 million for uh, that violation just in the state of Kentucky that the current parent company of Poker Stars, known as Flutter Entertainment, was on the hook for this. But in 2018, the Court of Appeals in Kentucky reversed the decision. They called the decision an absurd, unjust result, and that seemed to be that. So Flutter Entertainment was off the hook. Even though this was done by the previous regime, the uh, Isai Scheinberg regime, the current company, the current owner of Poker Stars, was responsible for it. And Poker Stars lost, but then three years later won the appeal, and that seemed to be it. So for two years, it seemed like the matter was closed, that it looked like Poker Stars was not going to have to pay Kentucky after all, which is very significant because it's $870 million. Well, not only are they going to owe the $870 million, it looks like, but uh, they may actually owe more because thanks to the interest on the whole thing, which accumulates uh, pretty rapidly, they're going to owe... $100 billion! Well, more than $1 billion, they're going to owe uh, $1.3 billion because of the interest that have been, that's been accumulating since 2015. Now, how did they get that much? How, how, how is it possible that $870 million was won? Because, uh, like, what does that mean? Do they, are they trying to say that in that period of time, in that four-and-a-half-year period, that $870 million from Kentucky residents only was lost on PokerStars? It would not seem likely. That's an insane sum of money, even though PokerStars was a very big site. Still, Kentucky is not that populous of a state, and did they really have $870 million of losses? No, not even close to that. The total amount of rake that was collected on Poker Stars from Kentucky players during that time period was only $18 million. That's about uh, 50 
times less than the judgment was of $870 million. So where does the rest come from? Well, the state has an antiquated law called the Lost Recovery Act. The Lost Recovery Act allows the state to collect all losses from players that, that lost the money in an illegal gambling operation in the state. And it allows the state to collect all that money back. So that still begs the question, where did all that come from? Is it really possible that $870 million was lost on PokerStars? Well, no. Kentucky residents did not cumulatively lose $870 million to PokerStars. So then how can they get $870 million? Well, believe it or not, it was allowed by the trial court for only losses to be added up and wins were not added to offset the losses. <laughs> now, you may say that sounds fair. You may say, well, look, some players won, but still other players lost, and we need to just focus on those who lost. So if we add up all the losers together, if it's $870 million, then fine. No, that's not what happened. All the people losing on PokerStars, if you take out all the winning players from Kentucky and only add up the losers, it does not add up to anywhere near $870 million. The way they got it was that each player was not able to offset their own losses with wins when calculating this. So if you were a very active player there, in fact, if you're a winning player there, you would be judged a loser for the purpose of calculating this number. If I lived in Kentucky, I would have been considered a loser on PokerStars, even though I won a lot of money there. Because every pot I lost, that would add the money. But every pot I won, that did not subtract from the losses. So it's impossible to play on PokerStars without ever losing a pot, unless you play like one hand. But if you play even a short time on there, you're going to lose pots. In fact, even if you fold the big blind, you lose a pot. If you fold the small blind, you lose a pot. If you limp in and then check fold the flop, you lose a pot. You're not losing that much, but you're losing each time. And if every hand you win doesn't count, then every single player either breaks even or is a loser. And in fact, every single player will be a loser unless they played almost no hands. Unless they won or broke even on every hand they played, you're going to be judged a loser on there, which is an absurd way to calculate it. It should be net losses. If they're going to use this stupid statute, they should at least calculate the overall loss that each player took on PokerStars between 2006 and 2011. At least there, you would be getting an accurate picture of people who lost. Now, I would think that if you're going to do this, that uh, at the very least, they should also subtract what others won. But if you want to say, okay, we want to add up all the harm that people took here and not count those who benefited, then at least take the net loss. Don't take winners and call them losers or people who broke even or near broke even but played very actively and call them huge losers because you're going to lose a lot of pots over time even if you are a very big winning player. There is no poker player alive who has not lost a lot of money if they've played a lot of poker. Every single poker player, if you only added up their losses, if they were active players, would have a huge number. Not just on poker stars, everywhere. So that's how they got $870 million. So it's an absurd number, and that's why the Court of Appeals said, uh-uh, we don't know what you're doing here, but no, that's, that's not the way we're doing this. Also, it should be noted that Poker Stars is a raked game. It's not player versus the house. So 
the spirit of this law was to make it to where organizations running illegal gambling operations were not free rolling to where uh, they don't get to do it till caught and then get some slap on the wrist and get to keep the money. This basically makes them responsible for every dollar lost to them. That, that was the attempt of this antiquated law. But it was never intended that people who didn't really lose or people who barely lost anything would be miscalculated into being big losers and then this organization running it is on the hook for that. If you want to make criminal penalties for running illegal gambling operations, that's fine. If you want to have a reasonable fine for them, that makes sense. But not to where uh, you're calculating totally phony losses for the purpose of this Loss Recovery Act. There's a huge difference anyway with people losing to other players versus losing to the house. So really the fair number to calculate here is the amount of rake that was collected. Because really, again, the whole point of the law is to prevent illegal gambling operators from walking away with the profit. But this way, they only the profit was really the rake. So I think the most fair way is just to take the rake back from them. But if you want to say that's too free-roll-like and you want to punish them more, at least do something like you're adding losses but offsetting wins. I mean, this is crazy that it's just the losses with no wins. Anyway, somehow this got put back on the table. Somehow it got reversed. So Poker Stars, of course, challenged the amount of the uh, judgment at the $870 million. But their objection was uh, not so much about the amount. It was actually about the whole thing. They were claiming that the loss recovery statute was intended for use by uh, individuals to recoup personal losses from, indivi- from illegal gambling. So this way, if, if an illegal casino won your money, uh, you could get back the money from them later by uh, reporting them as, as an illegal operation. And once it's proven to be an illegal operation, then they owe you the money back. There's no such thing as uh, uh, an illegal gambling operation gets to keep your money. That poker star is saying that was the point of this law not for the state to just collect it back. And so PokerStars is saying that Kentucky didn't lose any money to PokerStars. And Kentucky was not attempting to collect money on behalf of PokerStars, on behalf of the players who lost on PokerStars, that they were just looking to take it for the state. And they're again saying this is not the spirit of the law, which I agree. So in 2015, PokerStars asked that the trial court dismiss it for lack of standing. But uh, it was not dismissed, and they, uh, and then the appeal ended up uh, being successful, stating that, uh, first of all, since the state was not a person, as intended in the statute, that it could not bring the claim, and second, that even if this was brought on by a person, that they would uh, need to specifically identify what they lost. However, the Supreme Court overruled the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court, which just uh, this ruling just happened earlier in December, they ruled that the Commonwealth is a person. They said legal policy in Kentucky is that the court must assume that the legislator meant what it said and said what it meant. So if the language of the law is plain, the court cannot simply add its own interpretation. And since it doesn't specify what it means by a person, that 
Kentucky's general definitional statutes, statutes state that the word person may extend to political entities unless it actually states otherwise. So therefore, the Supreme Court said that uh, because the Loss Recovery Act says that any person uh, can collect this money back, that lawmakers intended that it was broad and it could mean people or the government. Also, the Supreme Court said that Poker Stars is still a winner in the games, even if it, it doesn't participate, because the is Poker Stars collects rake. And the Supreme Court pointed out that there's a precedent dating all the way back to 1890 that the house counts as a winner in a game of chance if it collects a percentage, like a rake, even if it is not banking the game. And here's the most outrageous part. The Supreme Court there of Kentucky claimed that damages were calculated appropriately, which is not true, but that's how they feel. The Supreme Court said that the language of the Loss Recovery Act makes it clear that this is the way you calculate it. They said the law says nothing about profits held by the winner, only that the loser may sue to, quote, treble the value of money of thing or, or thing lost. Yeah, but they didn't lose. If, if poker is a game of one pots and lost pots, as most pretty much every gambling game is, every gambling game is you win some, some hands, you lose some hands, and it adds up. Slot machines are like that. Uh, blackjack's like that. Roulette's like that. Poker's like that. I think pretty much every, except maybe sports betting is the exception, but even there you bet on multiple contests. But really, aside from sports betting, pretty much everything in gambling is a series of bets where it adds up to either a win or a loss. So this doesn't make very much sense at all because it really does seem like they're talking about collecting back the value of the money or thing lost. Well, But you didn't lose if you're there in the same session. It's the amount you walk out with that you have less than you did when you walked in is what you've lost. So I don't know what the Supreme Court was thinking there. And they also said, well, these losses came from PokerStars' own records. Well, yeah, if you want to calculate it that way, they're not questioning that the records are inaccurate. (laughs) They're saying that this is a dumb way to calculate it. The court also rejected PokerStars' argument that the players winning should upset their losses. And they said that... uh, that the house collecting a percentage was deemed liable for players' gross losses. The Supreme Court didn't understand. They either didn't understand or they're just being stubborn. It's a dumb thing. That was never the spirit of the law. And it looks like the letter of the law doesn't say that. It's not like the letter of the law says that each individual hand of whatever's being played, if a loss is taken, then the illegal gaming operator owes that back to the person losing it, even if the person is winning other hands in between. It doesn't say that. If it says losses, then a broad interpretation of losses, I would think, would be money actually lost. The total money each person lost. You you can't make up what would constitute losses if it's not a real loss. I would think losses is pretty clear. Losses means you lost. It means the amount that you don't have anymore that you had before. So now where does this go? Because this is an absurd ruling by the Supreme Court in Kentucky, but what can poker stars do? Because there's no Supreme Supreme Court, there's no Ultra Supreme Court. So even though poker stars said the fight is not over, they announced to their investors that this has occurred, but that a number number of legal processes remain available, but they did not say 
which processes these were, they also acknowledge that they're probably going to lose something. They're probably going to have to cough up something, but they expect that the final amount will be smaller. They were not clear about how they're going to manage that. This is by far the biggest gambling fine ever. The UK Gambling Commission once levied a fine of uh, 13 million pounds, which is about uh, $17.6 million. But there was also a fine of a non-gambling company when uh, BP was fined for the oil spill of 2010, uh, $21.8 billion. So it's not anywhere near $21.8 billion, but as far as a, a gambling company, there's never been a fine like that before. You may ask, is it possible that this is going to bankrupt poker stars or their parent company, Flutter Entertainment? The answer is probably not. Their 2019 revenue was $2.9 billion. So it looks like they'll be able to weather this, but that's still going to be a huge chunk of their revenue. So who knows uh, what is going to happen from this point? I don't even know what... uh, legal processes they're talking about as far as getting the number reduced. This was ruled on by the Supreme Court. I don't know if they can even appeal the Supreme Court decision. They also could possibly negotiate. They could just negotiate with Kentucky and say, this is too much. We're just we're not giving you $1.2 billion, but if you want to reduce this to something reasonable, we'll pay it. Otherwise, you have to come after us and try to collect it. I, I don't know what they're going to do. But that's the ruling. It's an insane ruling. And here's the problem, okay? Here's a problem with this and many other areas of uh, gambling regulation and also gambling law and also gambling court cases. There tends to be a very poor understanding of gambling, of poker, and the issues within by the lawmakers and by the courts. And this can result in some absurd decisions. This can result in people and entities getting out of liability when they should not. And it can result in entities being much more liable than they should be. It also results in very immature law, which does not keep up with the times, as we've seen with a lot of things with poker. Look at the various cheating scandals over the years, how... There just simply is not mature enough law to result in a just ruling, to result in a fair resolution in either criminal or civil gambling-related cases. There's a lot of examples of this. Law has not kept up well with gambling. And it shouldn't be that hard. But somehow it's it's just rarely is there good law, at least in the U.S., in relation to gambling. And there's just not a lot of priority to get this done. And you know whose last priority is the gambling consumer. Maybe at the state level, there is some protection of gambling consumers in very mature markets like uh, Nevada. But like even in California, the consumer protections are terrible and the gaming commission just doesn't care much. And without getting into uh, much detail, because I'm still uh, a subject of a court case at the moment, but uh, look, look at everything that's happened with Mike Postle from a legal standpoint. I'm not talking about, talking about my case specifically, but before my case, the civil case that was against him, 
the investigation into Stones, that the Gaming Commission did. Like, look at all the stuff that happened in relation to that case and all the missteps and uh, immature law that existed there. But that's just one of many examples. Look at the situation going on with the card rooms where where there's these uh, player-banked games where it's supposed to be something where the players have an opportunity to bank and then instead these, quote, corporations bank the games, which often are affiliated with or are giving kickbacks to the casino in order to bank them. And if a player tries to bank, they get banned. Like, uh, it doesn't happen everywhere, but it, it's, it's been happening in some major California card rooms. And people complain, and the gaming commission does nothing. There's a lot of crap that goes on where there's no legal consequence or the legal consequence is incorrect. And I don't just say incorrect in my opinion. I mean just very clearly incorrect. And it's very sad. It's very sad how law has not really kept up with the changing times in gambling at all and how the law in gambling is immature and how there's a lot of lack of understanding of gambling. In fact, sometimes even gaming commissions don't understand certain forms of gambling well, which is why the regulation of online poker in Nevada has been poor. It looks like the Nevada Gaming Commission does not understand poker well. John Mahaffey, who is a gambling and poker journalist in Las Vegas, he has attempted many times to assist the Nevada Gaming Commission to allow them to understand poker better, and they just they said no. <laughs> they didn't want to hear from him. He was he was offering to help. He was offering to send them in the right direction. He was offering to educate them. They didn't they didn't want it. They had no desire. No, 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 we're good. We know. We understand it. He's like, uh, no, you don't. No, 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 we do. We do. We don't want to hear from you. It's crazy. Like, how could the Nevada Gaming Commission, which is mainly based out of Las Vegas, how could they not find poker players to consult with to understand online poker better. But they don't. They don't understand it. They have a lot of really stupid laws that don't that just create a lot of burden for the operators like WSP.com, which end up uh, just making the whole thing more cumbersome and more expensive for them to comply with. And then they also do a very poor job protecting consumers. It looks like the only thing they are good at protecting is that the operators have to pay you. That they don't, they can't just run off with the money. Aside from that, uh, the regulation has been very poor. It's been very disappointing. It doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be, but it is. It has been. So it's very sad. And that's another form of all this. It's all along the same lines. Okay, let's move on and talk about Nananoko. You probably haven't thought of him in a while. Randy Liu, L E W, big winning player on poker stars in the 2000s and he was known for the insane multi-tabling this guy would play 24 tables at once this guy was like a machine so not only did he win a lot of money he would spend all day and all night playing and he would show videos of himself playing like 24 tables you go how the hell can this guy do this it was pretty amazing so people watched him and they're like who is this nano noko how is he so good how can he do this? How can he concentrate on all these tables at once? But he became known as a super prolific online player, one of the original uh, Supernova elites. Guy just accumulated FPPs on PokerStars like it was nothing. 
But you probably haven't thought of him in a while. He was kind of a figure of 2000s and early 2010s poker. But beyond that, uh, not someone that you've thought of uh, presently, most likely. But he has come back into the news, and it has to do with America's card room. Now, before I get to that, if you take a look at uh, Nananoko's live tournament results, he has some, but he, he doesn't have the tournament results you'd expect for someone who had the type of online results he did. He has $1.6 million in caches. It's better than me. I have a little less than a million in caches. But you also don't think of me as like a major tournament player, I bet, because I'm not. And yet he's only uh, you know, 600,000 ahead of me. He has uh, had some success in, in some Korean high rollers and other things in Asia. For the most part, he was never like that big of, into the tournament scene. And when he did play, he he would cash, but he never really broke through. Like, for example, look at his World Series. In, uh, in 2014, he cashed once for four figures in the Millionaire Maker. In 2013, he cashed five times, and one of them was, was an eighth place in, uh, in the 10K uh, No Limit Heads Up. But uh, everything else was kind of like a four-figure cash, you know, kind of close to a mid-cash. Then uh, in 2012, he cashed uh, five times in the World Series, but again, uh, he had some deep runs, but never more than 37,000. Now, these aren't bad results. It's, uh, he, he definitely has been uh, managing to cash in those years, but he doesn't have any World Series result, results since then for reasons unknown. That's what's kind of strange, is that he has no caches at the World Series in uh, 2015, in 2016, in 2000. Uh, 17, he finally cashed in the uh, main event for 53K. But then nothing in 18 and only uh, one circuit cash in 2019 and one cash in the Big 50, the same one I cashed in in, uh, 2019. But he was like 2,694th place. So the funny thing is it looks like he has been showing up to the World Series. He just isn't really breaking through in the last several years. And even when he was doing better in like 12 and 13, he never had a cash like uh, above 50,000. So he was never like a, a huge uh, tournament winner. He, he kind of added up with, like, by playing some high rollers and things like that, to, some of which were probably bought in for him by Poker Stars when he was a sponsored player there. But it looks like that as far as U.S. tournament play, he just hasn't really broken through. So that's why you haven't thought of him much lately. And in fact, I would venture to guess that in the last several years, he's lost a lot of money at the World Series in the tournaments. I think he's entered a lot. Of, this is my guess. I haven't. You can't see what he enters, but from what I can tell of his patterns, it kind of looks like that he probably enters a number of events, including the main event every year, and then just doesn't go anywhere. So why? I don't know. Maybe he's just running bad. That can happen. He has enough tournament results to where he's not a fish in tournaments, but... Uh, it seems to really have his strength is the multi-tabling online thing. And some people, they get out of that comfort zone where they're really good and they, they aren't anything special anymore. It's not that he's bad, it's just uh, nothing special anymore. I will say, he was a well-known figure in online poker as a big winner and a massive multi-tabler. So I'm not going to take that away from him. It's very impressive what he accomplished with that and he won a lot of money. So what does this have to do with today? Well, strangely enough, he has been hired by America's Card Room 
and he is now the a, a, a security consultant and gameplay expert at America's Card Room. So what is this about? This is on americascardroom.eu. I will read the press release from December 22nd. Randy Nananoko Lu hired a security consultant and gameplay expert. We're smack dab in the holiday season, which might mean that you're not fully abreast of everything going on in America's card room right now. You probably did hear the huge news that our biggest tournament ever, blah, 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 I won't read that. But one item that recently happened could have flown under your radar. We have hired Randy Nananoko Lu as security consultant and gameplay expert. Now you might be asking yourself, why is the hiring of a security consultant news? After all, America's card room has lots of them, which help give our site the well-deserved reputation of the utmost safety. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what they're known for. You're not known for bots running rampant there. You're not known for, like, long investigations by Chicago Joey about how you guys weren't doing anything about those bots for a long time or other embarrassing issues surrounding bots and bot rings. Nope. You're known for a reputation of the utmost safety. By the way, the rope upmost, not even utmost. <laughs> I said utmost for them. I correct. I actually read it correctly. I read it for what it should have been, but I didn't read it correctly. If I read it correctly, it was an upmost and sounded like an idiot. The reason is that Lou is one of the world's most well-known poker players and Twitch streamers. He has over one point six million dollars in live tournament earnings, which I still think might be a loss overall. I think he probably lost overall in tournaments. And including a four, 484K first place finish in the 2011 Asian Pacific Poker Tour in Macau. He's also known as one of the masters of multi-tabling online, playing up to 24 tables at once. Lou's duties here will include working with our security team on suspected fraud, collusion, and bot activity. He will also review hand histories when the security team is forced to do an investigation and give us his expert opinion. Okay, now this is good. This is good. Now, he's not known as like the big uh, anti-fraud guy. He's not known to be calling out sites for security issues. In fact, he's just very quiet. He's a guy who doesn't make waves. He just opens up a million tables and plays and says nothing. So I don't know if he's really a good person to hire. It's not like they said, uh, we're, we're hiring longtime critic Joey Ingram, who's been very uh, passionate about eliminating bots from our system. Now he's working for us, and he's going to help us eliminate them. I would say that's an exciting announcement if they were to announce that Joey Ingram was hired. But – they're announcing a guy who is always known to be passive and not not in his poker play, but in his personality, a passive, quiet guy who's never been an activist to stop this stuff, which that doesn't mean he's incompetent. It just means that I don't know if we can count on him to really uh, have the zeal to do this job. Now, if they bring something to him and say, hey, Randy, you're very knowledgeable in poker. You're a very smart guy. Uh, would you like to analyze this for us and tell us if you think this is collusion or not, yeah, he could do it for sure. Or maybe they'll even task him to look into complaints and then tell them what he thinks. And there I'm sure he'll be very competent. But it doesn't quite fit with what he has been known for in poker. But anyway, going on. You may be wondering where and when you can see Lou at the American card room tables. However, even though he's an American, he now lives in Australia, which is not a market we operate in. Fortunately, he will be on hand to meet and greet players at major live poker events, including our own Cage Live in Costa Rica. 
The event is expected back sometime in 2021 after being postponed due to COVID. Okay, see, see, this is I, I don't like that part. I don't want him being a superstar that you're tra- you're you're flying him around the world to meet people. It's not that it's terrible. Like if you think back to poker stars when Isai was the owner and Lee Jones would go to all these events and you'd get to meet him and okay, but but still. I thought he was supposed to be the, the security guy. Why, why are you trotting him out to Costa Rica to meet and greet people? I thought he's just like this dude in the background who's going to keep the site safe. I'm not saying he can't meet and greet people, but this is starting to look like more like a, a, a sponsored pro who just can't play on the site than anything else. And it also makes me wonder, maybe he's not really doing much. Maybe they're just paying him to occasionally consult, and then they give him some kind of impressive title, and that's that. Now, if he were there working full-time every day to analyze cheating complaints, that would be a different story. But I don't think he wants to do this. I have to imagine Nananoko probably has enough money to where he does not want to take some sort of mundane job of looking into every cheating allegation every day. Because let me tell you about looking into cheating allegations on poker sites. You may think that's an exciting job and it might be a fun job. Not really. It could be a fun job in a major high-profile case where you think there is likely cheating going on and you can prove it and you can use your smarts and knowledge about poker and common sense to put together a strong case against cheaters. So not only do you determine if they were cheating, but you actually have the goods against them to present to them or even in court if necessary uh, to prove that these people were really cheating. That could be an interesting job, but the thing is, most of the time you get cheating complaints, it's from people who just aren't good at poker, or who are unlucky, or usually both, who just insist they were cheated in some way. In fact, I get messages from people sometimes who somehow believe that I have some kind of authority over poker sites, and I will get complaints about this site is rigged, that site is rigged, can I do something about it? And they're not asking me for advice. They actually think that I am someone who can compel the sites, almost like a, I'm the better business bureau of uh, poker sites, but that, but even more than that, like I really have some sort of authority to make them re- refund their money because they were cheated. And they don't provide any kind of real evidence they were cheated. Uh, what What they do is they just insist they know they were cheated and that somehow... I have to make these sites pay up. And I usually don't even respond to these because what can you say? If I say to this person, you're insane, they're just going to get mad and flip out. So I, I don't want to get into it. If I get if I get an email about cheating, sometimes I'll ask, can you be more specific? And if I see it's just, oh, the site is rigged, I, I just don't even continue because you have to come with more than just a, a belief the site is rigged. You have to come with evidence that the site is rigged. And it's very hard to come by that if it's, even if it's true. So you might be right it's rigged, but you're probably not right. And if you are right, you have to be able to show me you're right. You can't just say it's rigged because rigged or not, that's not going to mean anything. You're just saying it. So that's mainly what their security department gets. BS rigging allegations, BS cheating allegations against players who are beating them, BS hacking allegations against players who are getting lucky against them, They get this all day and all night. So this is not a pleasant thing to deal with. And the question is, have they tasked Randy Liu to be one of those answering these complaints? Or are they only consulting him in complex situations to where they think they might need some help or might need the word of somebody who is respected in the community to come up with their own conclusion and then present that to the public? So this way, 
uh, if they're trying to say there was no cheating and others are saying there is, then they can have uh, Nananoko look into it. And if he says, says there is not, then maybe people will give them credit. It's also possible they're going to pressure him into saying that things are better than they are, like uh, saying that there's not as many bots as are being, that are being uh, accused of being there. Who knows? This could just be his presence in general is meant to make it look like they're taking security seriously when they're really not taking it as secure, as seriously as they portray that they are. So just the fact that he's there makes people feel better. In fact, think if I were hired as a security consultant for one of these sites. You'd probably feel somewhat better. You'd probably feel, okay, Dandruff's not going to lie to us. He's not going to be a shill. He's going to be honest about uh, whether there's cheating on the site or not. We can probably come to him with concerns. Like this, this would probably put your mind at ease somewhat if you knew that I was in charge at a management level in a poker site. I would at least hope you would think that way because I would want someone like me in charge of a poker site. Like there's others who could do the job very well. There's others who I would trust very much and I'd be happy to see them being hired. There's others that I would not be happy to see hired in such a position because I would think that they would say whatever the company asked them to say if they get paid enough. I know of some people that will say whatever they're asked to say, even if they don't get paid very much. For any money, they'll say whatever you want them to say. So that's the type of person who would be bad to have hired as a security consultant because it would just create confusion because you'd have someone who is a big name in poker claiming that everything's okay when in reality they're just saying what they're being told to say. In fact, that was a criticism of Daniel Negreanu during his time at Poker Stars when it was Amaya owned that Amaya was doing things that uh, was unethical, not cheating, but doing some unethical things like the Supernova Elite scandal, and Daniel Negreanu was basically validating it and saying it was okay. And that was pissing people off. That was the first, that was the beginning of Negreanu's reputation starting to decline when people saw him as a shill who was just saying whatever Amaya wanted him to say and everyone knew he was getting a lot of money for it. So that's the type of thing you don't want at poker sites where you have a well-known or well-liked name in poker acting somewhat as a shill. I don't know if Randy Lou is going to be a shell. I don't know how much serious security work he's going to do, but I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that he's just picking up a paycheck to do very little work, and they just want the image of Nananoko being their security guy. You look at him and go, oh, wow, the, that really smart Asian guy who plays a lot of tables is going to help with ACR security. Okay, I feel secure now. I can totally see it. And if you don't think about it too much... It can appear like, yeah, that's great. I feel great now. I feel secure. But it may just be an illusion of security. He may just be a figurehead. Especially, again, because most of the work is not very glamorous, and I don't think he's going to be doing that grunt work. They don't even say he's doing the grunt work. They say, lose duties here will include working with our security team on suspected fraud, collusion, and bot activity. He will review hand histories when the security team is forced to do an investigation and give us his expert opinion. That's left open to interpretation. What do, they, what do they mean forced to do an investigation? Nothing's forcing them. They'll, they'll, they do an investigation when they want to. But even if, even if this is worded poorly and they're trying to say that he will review hand histories when we are doing an investigation, is he going to do it every time? Is he going to do it some of the time? He's only going to do it the, the high-profile ones? 
Is he going to barely do it at all and we just think he is? So they look good? Who knows? But I had someone ask me earlier this week, someone asked me privately in a text message, if I thought that his addition to the team is going to mean anything. And I said, no, it's just for show. And they said, yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) So maybe I'm wrong, but that's what it appears to me. I got a question, by the way, from Desert Runner asking, can you use the fast new gaming PC to run the PFA radio show? I could, but it's not in the place I would want it to be. It's in a place that would uh, make too much noise and wake up Benjamin. That's why I can't. I also, I haven't checked if the sound card has stereo mix. It very well might not. I didn't even bother looking into that because that wasn't the purpose of that machine. The truth is my laptop, that uh, the new laptop I have, once I get a sound card with stereo mix, a, an external sound card, then that'll work just fine. You don't need a super powerful computer to do radio. In fact, uh, very old computers could do radio. If they can boot up and run and have stereo mix, they can do radio. That is the truth. It's kind of the opposite of gaming. It does not need much power. Okay, I want to give a warning to everybody. I want to warn you of something. There's a warning that's not going to matter anymore in five days. It's now the 27th, currently at uh, 1.43 a.m. But I want to give you a warning, and it's a warning you must heed. Yes, this is your warning. Your Caesars reward credits are going to expire in five days. Yes, your Caesars reward credits are going to expire in five days. They're going to get stolen from you. And you can't call the police. Even if you hear the police, you can't call them. Caesars disabled their expiration of reward credits throughout 2020 because of the coronavirus. First, they were closed for some months. Then when they reopened in early June, they decided they're not going to make your reward credits expire for a while. They want to give everyone a chance to get back there and earn reward credits in order to prevent the expiration. Their standard policy is that if you do not earn a reward credit, at least one reward credit in a period of six months, then every reward credit you have, regardless of when they were earned, will expire. So if a day arrives and you've earned zero reward credits in the last six months, then your reward credit balance drops all the way down to... Zero point zero. So they kept delaying it, but they decided enough was enough, and that even if it's hard for you to come to Vegas because you don't want to fly right now, with COVID being as bad as it is, which makes sense, that tough luck on you, you are going to lose your reward credits. And on December 31st, your reward credits are going to expire. I don't know if it's going to be actually on the 31st or when the 31st is over, but definitely by January 1st, 2021, which is now in five days, you will have no more reward credits unless you have earned at least one reward credit since July 1st. So if you haven't been to Caesars and have not been earning reward credits since July 1st, you're going to have zero no matter how many you had before that. But there is still time to act. The good news is no time in 2020, except maybe the first month, but no time since the COVID uh, became an issue here in early 2020, have your reward credits been expiring. 
even if they otherwise would have, they delayed expiration until December 31st. First they did it to September 30th, then they expanded it to December 31st, and now they're not budging, which is crappy. MGM, with the same decision to make about uh, their version of reward credits called uh, uh, Express Comps, they are not, their points are not expiring until March 31st. So it's crappy that MGM is uh, letting you keep your points through March 31st. It's not crappy they're doing it. It's crappy that Caesars is not doing the same thing. They, they're they not extending another 90 days. The right thing to do here would be to keep extending the expiration until everything's back to normal. But they're not doing it. And I think the reason they're not doing it is because they want people to come back. They don't want people to have a reason to stay home. They want people to feel pressured to come back. Plus, they like taking rewards credits because then you can't comp yourself. The whole thing with rewards credits is that you bank them and then you can use them as needed. You don't have to count on a host to comp you. You don't have to count on your own play to justify your comps. You can just use your reward credits whenever you want. So they're trying to take your rewards credits and they know most people have not been coming to Vegas in 2020 and if you have not come to Vegas in 2020, then your reward credits will all be gone on December 1st unless they make an 11th hour decision not to do so. So how can you prevent this? You obviously can't uh, book a last-minute trip to Vegas at this point, or you probably wouldn't want to unless you're really close by. And maybe that wouldn't be worth it to you to do anyway. Maybe you don't have enough reward credits to where a trip just to preserve them would be worth it. So what can you possibly do about that situation? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are other ways to earn reward credits. Remember, you just need one. You don't need to earn a lot. You just need one reward credit earned before the end of the year. There's ways you can earn reward credits without ever having to set foot in a casino. I'll tell you where to find a list of these, and I'll quickly go over what they are. So first of all, if you have the total rewards credit card, that's the easiest. Just go spend $5 on it. Don't spend $1 because what happens is some merchants, it costs them more than a dollar to run your credit card or cost them close to that. So some merchants will choose not to run your credit card if you're only charging a dollar. So sometimes if you pay a dollar with your credit card on something, they just won't run it and you'll never end up seeing it on your credit card, which I guess in a way is nice. You get a free dollar, but uh, here you want it to run on your credit card because every dollar you spend earns you an RC. And that counts towards resetting the clock to where you end up with uh, six more months of your RCs not expiring. So if you have the total rewards credit card, it's too late to get it now before the end of the year if you don't have it. But if you have it, then just go spend $5 on anything. And that will definitely save your rewards credits. But if you don't have the card, what do you do? Well, there's options here that they give. And these aren't the best value, but you don't need them to be because you can easily uh, get RCs another way for a relatively uh, low sum of money. Now, if you only have like $10 of RCs to preserve, then this isn't going to help you. But if, if you have you know, a few hundred or even $100 worth of RCs, you may want to do this. If you go to uh, Caesars.com slash MyRewards slash Earn dash and dash Redeem, at Caesars.com slash MyRewards, all one word, is all lowercase, slash earn dash and dash redeem. 
or you just go to VegasCasinoTalk.com and go to the casinos in Las Vegas, or go to the Total Rewards and M Life section, and you'll see the post I made about it there. You can click on that uh, link in there to go to the same page if you don't want to remember this. So if you go to this page, it's called Earn and Redeem with Caesars Rewards. It will list various ways that you can earn rewards credits. Now, if you scroll down to what it says partners, that's what you want to focus on. Because partners is a way you could earn rewards credits without having to actually uh, be at a Caesars property. So there's something called Caesars Rewards Dining. That's something you can do. You can sign up for that. And then basically, if you uh, use your uh, credit card at one of these uh, restaurants, and there's locations everywhere. It doesn't have to be at a Caesars property. It's, it can be anywhere in the country. They claim more than 11,000 restaurants are participating. So basically, you register your credit card. It doesn't have to be a total rewards credit card, any credit card. Link it to your total rewards account, and then when you use it at uh, one of these restaurants, even for a very small purchase like $5, then it will generate points for you. And again, that will give you another six months. Now, the only possible problem with this is if you're not a member of this yet, of this rewards dining, the whole process, by the time it all gets together, it, the, po- the points may not post until after January 1st, even if you spend the money in December. But you can probably contact Total Rewards at that point and have them correct it. So that's one thing you can do. They also have Caesars Rewards live events. That's not going to help you very much right now because there's not many live events right now for obvious reasons, but that's another way. There's also, uh, you can uh, you can get an app that uh, allows you to earn RCs through uh, this little uh, free play Caesars app. It's, meant, it's really meant to get people addicted to gambling so then they come and do the real thing in Vegas and lose. In fact, there's... Some pretty uh, shady stuff they're doing through that app where you do way better playing on that app than you would in real life. So you get the belief like you're going to come to Vegas and win like you do on the app, and then you come to Vegas and lose. So there's some real psychological tricks being pulled there that I think are pretty unethical. But putting that aside, you can get this app and you can earn RCs that way as long as you earn at least one RC before the end of the year. Then again, that gives you another six months. Then surveys. I know surveys suck, but this is probably one of the ways you can do it pretty reliably without having to go anywhere or buy anything. You can uh, do certain surveys that they will give you a limited number of reward credits for completing. And even earning one will accomplish what you've done here, what you need to do here. So there's surveys you can do through total rewards that will pay you RCs. You can also do home shopping, kind of like a home shopping club sort of thing, except it's uh, called the Caesar Rewards Marketplace, where you can uh, earn rewards credits by buying uh, items from uh, retailers that are partners with them. If you have Wyndham Rewards points, you can transfer your Wyndham points over to Caesars, and that counts as earning RCs. Then, of course, there's the credit card. And then if you happen to have... Uh, a power company called NRG Home, which I don't even know what state that's in, but if NRG Home is your power company, then you can earn RCs for uh, your electric bill. That probably doesn't apply to most of you. So that's how you can earn RCs without ever setting foot on a Caesars property. 
If you want to learn about any of these, again, go to that URL I gave you, scroll down to where it says Partners, and then just click on Learn More for whichever one sounds good to you, and follow the instructions. Just do it as soon as you can, and do it before the end of the year, and you'll save your RFCs. And again, if this doesn't post in time, if it posts after the first of the year, then you will lose your RFCs, and it may or may not give them back to you once it posts. But if it doesn't, you can always email Caesars through their uh, contact form and ask them to fix it, and they probably will. I know that uh, frequent flyer systems will give you your miles back retroactively if something fails to post in time. So like if your miles expire on American Airlines, and then it turns out that you did something with a partner, like a rental car or whatever, that earned you uh, American Airlines miles, and you, did, you actually did it in time, it just hadn't posted in time, it will actually go back and bring your miles back automatically. In fact, uh, I once saved over 200,000 miles at American Airlines, which is worth like $3,000, by uh, having them fix a transaction that never posted for when I rented a car like a year beforehand. So they went and retroactively put that back in and it automatically restored my miles. But I have a feeling Caesar's system may not do that because Caesar's is incompetent. And American Airlines, at least with their frequent flyer system, is not. <laughs> so don't count on Caesar's to restore your points if they expire, but you can probably get support to do it, provided the transaction really posted before the end of the year. So that, that's my advice to you. Don't let them expire. Unless you, unless you barely have any. If you got 90 rewards credits, you're not going to want to bend over backward to save the 90 cents worth of rewards credits, but they're worth a penny each, so don't let them go. As I said, MGM, you have another three months, and maybe beyond that. Okay, so you've probably seen casinos get blown up over the years, maybe in person, maybe on TV, maybe on the internet, but casinos have been blown up over time when they close and the building is of no more use, and it's when it is uh, easier to blow it up and start fresh than to attempt to renovate an old property. So that's not a big deal that casinos that become old, closed eyesores get blown up. But this is the first time in history that you can actually bid on a casino to be the one to blow it up. Now, it's too bad we don't have Trey on here, because Trey hates Donald Trump, and I think he would like this. Because not only do you get to blow up a casino, you get to blow up Donald Trump's casino. I kid you not. In Atlantic City, there was a casino called Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino. Now, this is not the same as the Taj Mahal, which is now something else. I'm talking about the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino, which has just been sitting there and is not going to uh, be renovated and renamed. It's just simply going to be destroyed. It has been closed for six years, and now it is going to be removed. But Atlantic City is auctioning off the rights to blow it up. On January 29th, it is going to blow up, and someone is going to push the button to make it happen. Now... You don't have to have any kind of demolition experience. You don't have to bring the dynamite. You don't have to hire a company to do it. All you're going to do is kind of the symbolic gesture of come over and uh, press the button to implode the Trump Plaza. So really, someone else is going to get it all set up, and you're just going to hit the button. But they're auctioning it off 
and they are trying to uh, raise as much money as they can for this uh, char- for a charity, uh, the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantic City. So it's not so much for the city to raise money for themselves; it's uh, it's a kind of a gimmick for charity. Nevertheless, if you hate Donald Trump and you want to blow up one of his buildings or one of his former buildings, you can be the one to press the button. The current amount that is bid is $62,500. There have been 14 bids. It is being bid on on uh, liveauctioneers.com. If you Google liveauctioneers.com uh, implode Trump Plaza Atlantic City, you'll see it. So if you think you can outbid this if you want to bid uh, higher than 62500 what, What's interesting is it looks like uh, – oh, I see what you can do. You can only do it in, in uh, $2,500 increments minimum. Maximum could be anything, but uh, you can't bid like 62501 If you want to beat 62500 the next thing you have to go up to is 65 k and they're doing this to prevent people from just going up by a dollar and the thing moving very slowly. They're trying to force it to move up at least 2500 each time someone makes a new bid. So you can start bidding at 65000 but you can make it higher. You can make it 675000 70000 72500 You can scroll down, and the, the biggest bid you can place right now is 350000 which I don't see why you would do if the current bid is sixty-two-five. That's where it stands at the time I'm broadcasting this. Atlantic City, Atlantic City Mayor Marty Small said that it was one of his first priorities to remove the Trump Plaza because it's an eyesore, and he's hoping that once it's blown up, they'll be able to replace it with uh, something else that will be useful. He said, my administration's goal is to tear Trump Plaza down. It's an embarrassment. It's a blight on our skyline. It's the biggest eyesore in town. I also have to imagine maybe he doesn't like Trump very much. When did Trump Plaza open? It opened in 1984. And by the time it closed, 30 years later, it had 906 rooms. But uh, a lot of people have complained ever since it closed, which was uh, now over six years ago, that the building has fallen into disrepair and that debris has actually fallen off of the Trump Plaza because they've basically done nothing to keep it up since it closed. Who is the current owner? Is it Donald Trump? No. It was bought by none other than Carl Icahn, who bought it in 2016 while it was in bankruptcy. Trump owned uh, several casinos at one point, but uh, the former Trump Marina is now the Golden Nugget. The Taj is now Hard Rock. He's been out of the casino market for a while. A lot of buildings that bear his name, by the way, are just renting his name. That was actually something he started doing in his later years prior to being president. He learned that instead of uh, having to invest a lot of money in a business that may or may not succeed, like a casino, that since he's got a famous name at this point, that if he just simply licenses out his name, that it's guaranteed money and he can't lose. So that's what he was doing for a lot of different projects. So a lot of things that are called Trump are not really owned by him. I don't know how much his name is worth now because he's a super polarizing figure at this point, but I'm talking about before he was president. He did claim that he uh, never went bankrupt, but uh, in that uh, in those tax records that the New York Times got last year, 
It did show that he sought bankruptcy protection three times in uh, 91, 06, and 09, and took a $65 million bailout from the state of New Jersey, and also that he sold uh, about a billion dollars of real estate that he inherited from his father to keep his casinos going when they were getting killed. So his casino ventures were not profitable. They, uh, they're pretty much a failure. I have to imagine whoever wins this is going to be someone who doesn't like him. I, I can't imagine a Trump fan is going to want to do this. This is totally what like somebody would do, like a, a rich liberal who just hates Trump so much, that even though he doesn't own it, even though Carl Icahn owns it, just to blow something that's Trump-branded will give them a thrill. Okay, moving on to our next topic. This is actually the fastest we've gone through topics in a long time. The show's been on for about three hours, and looks like we've gone through like nine topics already. We're almost moving at the pace of, of a regular show. A regular show that isn't mine, I'm saying. People say I'm too long-winded and I spend too long on topics. And Many others who like this show say they like the fact that I do that. They like the fact that this moves at a slow pace. But not today. It's still over three hours and we're not done yet. But for me, that's fast and I think this is going to end up a short show. I thought it was going to end up here for a long time because it's all these topics. We're not even close to finish, but we're, we're starting to get closer. We're more than halfway through. Okay, so let's talk about some other states. Let's go to a state we don't talk about much on this show, Nebraska. Nebraska is going to have casino gambling. I hadn't really thought of Nebraska and gambling. I'll admit this. I've been to Nebraska once and only once in my life. Now, we did talk about them recently because they had a ballot measure about casino gambling, which this relates to. But I've been to Nebraska once, and it was only because I was driving between states on a road trip, and Nebraska was a stopping point. So we stopped in Alliance, Nebraska. This was in 2013, and we were on the way to Colorado Springs from South Dakota. So we stopped in this town. It was a small town. It had uh, very little as far as uh, restaurants that you could go to that were even like okay rated. We ended up going to what was the best rated restaurant in town, which is like some pizza place, which was, it was decent. And uh, what was weird in Alliance was that the hotel was like a Holiday Inn Express and it was surprisingly expensive. It was like $170 a night for a Holiday Inn Express. And yeah, it was during the summer, but I was surprised because Alliance is not a tourist destination. There's nothing to see there. There's nothing close to there to see. And yes, you will get passed through people like me. But I couldn't imagine they're getting a lot of people because it wasn't really a well-used route. It's not like it was on the way somewhere. And I've seen a lot of other hotels that are like in a small town on the way between two major tourist destinations where it's still cheap. But somehow this was expensive. And I think the reason they get it is because like all the other motels in town are terrible. So they just jack up the price and figure if you need to stay in Alliance, that's where you're going to go. And that worked because I stayed there. Anyway, I still haven't been in Nebraska. I don't imagine I'm going to be there again anytime soon. But Nebraska was one of these uh, states that had ballot measures that were to allow gambling. People who uh, play poker in Nebraska actually uh, would have to go to other states to play at least to play legalized games. So they would go to Iowa, like a, they had a Caesars property there. And uh, 
they would not be able to play in their home state. But anyway, casino gaming is going to be coming in late 2021 and uh, full-scale casino gaming, like normal casino games are going to be in early 2022. So I guess the very earliest gambling will begin in late 21 and in early 22 will be the full-scale casino gambling. The gambling is going to be run by the Ho-Chunk Tribe. They, of course, also exist in Wisconsin, but they already run three racetracks in the state of Nebraska, and now they're going to be able to run casinos thanks to the ballot measure, which is going to allow these uh, racetracks to expand to allow uh, gambling. This is an exciting time for Nebraskans, said uh, Warhorse Gaming Executive Director Brian Chamberlain. By the way, Warhorse Gaming is the LLC that they created to run these casinos. It's a subsidiary of the Ho-Chunk Tribe. But they're going to be running three casinos at uh, in Omaha, Lincoln, and South Sioux City, which I, I never knew South Sioux City was in... Uh, Nebraska, but apparently it is. I've always thought of Sioux City as being South Dakota, but this is uh, South Sioux City, which is Nebraska. So they're going to have Horseman's Park, Lincoln Racecourse, and Attocad, which are three existing racetracks, all have casinos within the next year or so. Uh, Brian Chamberlain went on to say, Our team is working tirelessly to bring first-class gaming and entertainment to the state. Though there's a great deal of work to be, be done, we're excited for the chance to bring a new industry to the state, and with it, an entirely new source of tax revenue and career opportunities. This will also affect poker. Poker will be legal in Nebraska as well, and you may see that in uh, late 2021. Again, this will be at the racetracks. There were three different initiatives regarding casino gambling on the ballot in 2020. Uh, one would amend the state constitution to allow gambling, and the other two had to do with uh, tax revenue and how that would be distributed. They passed with a 64% majority, so it wasn't even close. The Nebraskans have spoken. They want gambling. (laughs) The problem was they couldn't get the issues on the ballot. There were a lot of objections to even having these on the ballot. A lot of anti-gambling groups assumed that it would probably pass, but they didn't want the gambling, so they tried everything they could to stop it. But finally, the state Supreme Court forced it on the ballot in a 4-3 to three vote, very close vote. Originally, the Secretary of State refused to put these gambling measures on the ballot, claiming it was confusing language, but in reality, he just didn't want it there. So not everybody wants gambling in Nebraska, at least those in power, though it looks like uh, almost two-thirds of the population does want to see gambling in Nebraska, because who doesn't love gambling these days? Gambling is is growing in popularity, even as poker is starting to fade uh, and has been fading for a while. uh, General gambling and sports betting, that is growing, and people no longer want to travel long distances for it. They want gambling in a place that is convenient to visit that has become the reality of the 2020s as has the desire to gamble online so that is happening in nebraska if you live in nebraska then this is a good thing for you 
But what if you live in a more isolated place? What if you live in a place where you can't just drive to a neighboring state to gamble or play poker? There would be one place. There's one place where you can't drive to a neighboring state to play. And that would be Hawaii. One of only two states not to have gambling of any form. All 48 states, besides these two, have some form of legalized gambling. They don't have full gambling necessarily, but there is at least some form of gambling. Utah has no gambling. Hawaii has no gambling. Utah, you'd expect. Utah, of course, is a Mormon state, and Utah has a lot of uh, funny regulations, and you would expect, okay, we can understand why Utah is anti-gambling. But why Hawaii? Hawaii is a blue state. Hawaii is not one you would expect would have uh, strong opposition to gambling, but nevertheless, there is no form of gambling allowed in Hawaii that is uh, legal. Not a single type of gambling. It is assumed the reason for that is Hawaii believed itself to not need gambling to attract tourists. That tourists were going to come to Hawaii because it's Hawaii, because Hawaii is a nice place to visit on its own, because of the beaches, because of the weather. Hawaii felt we don't need to blight our island with gambling. And we don't need to bring on the social problems for our population that gambling can bring on if it's not going to bring people to the state. So that's, that's basically the attitude they took there. They felt, they felt that, uh, they're not going to gain much from gambling and they're going to lose a lot. They're going to have a lot of local problems that the casinos bring on. And yet the tourists are coming anyway. So yeah, you can get additional revenue from them if, if they come and they gamble while we're there, while they're there. But I guess it was assumed. People are going to come to Hawaii with a budget anyway, and they'll spend their budget on something. If if they don't lose at the casino, they'll spend it some other way. So why not just uh, keep the gambling out of the state? So that, that's been assumed to be the reason they, that they have kept uh, gambling out of Hawaii. But that time might be over because gambling might actually be coming to Hawaii for the first time ever. In January, it was actually proposed there through uh, state Senate bills that the state could have some legalized gambling. Senate Bill 850 and Senate Bill 2669 proposed by Maui Senator Gilbert Keith Aragon and uh, Kona Senator Drew Kanuha wanted to establish a Hawaii Lottery and Gaming Corporation to oversee Hawaii legal gambling industry throughout the state. And they were hoping to have a lottery, to have card games, and uh, even to have uh, free-to-play games and sweepstakes offered to uh, people outside to uh, attract visitors to the state, which I'm surprised that's not even legal. Keith uh, Aragon said, We should remember that there's already a lot of people in the state participating in gambling. The fact that we have direct flights to Las Vegas on every island should be emblematic of that. Well, not completely. Las Vegas is known by many as the eighth island of Hawaii. Las Vegas is the highest Hawaiian population outside of Hawaii. There's a lot of Hawaiians in Las Vegas. I noticed that when I lived there. A lot of Hawaiians there. So that's why there's so many people flying to Las Vegas. Is not just they want to gamble there. They also want to visit relatives there. There's just a big Hawaiian scene in the city of Vegas. But yes, there were people flying to Vegas to gamble. 
There's people who gamble online. There's people who gamble in underground games and underground casinos. They were considering it. This was back almost a year ago. They also said that, uh, yes, they, they understand that it, gambling has some downsides. Keith Aragon said, we don't want to rely on it, but I'm interested in finding funding for things like medical services in rural areas. Either we fund it with things like this, or we have to find the money somewhere else. So that's often what is the reason gambling comes to places where it wasn't before, is they are enticed by the money they can collect by taxing the gambling and then funding things which before they were having trouble getting the money for. So some politician would say, hey, I want money for such and such. The state legislature says, sorry, not in the budget. They go, well, it could be in the budget if we were to generate extra money we didn't have before from gambling. So that's always where it comes from. It's now, it's it's rarely because the state just feels that they'd like to have gambling or the people want gambling. It's It's always about money. So Hawaii, which for a long time just said no, they were starting to consider it in January. Well, then COVID hit. Remember, this was in January. This January 25th, this article I was reading. Then COVID hit, and things changed even further. Because now Hawaii was not doing very well. Now Hawaii uh, was struggling big time, because Hawaii's main industry is tourism, and people were not coming to Hawaii for tourism for obvious reasons. You, you can, you can fly there now, but most people are not. And Hawaii has really been struggling, as Las Vegas has. So this has given them more motivation to make this into reality. So uh, that was a story from back in January, which I didn't even cover. But the reason I'm covering it now is that the Hawaiian Homes Commission voted to move forward with a casino proposal to be in, in Oahu to generate revenue for native Hawaiian programs. So again, this is being done for reasons of raising money for what they feel is a noble cause, and they're willing to accept some things they don't really love about gambling. Now, almost a year later, since that was first proposed, this motion has passed. It's a different thing, but it's it's along the same lines, that a uh, on a 5-4 to four vote that... Uh, that the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, DHHL, which I haven't heard of before, that they'd allow a casino resort-type property in Kapolei, which uh, I'll tell you in a second where Kapolei is. It's on Oahu, but it's not that close to Honolulu. So they're going to allow this uh, casino resort-type property in property in Kapolei. It says that, uh, quote, with the commission's decision today, we are hopeful that the Hawaii State Legislature will see the urgency of finally addressing the funding shortages of this program. They said, The measure the Department is proposing is bold, but we're at a pivotal point where bold action is necessary to fulfill the responsibility of the Trust. We hear the pleas of beneficiaries across the board, including the need for swift action to move beneficiaries of the waiting list and onto the homestead lots. This effort does not shift DHHL's focus from creating homestead opportunities. Instead, it provides a way forward in terms of an economic solution to face the common denominator for the struggles faced by the department, the opportunity to quit, create adequate funding. This hasn't happened yet. This actually goes to the attorney general and the governor, and it may or may not happen. The governor could refuse. The attorney general could balk at this. But if this goes into the legislative packet of the governor's David uh, EJ, I-G-E, his last name, I think they say it, then uh, then it would move on to the Hawaiian State Legislature, which 
then would have to approve it. So it's not there yet, but uh, they're looking to generate money through this casino in Capilay. And I have to imagine that part of this is because tourism may take a while to rebound. It's a long flight to get to Hawaii, even from the closest major city, Los Angeles, which is 3,000 miles away. Hawaii is very, very isolated. Some people don't know that. Hawaii is not only far from the eastern U.S., it's far from everything. As I said, L.A., 3,000 miles away, is the closest big city to it. It's the closest city of any kind. So, I mean, they're really out there. I'm not just talking about U.S. It is, it is far from everything in every direction. If you're in Hawaii, you are thousands of miles away from everything other than other places in Hawaii. So people may not want to take these long flights to get there, given how people are starting to get unused to travel, which involves flights, and they're going to feel kind of skittish about flying for a while until COVID's really gone. Even once they take the vaccine, there's still going to be people who feel uncomfortable with the whole thing. So I, it may take some time to rebound. Now, it's possible that once people can travel again uh, and feel confident because they took the vaccine, that maybe travel is going to spring up into uh, huge uh, numbers because people have been waiting to travel for so long and haven't been able to. So maybe they're going to have a, a quick recovery, but also maybe not. They're going to have to see. So I, I'm wondering if this might have to do with it. So this is the first step, but this is the closest they've ever gotten to legal gambling in Hawaii. Now, where is Kapolei? Let's describe what Kapolei is and why it might be there instead of Honolulu. So Kapolei is on the southwest corner, pretty much, of Oahu. Honolulu is more southeast. Now, Oahu is not a huge island. What's known as the Big Island, the one actually called Hawaii, that's that's the biggest island. Uh, Oahu, it can take a while to drive because the roads are not direct, because there's a lot of uh, mountains and hills in the way, which roads don't go through. So you got to go like around everything. But as far as the actual size of the island, it's not that large. But uh, Honolulu is, is in the southeast, kind of like south. South, not fully southeast, but mostly southeast. And the, the very southeast is uh, um, uh, really not much there. But uh, if you go west, kind of go northwest, and then you have to go back southwest. Uh, if you kind of go directly west, the way the crow flies from Honolulu, you would get to Kapolei. Kapolei is not a really big city. It's not a tourist attraction uh, you really probably have never been there unless you've just driven through it because you're just driving around Oahu. The only reason I know about Kapolei is because, believe it or not, 11 years ago, there was a girl I met online from Kapolei who was going to come to L.A. to visit me. And the only reason it didn't happen was that I got with Ben's mom, who I had known previously. I had known Ben's mom back in college. And she and I started talking over the summer. And so I was kind of like casually talking to this girl from Capilay, but she really wanted to come see me. And uh, I was going to do it. I wasn't going to fly all the way to Hawaii to see her, but you know, she was going to come to L.A. and see me. So I said, okay, sure. But uh, once I started uh, going out with Ben's mom, I had to break it to this girl from Capilay that I wasn't going to see her and that 
was not going to happen. And I, I tried to explain it. I said, this is someone I knew from a long time ago. And this wasn't just some new girl I met after you. Like, this is someone I've, I, I knew from way back and we started talking again. Like, I, I tried to explain it to her, but she, she was pissed. She was pretty bitter about it. But anyway, uh, she was from Capilay. And at the time I had never heard of it. And I looked up where it was. So when I saw it was Capilay, I was like, oh, I know that town. Otherwise I would not know it. You can look it up on a map if you are interested. So we'll see if Hawaii finally gets gambling. I, I think that uh, the damage that COVID did to the economy might force their hand. Only Utah will remain. The cheese will stand alone. And I don't see gambling coming there. Now, thanks to Nevada, there is gambling in the Utah market. In Salt Lake City, they drive over to Wendover, Nevada. It's not that far. And there's nothing Utah can do about that. They can't stop border towns in Nevada having gambling. So the Wendover market serves uh, Salt Lake City. And then people in the southern area of Utah, like St. George, of course, they can drive about an hour to go to Las Vegas. All right. I have kind of a unique story here about VR and gambling. I've never combined these before, but there is something to combine here involving a project that Verizon, of all companies, is involved with. I bet you never thought you'd hear about Verizon and gambling, but yes, Verizon is kind of getting involved with gambling. Here is what is happening. So virtual reality, which I first heard about in the early 90s, and back in the early 90s, it sucked. It was really lame. The technology simply wasn't there. The concept was there, but the technology to make it uh, realistic, to make it uh, a good experience for players just wasn't there. So VR moved very slowly. It was believed at some point VR would be the future of gaming, but again, the technology just wasn't mature enough. There was a second problem which they did not expect, and that was that VR got people sick. So VR uh, has a way to make people uh, dizzy. You can actually get motion sickness from VR, where basically the motion your body is feeling is not corresponding to what you're seeing uh, with your eyes. And this can actually create an artificial sickness. When I say artificial, I mean you feel it. It's just it's it's happening because your brain is is getting confused of what it's what it's seeing versus what it's feeling, and that lack of correlation can make people feel sick. I know how that feels because I felt it. <laughs> Using uh, Benjamin's uh, VR, he has an Oculus Quest Two that he got in October, and I tried to use it on a roller coaster, which probably wasn't the best choice as like my first VR experience. And it was cool, but then like in the first roller coaster, I'm like, oh, cool, I didn't get sick. And the second one, I'm like, oh, crap, I got to take this off. So I, I'm really, I'm going to try it again. I actually kind of got pushed out of wanting to try it again because I got sick from that roller coaster. I didn't throw up, but I kind of felt like I needed to. But I, there's other games you can play that are much less uh, jarring than a roller coaster. Like there's a baseball VR game I want to try. So I'm, I'm going to give that a shot again. Ben doesn't get motion sickness from it, but that's not surprising because kids don't get motion sickness very easily. Some do, but most don't. Even I didn't. Like when I was uh, 12 years old, I could go to the amusement park and go on rides that would spin, 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 spin really fast, and I could go on them like 10 times in a row and nothing would happen. Because your, your body changes over time, 
And one of the things that happens as you get older is motion sickness. Uh, you start to uh, become more susceptible to it, even as a young adult compared to when you were a kid. So anyway, back to VR. The technology's finally here to where it's good enough to where people want to do it, which is why you're seeing such an uptick in the VR units as far as uh, being sold and games available for them and even common games having a VR mode. Though that's still somewhat immature, but it, it's rapidly expanding. So Verizon decided that they want to get in on this. For those of you not in the U.S., Verizon is a uh, telecommunications company. They are a major cell phone provider. They also used to provide home phone service and Fios internet service, but they sold that off to Frontier, at least in several markets. I don't know if they completely sold it off, but I know it was largely sold off at least to Frontier, a different company. But anyway, Verizon decided that uh, they're going to do something that I have been talking about for years. I've said that the future in sports viewing is going to be an immersive experience. You're not just going to be watching it on TV. You're going to be there. You're going to be looking through a VR unit, and you'll be able to place yourself in any part of the stadium. So you can be sitting there on the pitcher's mound. You could be sitting there in the batter's box. You could be there where the shortstop stands. And you can see the ball whiz by your head. You can see the ball whiz through your head because <laughs> you're not really there. But uh, it won't be just watching everyone else do it. You'll be part of the action. In fact, you'll be even more part of the action than actually at the stadium, except uh, you, know, you won't be actually able to be heard cheering. But as far as where you can place yourself, you have a lot more freedom than the stadium where you basically have to be in your seat and nowhere else. The problem is that this requires uh, a lot of bandwidth. It requires a lot of advanced technology, some of which isn't quite here yet. But I, I saw it coming, and I thought eventually that's where it's going to be. And think of how cool that could be. Think of uh, you could be on the pitcher's mound. You, you could be uh, at center court in an NBA game, or you could be on the 50-yard line, like not, not sitting in the stands on the 50-yard line. You could be there too, but you, you could just be on the 50-yard line of the football field. There's a lot of places you could be that you've really never got to see from that perspective before. What if you could move along with the players? What if you could run down the court with uh, a star basketball player like LeBron James and watch him dribble the ball and watch him shoot the ball from any angle? Like There's a, a lot of possibilities. Some of this is not possible yet, but I said this is the future of gaming, is that there's going to be uh, a VR uh, format where you can place yourself anywhere in the stadium and just be immersed in all the action, even though you, your presence there doesn't actually affect anything going on and nobody can see you. But maybe you can even interact with other VR people in the stadium. So the possibilities, there's a lot of them. I wouldn't say they're endless, but there's a lot of possibilities to be done with this. And Verizon recognized this. So Verizon has partnered with a company called Entain, E-N-T-A-I-N, which I hadn't heard of before, to create this immersive sports viewing experience to also have gambling involved. Because what has also been growing in recent years? Sports betting. Because now sports betting is not limited to only Las Vegas. It's not, well, not just like Las Vegas. It's not limited to Nevada. The federal law was changed 
They did away with that PASPA law that forced it all to be in Nevada. So now that it can be in any state that wants it, and now that many states are legalizing online sports betting, that sports betting is exploding in the legal realm, where it was already growing anyway, but now it's growing in legal places to sports bet. So people viewing sports, a lot of them are viewing partially because they're betting on it, sometimes only because they're betting on it. There's there's games you probably watch that you don't care about, but you do care about all of a sudden because you have money on it. I have that. I'll watch NBA games where I don't really care about the two teams playing, but uh, I care about the result because I bet on it. They are combining all of this, this immersive virtual reality experience and sports betting. So this is what the plan is. Of course, this is just in the planning stages. They haven't done anything yet. But Entain, uh, which is previously known as GVC Holdings, you may have heard of them as that, they are partnering with Verizon and they're going to uh, create what they call uh, an innovative and immersive proof of, proof of concept for a virtual reality experience that combines interactive sports data with live with a live sports viewing experience. For example, people could watch a sporting event, look at data, place bets through Entain sites, and socialize with their friends and family. And uh, by the way, who who uh, Entain? What is what what brand? What brands do they have? They have Ladbrokes. They have Party Poker. They have Bwin. They have BetMGM. See, I I hadn't heard of them before. I had thought of them as GVC Holdings. I didn't realize they had changed names, but whatever. It's basically Party Poker Bwin. Verizon and Entain are going to uh, use 5G technology, virtual reality, and augmented reality to enhance their engagement with gambling and sports betting. So in addition to being able to place yourself in various areas of the stadium and uh, maybe even having things like halftime competitions where a number of people using this same technology can compete against each other, but uh, also they'll be able to access data about the game, uh, interact on social media while they're watching the game through the virtual reality system, and uh, be able to bet on things in the game. So, you, so the dream is that you're going to be like sitting in the stadium somewhere, but not physically there, but through this uh, virtual reality device. You'll be able to watch the game. You'll be able to tweet things out or, or write whatever you want on various social media sites about what you're watching, that you'll be able to interact with other people doing this at the same time, with other virtual reality users there, maybe compete with them, and also bring down a menu of things you can bet on at the game, like live betting at the game, of what's going to happen uh, with a, like in a baseball game, what the next batter is going to do, or uh, in a basketball game, uh, who's going to score the next basket, or... Uh, Things like that. So the belief is that there's a lot of uh, untapped potential in sporting events, that the concept of people just passively sitting there and watching a sporting contest and doing nothing else is antiquated. That younger people prefer to do other things as they're watching sports. In fact, it was found by uh, a survey that uh, 31% of people between 35 or between 25 and 39 
use social media while viewing a sport, whether viewing it in person or viewing it uh, on TV. But that uh, 31% use social media while doing it. Also, they said that uh, men in the 25 to 39 age group are most likely to be early adopters of emerging technology if they're into gaming and esports. So there's the belief that those who like gambling, not or not gambling, those who like gaming, like video gaming and esports, which is a, a form of video gaming, that males in that 25 to 39 age group are probably going to jump on things that are new and exciting and they want to they want this to be one of those pieces of technology they can jump on. They think this is a new market they can capture just because it will be emerging technology and that it will have some crossover with gaming and esports. I don't know if that's really true. I, I believe that these men in that age range do like emerging technology, but they don't necessarily like all emerging technology. They probably like emerging technology related to things that uh, interest them. So yeah, emerging gaming and esports technology, but as far as watching sports, that that's probably a different crowd. Or there's some crossover for sure, but I don't know if that's the same crowd. But I don't want to say this is going to be a failure. This does sound like it's something that's cool and that could kind of uh, save sports from the problem of the audience aging out. Some sports have this worse than others, but in general, a problem has been that uh, a lot of younger people have a hard time keeping concentration on sporting events for the length of time that they take, especially baseball, because that's over three hours. But even basketball, which is about two hours, or, or football, which is about the same, uh, a lot of younger people just say, I, I don't want to devote this amount of time to watching this and nothing else. And there's a lot of uh, timeouts, a lot of breaks, a lot. Of, there's a lot of dead time where nothing's going on, and younger people get impatient because younger people have been raised on technology, they've been raised with constant stimulation, and people in older generations, including mine, we were used to, in the 70s and 80s, that you didn't have the constant stimulation. So it was a lot easier to sit through a three-hour baseball game and not feel like, uh, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this for three hours and nothing else. So the younger the people are, the harder time they have as far as... uh, the desire to sit through such a thing and not do something else at the same time. So that's what was found that uh, even people in the 25 to 39 range, which aren't super young, but are on the younger side, that they like to do other things as they watch sports, such as engage on social media. So then it becomes a little more interesting if you can comment on the game you're watching as you're watching it. Uh, You'll probably see this, if you look at people's Twitter, you'll probably notice a lot of people in that age range are commenting on Twitter about the game they're, they're watching. In fact, I'll see this. It's kind of annoying. Like on my Twitter feed on Sunday, I'll see all these NFL takes about all these different games in whatever region they, they're in, they're, they're watching their home team. And you don't understand the tweets unless you're watching the game. They're just tweeting about some player and some and some play that was made or some bad call or some, some bad pass or whatever. And I'm like, this doesn't mean anything to me because I'm not watching the game. Even if I know who these players are, 
I'm not watching the game. I have no idea what they're talking about. And it's not like these aren't always like high profile games. This is the game they're watching. But a lot of people in that age range like to do that. They like to tweet out about the experience of, of what they're watching. So they're hoping that that crowd will be interested in this. And I'll say I would be interested in this. I, I would enjoy this. I, I would love to be able to do a virtual reality viewing of a game where I can place myself in different spots of the stadium. In fact, it kind of reminds me in a way of the flight simulator I was using, where the flight simulator, now I can actually place myself anywhere in the world and fly. That's cool. And that's that's different than something like uh, Google Maps. I mean, here you're actually flying in a realistic plane over landscapes with realistic uh, landscapes and buildings under you. And that is something that is appealing to me and many others. So this is along those same lines, kind of a virtual experience where you can experience things that are exciting and fun and interesting, and you don't have to leave your home to do it. It's like it can sometimes be a better experience than what you would get if you did the real thing. Now, yes, sometimes there's no replacing the real thing. I'm not saying I would never go to a sports stadium again if I could just do this through virtual reality. There's something about actually being there that is fun and can't really be replaced by watching it on TV or through virtual reality or through anything. But this would definitely be a fun alternative, especially if there's other things you could do. You can interact with others there. You can bet on things. You can have contests. You can place yourself in a lot of different spots. I mean, there's a lot to like about this. Don't expect to see it anytime soon. They're trying to at least prove it in concept, and they've already created the partnership. Yahoo Sports and BetMGM have a relationship already, and uh, that relationship is where uh, BetMGM odds are integrated through uh, into a sports media app, and then... Uh, Users can place bets through the Yahoo Sports app in states with uh, legalized sports betting. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because Yahoo Sports is owned by Verizon. And BetMGM has a uh, partnership with Entain. So that's where these two companies have already come together in a way. So we'll see. This is going to be... Down the line, for sure. I don't think we would see it like before 2025. That's just my wild guess. It doesn't say that here, but that's my guess. And as far as the immersive experience where you can really place yourself in a lot of different places in the stadium, I think that's even later than 2025. Because that really requires a lot of different camera angles and uh, really some very robust data transmission and processing that doesn't really exist today. But it's not as far as it might appear. So the, the future is actually pretty exciting for technology like that. There's a lot of things finally emerging that you've thought about for years of something that would be cool, but you just kind of thought, okay, well, it doesn't seem like they're close. But now we're getting close. Now we're going to start seeing this. This may be kind of the decade of uh, virt- virtual reality and realistic experiences you can have from your home. This may be the way the 20s are remembered, aside from 
a very bad virus at the very beginning of the decade. The 2010s, and I guess starting in the late 2000s, I remembered for the smart device revolution. Think of how much iPhones and other smartphones and even things like iPads and smart watches and all that stuff. Think of how much that has taken over society. Think of how integrated that has become in people's lives. Think about 15 years ago when that basically didn't exist. Yeah, you had a cell phone. Yeah, it could technically go on the web. Yeah, there were technically things they called smartphones, but that uh, they really weren't. And most people just used their phones to make calls and, and send texts. And that was all they did 15 years ago. There's a tremendous difference today with as far as devices are concerned. So that the 2010s was pretty much the rise of the smart devices. The 2020s may be the rise of the virtual reality and the immersive experiences at home. In fact, COVID may hasten people's desire to have such a thing because people got a sample of what it's like to be stuck at home. And who knows if COVID never completely goes away, then there will be more desire that people will have to not go out as much. Even if the vaccine brings it down, even if there's a new vaccine you take every year, like the flu shot, if COVID is a persistent danger, even if it's a smaller danger, people may find reasons to not go out, find reasons to be in crowds less less often. I know there will be people who won't care and will take the chance, but there will be some who say, I don't want to put myself in this spot all the time anymore. Now that we've got a danger of being in close quarters, or I won't do it as much. Now, I have to say, I'll probably be one of those people if that's what comes to pass. So this might be well-timed, too. You really don't know what the future is going to be with that sort of thing. There may, there may be a lot of changes that come to this world in the aftermath of COVID, especially if the aftermath is not a full aftermath, if it's a kind of a ongoing thing that's there in the background that may change people's desires of what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And definitely anything that allows people to have fun at home, I would think, has a bright future. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. The coronavirus, there's some vaccine discussions I want to have. I know I've had a lot of discussions with you about the vaccine distribution order in the last two weeks. And if you hated those, then good news for you, we're doing it again. We're going to have more CDC and vaccination order discussion this week. Why? Because that's the main coronavirus news. Yes, coronavirus continues to be bad. Yes, a lot of people are dying. But that's been the case for like the last more than a month and I mean, how much is there to say? I, I could read you numbers, but you can look those up yourself. Like if the bottom line is COVID is pretty bad and the vaccine, it's good that it was ready as soon as it was because we need it. It's going to continue to be bad. And uh, a lot of people are dying. Some days more than 3,000 people per day. And uh, I don't think this is going to get any better since we're in winter until the vaccine starts bringing down those numbers. And it is distributed. It's it's starting to be distributed. But 
with 330 million people in the U.S. to vaccinate, that's going to take a while. It, it's, it, it takes a long time to produce and distribute 330 million of anything. So that's We're going to have several months before it all gets out to those who want to get it. And the big story in recent times has been what order are they doing it and why? Well, I have been a big critic of the vaccination order that has been pushed. And uh, I'm a critic of the CDC. And some people have asked me, where do you get off criticizing the CDC? These are scientists. These are qualified scientists. These are people with education in this subject. These are people who are much more, a much bigger experts in this sort of thing than you are. These are people who do this for a living. You're just a poker player. You were a computer programmer before this. Where do you get off telling the CDC that they did a bad job, that they made the wrong decision? Who are you? Well, I'm a citizen who has a right to to my opinion, and unfortunately I feel that the CDC is not using scientific methods. I feel that the CDC is politicizing the virus, and they are making decisions based upon political uh, opinions and social opinions that have nothing to do with science. Right or wrong, you can say these are the correct social opinions, you can say this is the correct political opinion to have, but this should not be figuring into science. The scientists should do science, they should make decisions based upon science, they should make recommendations based upon science, and then the politicians should go from there and take those scientific recommendations and they can use their political experience and political opinions to influence the decision they ultimately make. But the scientists should not be doing this. The scientists should not be infecting their science with politics or with social views. Otherwise, what you end up happening, what you end up having happen is that bad studies are done. A bad study happens when the person setting out to make the study has a conclusion already in mind that they want to see at the end. This can be for various reasons. If you are trying to sell a medication, if you are the company who is producing the medication, if you are the company that is going to make a lot of money from releasing and selling a medication, then it is to your advantage for studies of the safety and efficacy of the medication to be positive. You're not going to want to report a negative study about your own medication. So you're going to try to find a way to massage the data to make it look positive for your company and your medication. And you're going to try to skew any study to where you can make it look like that. Even if you don't falsify data, you can just find a way to arrange the data or to collect the data to where the data is correct, but it's not really telling the whole story because you want your medication approved. You want your medication to become preferred. So that's where a monetary reason is involved, but there also can be non-monetary reasons involved. There can be political reasons where if you have a strong political opinion that you want your study to land in the fashion that supports your political opinion, 
You want the conclusion of the study to be something that you can use to back your own opinion up. And you want your study to be used by politicians who are on the same side as you are. So if you go into a study with a strong desire to have it go one way rather than the other, then it's probably not going to be an honest study. Even if you attempt to make it an honest study, it's going to be very difficult to make it an honest study because you may even subconsciously study it in a way to where there's going to be some kind of bias or you will arrange the study in a manner to where it is going to land the way you want it to. So whenever I hear questions like, well, why does it matter what the person studying believes? It only matters what the truth is. I say, because there's many ways to manipulate the truth. There's many ways to manipulate studies. There's many ways to approach studies and to get the desired result when it doesn't really tell the whole story. So the best studies are ones done by people who really don't have an interest either way. Ones who just want to know the answer, but don't really care which side the answer comes down on or what the results are. They just want the results. So much like I would not trust a study from the Catholic Church on abortion, I would not study, I would not trust a study from a leftist at a university on the amount of uh, COVID spread that occurred at the BLM riots over the summer. Because in both cases, you can see where each would want the study to go a certain way. So let's get back to this. Let's get back to the CDC. The CDC is a government organization, a federal government organization, under the executive branch. Who is the head of the executive branch? Well, currently, though not for much longer, Donald Trump. So you would think the CDC under Donald Trump would be a conservative and would basically want to act in uh, a fashion that Donald Trump would approve of. You would think that an appointee of Donald Trump would direct the CDC in a manner that uh, Trump would like him to direct it. You would think that, but that's not necessarily true. I believe there are 4 million employees of the executive branch, which is crazy. But look it up. I think it's 4 million. When Donald Trump took office in 2017, do you think he fired all 4 million people and hired new people working under him? 4 million? you think he hired 4 million new people and replaced the previous 4 million? No. In fact, no president does that. That would be chaos. You, you can't fire everybody and start fresh or otherwise there's a learning curve and it would be a disaster. All these... Uh, government agencies would come to a halt as everybody learns their job again. So you can't do that. You've got, there's, there's always got to be carryover. In fact, all but the highest-ranked people tend to stay. So yes, uh, new presidents come in and they replace the head of a lot of these organizations. Sometimes they keep on whoever's, whoever's running them, but often they will get uh, fired and will be replaced with someone who's, uh, who the new president favors more. That, that's going to happen with Joe Biden. That happened with Donald Trump. That happened with Barack Obama. That's very common. But most employees don't get replaced. Most employees keep their job. So the employees who have been there the whole time, just because you're working during a Donald Trump administration in an executive branch job, that doesn't mean that you're a Trump supporter or a Republican. So there are many people at the CDC 
who are on the left. And provided that their boss does not interfere in their work and say, hey, we, we don't like the, I don't like the way you're approaching this, then uh, if they choose to have a leftist bias to their work, they can, and as long as there's no interference in it, they probably will, if that's very important to them. I'm not just talking about someone who happens to vote Democrat. I'm saying someone who's, whose politics are so important to them that it can start to affect their work and creep into their work. So interestingly enough, the CDC, under Donald Trump, has actually been releasing recommendations with uh, which are colored by left-wing politics. And some people have kind of a hard time understanding how that can happen, but I, I just explained it. That's exactly how it can happen and how it did happen. So the CDC, as I mentioned last week, they put out recommendations, and it should be noted these are recommendations. This, this is not uh, – no one's compelled to do this. This is uh, a recommendation to state and local governments on how to handle the distribution of the vaccine, and then uh, the state and local governments make their own decisions. But still, these are CDC recommendations, and, and most state and local governments respect them. They're, they're looking to the CDC for guidance. They, they assume the CDC knows what they're talking about. So the CDC put out controversial opinions and recommendations that the phase 1A, the very first phase of the vaccine distribution, would go to healthcare workers and nursing home workers and residents. Okay, so that by itself isn't that controversial. The healthcare workers, I, th- I think, shouldn't be as many as it is. It should be uh, really only healthcare workers who work with COVID patients, not uh, all healthcare workers. There's a lot of healthcare workers who uh, either see patients by telemedicine or really don't see many COVID patients. So they, they shouldn't get it unless they're already in a vulnerable group. But whatever, that's, that's only semi-controversial. The nursing home thing, everybody agrees that's correct because most a lot of deaths are in the nursing homes. A lot of deaths, like I think like 40% of the deaths are people in nursing homes, something crazy like that. So yes, the employees should have it, and yes, the nursing home residents themselves should have it. By the way, I should note that it is not known if the vaccine is going to prevent transmission. It may only be a symptom blocker, meaning that you can still transmit COVID just as easily as before, except when you get COVID, you're going to be equivalent to those who are asymptomatic. You're just not going to feel it. So then it doesn't really harm you. You can spread it around. You can give it to other people. But you can't, uh, you're not going to be able to get uh, sick from it. And hopefully the ones you give it to will also have taken the vaccine and also won't get sick from it. So it's not known. It, it might hold down or stop transmission. And it also might not. It also may have no effect on transmission. It may transmit plenty may transmit even more because people will be going out more. But if 95% of the people taking it don't end up with uh, an illness from it, then that's a huge improvement, obviously. So that part's not known. And they're not really making decisions based upon preventing transmission with it because it is not proven yet to prevent transmission. That just hasn't been studied yet. And it's kind of hard to study. Eventually they'll know but right now they don't. So they're deciding more from the standpoint of the vaccine is going to prevent people from getting sick. So what, what's the best order to do it? 
yeah, it'd be great if we could give everybody the vaccine on day one, but since that's not possible, what order do we do it in? So after this initial group of the healthcare workers and the nursing home people, then what? Well, it has been decided, as I mentioned last week, by the CDC, to give the recommendation that people 75 and older and, quote, essential workers will get this as part of group 1B. So they'll have the same priority level, essential workers and people 75 and older. Nobody else. Essential workers are defined in a lot of different uh, categories, uh, teachers, uh, firefighters and police, uh, grocery store workers, postal employees, things like that. Not all of them interact with people who are that vulnerable. For example, teachers, they don't, they interact with kids. They don't interact with the elderly. But that's what the CDC's recommendation was. And some people were unhappy about that, including me. Now, I am not in a group that would have been priority no matter what, because I am not old. I am not someone with uh, major pre-existing conditions. I'm not an essential worker. So I, I wasn't expecting to be in early priority, and I'm not mad that I'm not, because I don't think I should be. But I do have two parents who are still alive, and they're over 75, and I would like them to get it as soon as possible, and they want to get it as soon as possible, and they can't. They can't get it now. They're going to have to wait until probably late January to get the vaccine, as I mentioned last week. And that makes me unhappy, because... Uh, they have to sweat it out another month and they have the danger of catching COVID for an extra month because they don't have the vaccine that they really should already have or should be getting very soon and are not and that's a big problem because the vaccine is being wasted on people who are young and healthy that should not be getting in this order in my opinion but the question has been how did they come to this? How did the CDC come to this recommendation, which it appears that uh, California is following? Well, I think I figured it out. I looked at this last week, but didn't look at it in that much detail. And I was having a debate with someone on the forum about this, and they were citing all these different individual things from the study and telling me I didn't read it and I didn't know it well enough. And he was partially right that I didn't read it that carefully. I was just kind of doing high-level conclusions from it and, and... uh, criticizing those, but but he was right that I didn't delve into it and look at it that closely. So I finally decided I'm going to delve into it and look at it closely and figure this out. And I think I have. I think I know what the CDC did, and I'm not very happy about it. I think it's uh, very manipulative. I think that they really started this study with the intention of coming to certain conclusions they wanted to come to. And I'll tell you why I think this. First of all, I can tell you that those who were involved with the CDC study definitely are on the left. In fact, one of the people involved is uh, a transgender person who I think a, like a black transgender person who calls themselves they and them and wants to defund the police. This is from their own Twitter. Okay, so this is these are not right wingers who were appointed by Trump. These are people who are 
very much on the political left. And all over this study is the term racial justice. Now, racial justice on the surface could sound good. It could sound like, well, it's fair for everybody. It's justice justice for all. Doesn't that sound good? But what they mean by that is that because there's the belief that certain people of color have struggled to get good health care for decades, or pretty much into the beginning uh, of the of the U.S., that now is the time to push it the other way. Not to make it fair, but to actually make it to where it's unfairly in their favor, to make up how for how it wasn't in their favor before. Basically, you, you've had bad health care in your community for all your life. Now we're going to give you extra priority for that reason. We're not going to just make it fair for you. We're actually going to make it unfair for everybody else and, and better for you. We're going to, get, to give you the unfair advantage this time. And I don't believe in that. I don't believe in give such and such group an unfair advantage in order to make up for the fact that historically they were at a disadvantage. What you should seek to do is to make everything equal going forward to where uh, no more injustices are occurring. Once you start saying we're going to answer a previous injustice as a group by now giving you an injustice in your favor, I don't think it's the right approach. But it's especially not the right approach when it comes to a pandemic where people are dying. So the simple thing that should have been studied by the CDC should have been, how do we save the most lives? That should have been it. How long-term do we save the most lives? That should have been all they studied. Everything else should be left to the politicians. But the CDC should give the recommendation solely based upon science. Not based upon racial justice, not based upon any kind of social, political issues, but which approach will save the most human lives. That should should be it. doesn't matter what color the lives. It doesn't matter if they're black lives or white lives or Hispanic lives. It doesn't matter. Human lives. How many get saved? Let's pick the approach that saves the most. That's it. That should be it. But that's not the approach they used. They they wanted the political racial justice approach, and they wanted to come up with something where people of color would get some kind of advantage because they felt that they'd been living with a disadvantage for so long. But knowing that they are not the ones actually making policy, they can't just say, well... Uh, this is what we'd recommend from a scientific standpoint, but we think for this uh, socio-political reason you should do it this way. They, they can't directly say that. They've got to just kind of put out something that seems on the surface maybe to make sense from a scientific standpoint and mention that racial justice is part of it and hope people don't question it too much. That's what they did. But how did they get it done? Well, they did a study where they looked at various uh, vaccination models and then compared them. So they did three groups. Group A, Group B, and Group C. Group A were elderly people 65 and older. Group B were adults between 18 and 64 who had major pre-existing conditions. And Group C were essential workers. Now, at this time when they did the study on October 30th, there had not been the plan yet to put nursing home people at the very top, at the time it was assumed they're only going to put the healthcare workers at the top and nobody else. So that's what was assumed on October 30th, but it doesn't matter too much for this study, which I'll get to shortly. So it was basically, we're going to study three different models. 
giving the vaccine to those 65 and over, giving the vaccine to those with major pre-existing conditions who are not over 65, and giving it to essential workers. Let's just look at if we gave all the vaccines to each of these groups, how many lives would be saved, and then we'll decide from there. So what they found was that, yes, giving it to the elderly would have saved the most lives. However, it was not a tremendous difference. It was at most a 6.5% difference of the elderly, how many who die, versus uh, the essential workers, how many who die. But this was before the nursing homes were separated out into another group. And the nursing homes make up a pretty good-sized portion, at least half, of the elderly who are dying. So if you take those out, you take the the nursing home people out, and they already get it anyway first, then the remaining 65-plus people, well, that pretty much cuts the number in half, where at most three and a quarter percent is the difference between uh, the number of people dying giving the vaccine to those 65-plus versus essential workers. And they're saying, look, the essential workers are disproportionately black and brown. And they've also been doing a, a job that puts them at additional risk. And we have to show them some kind of appreciation. And we don't want essential industries decimated. We, we don't want to where people can't, uh, where teachers are all knocked out of uh, commission or where uh, grocery store workers are out of commission or those involved in food production are out of commission or uh, police and firefighters are out of commission. We, we don't want that. We need these people. So for these reasons... They really should get it first, even if they're dying at a little bit of a, a, a lesser rate. It's not that big of a number. So while it's not good if anyone dies, since we are going to have death no matter what, and yes, we're going to have a little bit more, but the overall impact on society is bad enough if the essential workers get it to where it's worth accepting these additional deaths. Plus, very important, It's also accomplishing racial justice since the people who are essential workers tend to be not white. So this gives them an extra leg up they deserve. That that was what the CDC was putting out there. And a lot of people accepted it. And some people accepted it based upon flawed reasoning. Some people believed, oh, well, of course we have to keep the vaccine to the essential workers because they're the ones mainly transmitting it because they get the most exposure. And I go, wait, 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 wait. We haven't proven that this vaccine prevents transmission. All that is known is that it prevents people from getting sick from COVID. But we we have not seen that it's preventing transmitting COVID. So that doesn't really help us. So the study is not about this. There may be just as much transmission as before. But also, there's a lot of other problems to this. So let's look at these groups again. Group A, elderly, 65+. plus. Group B, people who are not elderly but have major pre-existing conditions. Group C, essential workers. What is the problem with these three groups? Ah, Group C, essential workers, has people in Group B that are also part of their group. So there's an intersection between the groups. These are not distinct groups. These are... There's the situation with Group C that it's actually a lot of people from Group B are also in Group C, and even some people in Group A are probably part of Group C, just elderly people who are still working. So what's the problem with this? The problem with this is we're looking at death rates. 
we're looking at three different scenarios, three different fictitious scenarios where if we give all the vaccines in group 1B to the elderly versus giving all the vaccines to the people 18 to 64 who have major pre-existing conditions or all the vaccines to just essential workers, how many people die? And, and let's let's uh, compare them. So you can't compare three groups if there's an intersection where a lot of members of one group are also a member of another. Then you've got a big problem because then it doesn't tell you that much. So let's look at this between group B and C. Group B are the adults under 65 who have major pre-existing conditions, and group C are the essential workers. So some of the people in group B, the adults with pre-existing conditions, may also be essential workers. Well, have you been looking who's been dying, who's under 55? Who's been dying as far as uh, their condition before they got COVID? You will find, if you take a look at the data, that almost everybody that has died under age 55 had a pre-existing condition. Not everybody, but the vast, vast, vast majority. And if you go lower than that, like under 35, then it's almost all of them. It is super, super rare for someone under 35 with no pre-existing conditions to die of COVID. It is still fairly rare for someone under 45 with no pre-existing conditions to die of COVID, and even under 55 to some degree. So the main people who are dying under 55 of COVID are ones who also have pre-existing conditions. So let's look at essential workers. Essential workers, as defined by the way they say it uh, at the CDC, first of all, a lot of them are young. A, A very large chunk of them are under 40. And who's dying under 40 of COVID? Well, pretty much not many people, but those that are pre-existing conditions, just about all of them. Who's dying under 65 of COVID? Well, it's it's still mainly people with pre-existing conditions. So of the essential workers that are dying of COVID, do you think most of them have pre-existing conditions? Answer, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same group. It's the same group B that are also part of group C. Those are the essential workers that are dying. So that's when the study becomes dishonest because you're not studying two different groups. You're you're studying three groups where the deaths in group B are also the deaths in group C. So that's why there uh, that's why group C seems to have a lot more deaths than it does. That's why the essential workers vaccinating them looks like a better idea than it is. So you may say, well, yeah, but still, there's going to be essential workers who have pre-existing conditions. What do you think we should do about those? I'll say, okay, I'll tell you what we should do. And I'll tell you what an honest study would have been versus this study, which is dishonest. Because this study was meant to make it look like essential workers were in more danger than they really are. Because the average person thinks, oh, well, let's look at this. Grocery store workers, they're in the store all day indoors. They're constantly interacting with people, and some of these people have COVID and don't realize it and give them COVID, and a certain percentage of them die because they have a lot more exposure. So that's why a lot of the younger people are dying too, because there's so many younger people getting infected who work at the grocery store that, yeah, some percentage of them are still dying, so that's why they need it, because they just have way more exposure. And that would seem to make sense on the surface until you really think about it. Because, again, the ones who are actually dying, and in fact, most of the ones even getting permanent damage from it are the ones who have pre-existing conditions. So if they really wanted to do this study, they would have 
done five groups instead of three and separated them out so we can have very little intersection and then we can uh, see the truth about which groups are really most at risk. So they should have done five groups in this modeling. Group A, elderly in nursing homes. Group B, elderly not in nursing homes. Group C, high-risk adults age 16 to 18 to 64 who are essential workers. Group D, high-risk adults age 18 to 64 who are not essential workers. And Group E, essential workers under 65 who are not high-risk adults or elderly. Not only do these groups have little intersection, they have no intersection. Nobody can be in two groups here. You notice that? Nobody here can be in two or more of these groups. So these are five distinct groups that they could have studied. And then you would have a much more accurate picture of, oh, wow, this percentage of people in nursing homes are dying, and this percentage of people who are old but not in nursing homes are dying, and this percentage of people who are essential workers and have uh, pre-existing conditions are dying, and these people who are essential workers with no pre-existing conditions are dying, and this percentage of, of uh, high-risk people who aren't old but are not essential workers are dying. And then you can look at all of them and then really come up with the accurate answer as to who should be getting the vaccine first. Now, I will say this. I have a feeling that people who have pre-existing conditions but aren't old and are essential workers, I think they probably are dying at a fairly high rate. And I think that's not getting enough press. I think that uh, they have a tremendous amount of additional exposure So even though high-risk adults under 65 aren't as vulnerable as just elderly people, I do believe that they are far more vulnerable than average people their age, and that that plus the additional exposure, which is a lot of additional exposure, that those two factors combined are probably killing a lot of them. And that's probably where you're getting those deaths in the essential workers group. So if you were to do this study... I have a feeling this is these would be the conclusions we'd get. I'd be very surprised if it's very far from this. I think if we did the study the way I just said, which, by the way, does not take a genius to figure out, and they have geniuses there. They have very smart and talented people working at the CDC. They have educated, talented people there that don't need me to advise them on how to put this together in a fair fashion. You think they were so stupid at the CDC to put together three groups of which two very much intersect? You think they're dumb or you think this was on purpose? I have a feeling it's not because they're dumb. I don't think they're dumb. This was on purpose. They didn't want to do it the way I just said because then we would see a very clear picture of how many in each group are dying and they would hate for us to see in this group E, the essential workers who are not high-risk adults and not elderly, that only a tiny percentage of them are dying. They don't want to show that almost nobody's dying in that group. Because then everyone's going to say, well, forget it then. We Don't waste the vaccine on them. They're hardly dying. I don't care. They're getting a lot of exposure, but they're, they're doing well anyway. So they don't want that to be seen. And if you don't believe me, go take a look at the death results. Go look at it broken down by age group, and you will see how few people are dying who are under 40. And you will see how the ones that are almost all have pre-existing conditions. So exposure or no exposure If barely any of them are dying from it, if they're healthy and they're young, then you should not waste a vaccine on them, period. So I am certain that vaccinating this group E, what I call, 
the essential workers who are not high risk would prevent very little death and thus is a waste of the early vaccines. I think that the ones who should get the priority should be the elderly nursing homes who are getting the priority, the elderly not in nursing homes, and the high-risk adults who are essential workers. Those are the three groups, plus the healthcare workers who are working directly with COVID patients. Those are the groups that need it. Those are the groups who should get it first. Everybody else should be behind there. Now, the next group after that should be the high-risk adults who are not essential workers because they're still high-risk adults. They're not elderly, they're not essential workers, but still they have a higher chance of dying than most of us, so yes, give it to them next. And then after that should be everybody else, just a general group of everybody else, including essential workers. The 25-year-old grocery store worker does not deserve it before even me. In fact, I would make the case that I deserve it before they do because I am much more likely to suffer detrimental effects or even death from COVID than they are. At 25, without a pre-existing condition, their chance of death is about zero. And their chance of permanent damage is very, very small. My chance of permanent damage from COVID is not very, very small. It's realistic. So I should really get it ahead of certain essential workers, but I'm fine with being in a general group with them. I don't want them to have a priority over me, but I don't think that uh, I should necessarily have a priority over them. I think there should be a general group after you get it to the people who really need it. But there is a reason that they did not split this into five distinct groups like I did because they don't want it in five distinct groups because if groups intersect, then you can start playing games. Then you can, because if, if the people who are dying in group C are also members of group B, then it makes group C look like the death is a lot higher than it really is. You get the trick? I'm sure you do. So how come I can figure it out and you can figure it out, but how come the CDC can't? You think they're that stupid or you think this may have been on purpose? Because keep in mind, in these studies, they keep mentioning racial justice and racial equity and how people of color are uh, essential workers and that has to be considered, blah, 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 blah. That should not figure into this, especially from the CDC of all places. They should not be entering this into their scientific studies. This is anti-scientific. This is that that's that's social posturing. That's making social policy out of scientific studies. And that's not their position to do, nor is this even their area of expertise. Their area of expertise is infectious diseases. And that's it. Not social science. But what bothers me is that the study was crafted on purpose to come up with a certain result they wanted. That's from the CDC under Trump. And that's what made me figure out what was going on. Like I, I knew there's some kind of shenanigan happening, but I didn't really look into it carefully until I looked at this study and really broke it down. And I said, whoa, these two groups intersect and that's not an accident. And that just, you wonder why people don't have trust in the government. And this is why. This is why. And this is when you see these weird conspiracy theories about the 5G and all that other crap that's just not true. You go, how do people believe this? How how do, in some cases, otherwise rational human beings come to believe this sort of nonsense? And I say, the reason you have people believing conspiracy theories now more than ever is because the government doesn't tell the truth or act in good faith. That the studies by so-called neutral scientists who are trying to get to the truth of the scientific method are not really doing so. 
that they are doing these studies with a conclusion already in mind, and they massage the data and massage the study until it gets there. That's why people don't trust it. That's why people say they're always lying to us, so we're just going to believe uh, we're going to believe our information from other sources, and sometimes other other sources are not good. And that's the problem. Sometimes, if the sources which are supposed to be trusted break down and people find reason not to trust them and good reason not to trust them, then often they're replaced by something even worse. And that's how these things happen. That's that's why the institutions we need to trust need to be trustworthy and need to stop politicizing science. And this has gotten me even angrier than I was angry last week. Last week I was just angry that essential workers who were 25 were going to get the vaccine ahead of my parents who were over 75. Now I'm angry because this is intentional. They, they intentionally did a bunk study to get there. So if you're wondering why people don't, quote, follow the science or recommendations from the scientists, that, that's, what, that's how this happens, because the scientists aren't following the science. Now, related to this, Texas and Florida have said, uh-uh, we're not going for this. We are not following these recommendations, which is their right. They, they're not violating federal law. They have a right to come up with their own distribution plan. They have a right to say the CDC is crap and we're not going to believe them. And that is what uh, Texas and Florida have done here, which I wish California would do and I wish more states would do. I, I wish there'd be more backlash to this. Now, by the way, there was an initial backlash because uh, at first they were uh, they had an even worse distribution plan and uh, they were not going to include any elderly people not in nursing homes in that Group 1B. Then they modified it to allow people 75 and older, which which really screws the people who are old and not 75 yet. People who are 74, 73, 72, they have to they have to wait behind the essential workers. People people who are 74 with pre-existing conditions have to wait until a 25 year old uh, essential worker gets his. Can you believe that? They actually have to wait until all of that is done, until every single essential worker who wants it gets it, except in places that don't follow these recommendations. That's insane. That is insane. And and people who are 95 with pre-existing conditions and not in a nursing home have to compete with 25-year-old essential workers to get the vaccine. That's also insane. You see why I don't like this. Anyway, uh, Texas and Florida didn't like it. And uh, they're going their own way. So in Texas, they have said that they're just going to be uh, vaccinating those 65 and older as well as people under 65 with certain major medical conditions in their Phase 1B plan, that they're also vaccinating the healthcare workers and the nursing homes first in Texas, but that after that, their uh, Phase 1B, instead of what the CDC wants of people 75-plus and essential workers, that they're making their own 1B, which is just 65-plus and those with major pre-existing conditions and that essential workers who are not in one of those two groups will have to wait. And that's uh, the right decision, actually. Imelda Garcia, the chair of Texas's expert vaccine allocation panel, said the focus on people who are 65 and older or who have comorbidities will protect most vulnerable populations. I agree. This approach ensures that the Texans at the most severe risk from COVID-19 can be protected across races and ethnicities and regardless of where they work. Great. I mean, that's, that's totally right. 
This isn't just about saving white people. Under the current plan by the CDC, more black people will die who are elderly. More Hispanic people who are elderly will die. Like, this is going to kill additional black and, uh, black and Hispanic people than the plan Texas is bringing out. Texas's plan is saving more black lives, saving more Hispanic lives. I, I thought those lives matter. Apparently not. It, it, it saves lives across the board. They're totally right here in Texas. At the Kaiser Family Foundation, Dr. Jen Cates, who's senior vice president and director of global health and HIV policy, actually said that what Texas is doing is fine. And uh, she said that uh, the question of how to prioritize people to receive a potentially life-saving shot is not an easy one, and there's no right answers, but the state's deviation is quite substantial. And she expects even more states to break from the CDC's recommendation. Yeah, you think? Because the CDC's recommendation sucks and it's anti-scientific. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also said that he's going to break away from that, except uh, they are going to prioritize people over 70 to get the vaccine in Group 1B. They're not going to do essential workers and uh, their their cutoffs going to be 70 instead of 65 in Texas. And it looks like they're also probably not going to prioritize those who uh, have pre-existing conditions under 70, though maybe that might happen. DeSantis said the vaccines are going to be targeted where the risk is going to be the greatest. That's our elderly population. We're not going to put young, healthy workers ahead of our elderly, vulnerable population. I mean, how is that up for debate? How are they putting young, healthy workers ahead of their elderly, vulnerable population anywhere? Unless you're a moron. Unless you value identity politics so much that you want people to die so you can feel good about yourself for uh, racial justice, what you call. It's insane. This uh, Jen Cates at Kaiser said, uh, it's not really about right or wrong, it's about state values. I mean, (laughs) it is about right or wrong. It's about state values of being right or wrong. It's about state values who want to save lives versus state values that want to prove how woke they are. I know some are still defending this. Well, what, what, what if the vaccine actually is preventing transmission? Or, or another one I hear is, well, what, what about the vaccine helping these people not getting sick and stopping essential industries from shutting down? Okay, you answer me this, okay? You've been watching COVID. How many times have you seen where essential industries have collapsed because COVID got bad? Have you seen where hospitals had to shut down because there were no doctors or nurses? I, we, we've seen hospitals getting full from a lot of COVID patients, but that's a different thing. I'm talking about where hospitals just can't function because their workers are all out with COVID. Have you seen that? No. What about uh, the post office? They're, they're part of essential workers. Uh, has your mail not been coming because of COVID at any point? No, it's been coming on time. Well, how's that happening? What about grocery stores? Are those shutting down because of COVID? What? No. I mean, yes, things are disappearing from shelves because of hoarding, but that's not related to uh, COVID illnesses that's related to public panic. But have you seen where grocery stores just can't operate because everyone's sick from COVID? No. Hmm. And have you seen where teachers are so devastated by COVID that they can't teach? No, we haven't seen that either. Hmm. And have we seen where uh, food can't be produced? And we've seen minor versions of this where there's less meat than normal at some points when it affects the meatpacking industry. But for the most part, has there been major food shortages that aren't related to hoarding? No. Huh. 
So how come we've been dealing with COVID for all this time and we haven't seen any yet? How, how come this has not come to pass? That's because who works in these industries? Is it people over 65? No. Is it people under 65 who have major pre-existing conditions? Some of them, but most of them are healthy and most of them are on the younger side. Not all of them, but a very large portion of them are under 40 and the vast, vast majority are healthy. So those that get sick from COVID, first of all, are not knocked out. They just have to leave for a little bit and they come back. And a lot of them are don't even get that sick. In fact, a lot of them are asymptomatic. So these industries are not getting devastated by COVID. We're not going to have a shutdown of these industries. And the truth is, so, okay, let's say a bunch of postal workers get it. Um, so the mail will be a few days late. Isn't it better we save elderly lives than get the mail on time? I'll, I'll wait a few extra days for my mail if we get to save a lot of elderly lives instead. And uh, what's up with, like, teachers? Like, they're, they're not even interacting with vulnerable populations. They're interacting with kids. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the least vulnerable population. So this doesn't make sense. You know what's really happening here? It's a combination of left-wing politics and unions. Because unions are pushing for this too. Unions, are, they're getting the, the police and fire departments vaccinated. They're getting the, uh, uh, the the grocery store workers vaccinated. They're getting the teachers vaccinated. Notice there's a lot of unions involved in these professions. So the unions, which give a ton of money to various political candidates and causes, they have a lot of influence. And they also have a lot of influence in convincing their membership who to vote for and who not to vote for. So politicians are very afraid of unions and unions have a lot of influence. And so this is a combination of union influence and just general left-wing identity politics infecting science. And it shouldn't be happening. Now you may say, oh, this is just another stupid right-wing rant. You know, I'm so tired of the right-wing politics here at the end of the show. Well, I have something to say back to you. I have something to say back. Nate Silver is not a right-winger. Nate Silver is a Democrat. Nate Silver is a liberal. But he has been tweeting about this like crazy. He has been going nuts all over Twitter about this. There's been others who have been longtime liberals, longtime haters of Trump, longtime haters of Republicans who are saying exactly what I am saying. A lot of people who are not crazy, super-extreme leftists, but solid liberals that would never vote for a Republican candidate in their lives, and never have, never will, and are, are very much uh, on the left side politically, have been writing editorials that this is insane, and that the people are going to die, and that this is the wrong time to be asserting identity politics. That it's just very simple, follow the science, follow the statistics, follow the numbers, and save lives. And it upsets people very much to see this. And by the way, don't think they're doing the same thing in Europe. Like the UK, they're doing it by age. Most other countries are not doing this. They're, most other countries are, are doing this the way they should. They are doing this by vulnerability. Because every country's got the same problem with the vaccine that they're not going to have enough to give out to everybody initially. So you've got to prioritize. Notice I am not asking for myself to be prioritized even though I've been very cautious about COVID, even though I'm afraid of COVID, even though I've been hiding from COVID. 
Notice I am not saying, give it to me first. Notice I'm not trying to find flimsy reasons to give it to myself first, because I have high blood pressure or uh, type A blood, which, by the way, those are both uh, considered pre-existing conditions, not major ones, but they're considered conditions which uh, make you more likely to die of COVID. So here I'm near 50, I have type A blood and high blood pressure, so I am definitely someone who is semi-vulnerable to COVID. Nothing like an old person. Nothing like people with like diabetes or or uh, with with a history of cancer. Like those people are much more vulnerable than me. But I'm more vulnerable even than the average person my age. And still, I'm not asking for the vaccine now. I'm not even asking to be separated out from the general group. I'm actually saying, put me in the general group. Put me in the last priority general group after the true priority people are ahead of me. But I I also don't think that people who are young and healthy and much less vulnerable to the disease should get it before me. You want to put them at the same time as me? Fine. But not before me. But what I'm concerned about right now is not myself. I'm concerned about my parents. I'm concerned about old people everywhere in this country. White old people, black old people, Hispanic old people, I want as few of them to die as possible. Some will die of COVID. Some are going to die anyway, but I'm talking about of COVID. Some are going to die. Some are going to die that wouldn't have died if we had 330 million vaccines right off the bat. You can't vaccinate everybody right at the beginning. I understand that. But you've got to do it in an intelligent way that will save the most lives. And they're not. And they released a dishonest study to try to justify it. And if you look at the study, you'll see. Go look at it. You will see what I'm saying is true. And that's the reason that longtime liberals, the ones who have the balls to come out and say it, are saying, you know, I hate to say it, but the people on my side who are backing this, they're wrong. They're going to cost lives. Nate Silver, in fact, said that he has bit his tongue for a long time about COVID for the entire year, about people who claim to be following the science, but are actually not. And he was not talking about Trump. He was not talking about Republicans. He was talking about people on his own political side. That he's wanted to call them out for a long time, that he's been so tired of watching them smugly claim they are following the science, when in reality they only follow the science when it happens to lead them to the conclusion they want. But as soon as there's something deviating from it, they manipulate the numbers and they go their own way. And he finally couldn't be quiet anymore. And many other liberals are doing the same thing. And I applaud you guys. I applaud you liberals who are speaking out about this and who don't want to see unnecessary death. It takes uh, a brave person in today's day and age, especially a prominent person who has a lot to lose, to come and speak out against uh, their own side, especially their own side that is uh, currently largely in control of uh, media and social media and corporate institutions. There, there can be a backlash for saying these things, but they they see that these plans are going to kill a lot of additional people and they don't want to see unnecessary death. And they say, I don't care. I'm going to say it. And if something happens to me, if it ruins me in some way, I'm going to say it anyway. And I admire their bravery to say this, and I think a lot more of them, those that have spoken out about this, especially... It's, it's easier to speak out about this if you're on the right, because uh, 
that that's not a tough thing to do. You're you're basically taking the line that the left is wrong and the left is killing people and the left being hypocritical. I mean, right wingers love this, but they they don't love the fact that it's going to kill people. They don't love the fact that their parents aren't getting the vaccine, but they love the they they love being able to say it. They they don't say, oh man, I really wish I didn't have to criticize these Democrats here, but here I go. Like they they're happy to do to to levy the criticism. But those on the on the left, those who are liberals that are saying this, I take my hat off to you because that shows you care. And I hope those of you who are on the left side listen to what I'm saying here and realize this is insane and realize that your side doesn't always follow the science and that it is time to rein in the crazy identity politicians that try to make everything about race. In fact, I thought the goal was to make nothing about race. I thought that's what we're looking for. I thought we're looking for a colorblind society where we stop separating people into groups. Because it's it's kind of funny. I, I, I've seen this comparison before, and, and it's sadly kind of true. The white supremacists, the KKK types, and the extreme left identity politicians, they have something in common. And that they want to define everybody and everything by race. And that everybody else is looking for a colorblind society where you ignore race. And where you act like you don't even see it. And where it doesn't even come into your mind. Kind of the way kids are before they learn about uh, racism and stuff like that. They just, they, they don't think about, oh, this is my black friend. This is my Hispanic friend. This is my Asian friend. This is my friend. Or I don't like this guy. I just don't like him because he's a jerk. He's a bully. I don't, I don't dislike him because he's black. Like that, That's the way kids think when they're four or five years old. Then as they get older, then that's when they start to get the racial stereotypes in mind, sometimes because they hear adults saying it. And the goal of society should be to get back to the purity of not judging people based upon race. And just where race is something you don't even see, other than just, you, you may see it with your eyes, but you really don't see it with your mind. That should be the goal. But the people who are constantly looking to separate everybody into groups based upon race, that's never good. Whether it's from the white supremacist KKK standpoint or from the extreme left identity politics standpoint, it's it's never good. It's never going to result in anything good. And this is an example that's going to kill people. And sadly, California is probably going to do it this way. It's looking like they're doing it this way. I'm glad Texas and Florida aren't, and those are large states. And hopefully more states follow suit. But it's very sad. You know, why why should politics even be part of this? This is a disease. COVID's not political. COVID doesn't uh, care who it's infecting. It doesn't care if it's infecting a Republican or a Democrat or a black person or a white person. It It just wants to infect people, and then people die from it. Why? Why? Our politics being used here. The sci- the pure science really should be the answer. The pure science should be the way we approach this. Now, political... Uh, where politics should come in is to assure that everybody has the proper access to it and that if there's a prioritizing that needs to be done, that it's done uh, in the way that the science would suggest. That's where the politicians should get involved not by perverting the whole thing by breaking from the science for some sort of uh, social justice sort of uh, goal. It's crazy.
I've got one more thing for you. So we're not quite at the end. I've got one more editorial. It's not about COVID, but it is a political editorial. So if you're tired of the politics, you can turn it off because that's the whole rest of the show's politics. But a discussion came up this week on the forum about cancel culture and the marketplace of ideas. And I'll talk about each one and then we'll figure out which of the two is really happening. So cancel culture, I'm sure you've heard about a lot in 2020. It's basically the concept that someone who says something on social media, during an interview, whatever, that if they say something which is deemed politically incorrect, that uh, there's an effort to push them out of society or push them out of whatever prominent position they have. It could be an actor, it could be a musician, it could be a politician. Just as soon as someone says or does something that's uh, deemed inappropriate in any way, even if it's relatively minor, then the canceled mob comes for them and punishes them and takes away a lot of what they have. So that's cancel culture. The marketplace of ideas is something similar, but it's much less sinister. The marketplace of ideas is where the whenever you say something or do something, you're going to get a reaction. And that if you say or do something good, you'll get a good reaction. If you say or do something bad, you'll get a bad reaction. And that uh, this has been the case with human behavior since the beginning of time. And that we can't tell people not to react to things they don't like because that's the way life is. If you make a mistake, if you say or do something stupid, then you have to suffer the consequence from it. And that's what the marketplace of ideas is. It's what allows the best ideas to eventually rise up and become prominent and the worst ideas to be shunned and people who are pushing them get forced to the background to where they're not relevant anymore. The marketplace of ideas has resulted in a lot of social progress over time. The marketplace of ideas is, is part of the reason that we don't have uh, separate drinking fountains for black people anymore, to where we don't have slavery anymore, to where, where there's uh, equal rights laws, to where uh, women can vote. There's, there's a lot of different social changes that have happened over the years that have been partially the result of the marketplace of ideas, and people who continue to believe these old ideas that were not good, uh, they will be shunned, they will... They, they're even afraid to say it for the most part because they're going to get such a terrible reaction and sometimes even consequences for saying such a thing. So you, you don't see many people on social media saying that women shouldn't vote or that black people should be drinking for different drinking fountains or, 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 or segregated into different schools. Like You don't see that anymore because these things are believed by uh, the vast majority of society to be wrong and mistakes of the past. And uh, so you can't have this type of progress without the marketplace of ideas. So Where's the difference between cancel culture and the marketplace of ideas? Because couldn't you say that cancel culture is the marketplace of ideas where someone who is saying something which is uh, insensitive in some way, whether insensitive to black people or, or gay people or, or trans people or, or uh, anything else that if they or to women, whatever it might be, that this causes those who engage in such behavior to be pushed out of the forefront of culture. So should we really try to interfere with or complain about the marketplace of ideas, which has always existed and has resulted in a lot of positive changes? 
And is there a difference between cancel culture and the marketplace of ideas? Well, I'm going to give you that answer, at least in my opinion. Because I, I think there is a marketplace of ideas and that should not be interfered with, but I also feel there is a cancel culture which shouldn't exist anymore. A common thing I hear about censorship is that as long as the government is not preventing you from saying something, then censorship isn't occurring. The censorship is only something on a government level. Not true. In fact, if I delete your post on Poker Fraud Alert, I am engaging in censorship. Now, it might be justified censorship, but it is censorship. So, not all censorship is necessarily bad, though I tend to usually be against it, which is why I've always uh, run free speech communities when I've been in charge. But uh, there, there can be some censorship that's good. Uh, I'll give you a very basic example. If someone were to show up on my site and post, hey, I found a credit card on the ground today. Let's use it before before anyone discovers it. Here's the credit card number. Here's the expiration date. Here's the CVV number. You know, have at it, guys. Well, I would delete that post. I would I would censor that post. And I think most of you would agree that that would be the right move, even if I couldn't get in trouble for it, even if somehow I was uh, able to be uh, not legally liable for leaving it up, which I, actually I might be because uh, I could just simply claim I didn't see it and uh, and I would pretty much be relieved of liability there. I, I would still remove it because I, I wouldn't think it would be right to leave that up there. So... I would be engaging in censorship, but it would be correct censorship. So censorship can exist on any level. And today it can really exist outside of the government because of social media. Social media is something that did not exist until about uh, a little more than 10 years ago. Social media is huge. It is extremely influential. And influential voices within social media, when social media censors them or silences them, is a huge form of censorship because censorship doesn't have to come from the government. Again, censorship is basically the act of preventing someone from speaking, preventing someone from getting their message out. And whether it's the government preventing this or whether it is a private company or individual causing this the censorship, it doesn't matter because there is still the act of censorship occurring. However, I will agree that private companies and individuals do have more of a right to censor others than the government should have. So you may not want certain content to be on your platform. If you are the one in control of the platform, you may not want that certain content there. For example, maybe you don't want racist material on your forum. Maybe you just you absolutely don't want anything on your forum that could even be construed as a little bit racist or a little bit homophobic. You just don't allow that on your form. You don't want it there. That's perfectly within your rights to do. And nobody should be able to say, oh, no, I should be able to post uh, the N-word on, on your form and it, it's censorship to remove it. Don't do that. Like, it, it's your form. You can make the rules of what you want there. But when it comes to large social media, while, yes, they have a right to set standards, because of their large and influential position in society – if they start to engage in ideological censorship, then we start to have a problem, and that's where it starts to be almost like pseudo-government censorship. So we have to be very careful about what we approve of there. And furthermore, 
as far as cancel culture is concerned, cancel culture is another form of censorship because censorship is not always just the removal of your ability to say something. It also is the introduction of a consequence for saying something. So let me give you a very simple example. Let's say the government does not require that anything that I say to criticize them gets removed, but if I say anything to criticize them, they come to my house, grab me, and kill me. Even if what I have to say will not be removed, I probably will not criticize them because I don't want them coming to my house and killing me. So therefore, they're engaging with in censorship without me even having my material removed. Now again, we're talking about the government, so let's let's go back now to uh, something that's not the government. If people are afraid to express their mainstream opinions, and when I say mainstream opinions, I don't mean really, really out there opinions that almost nobody has, that have been deemed by society at large to be uh, antiquated and harmful opinions that will get someone shunned. For example, saying women shouldn't vote or saying that uh, black people shouldn't be in schools with white people, things like that. If, if you say something which is considered outrageous by the vast, vast majority of society, while I think you should have the right to say it, I don't think it's a bad thing if people shun you for it or if you suffer consequences for it because that's part of being in society is, is, is conforming to uh, certain basic standards of what's right and wrong. And again, you should have the right to say things, but you can't say you should have the right to say things with no consequence by how you're perceived. But if you are holding a mainstream opinion, if you are holding an opinion that a large percentage of the population believes to be true, whether it's right or wrong, if, the, if that's currently a widely held opinion and you are penalized for it, or you are penalized for expressing support for a major political candidate like the existing president of the United States, then that's a different matter. And if you are suffering major consequences in your career, which has nothing to do with your politics, if your career is not tied to your politics, but just people don't like your politics and choose to punish you by an organized attempt to remove you from your career or remove you from your job, because you're expressing political views which, while mainstream, they don't like, then that is definitely cancel culture, and that is definitely a form of censorship. Why? Because the end result is you are afraid to express mainstream political opinion because those who disagree with you will punish you, and will punish you in large numbers that will have a negative effect, a major negative effect on your life. Not just people won't like you or people will argue with you, that's fine, but where people will actually seek out your employer and a lot of people will go to your employer and ask your employer to fire you. There are a lot of people today who are afraid to express support for President Trump, and I don't mean like this whole thing about uh, the election being stolen, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about before the election, that there are a lot of people who were afraid to even say that they voted for Trump or they're going to vote for Trump or they like Trump. They're afraid to even say that because they're afraid they'll lose their jobs. They're afraid to express any conservative viewpoint. They're afraid to express that they don't like the fact that uh, some parents are, are letting their kids transition when they're three years old. Like, you have to be afraid to say these things now on social media because a certain mob will come for you 
and go to your employer and try to get you fired. And the corporations these days are either infested with people who also believe this stuff or are so afraid to rock the boat and so afraid to get this very vulgar, vocal group of people angry at them on social media that they'll just uh, back down and, and, and fire those for being, quote, insensitive to say things like that. So basically a very large portion of the country – when I say very large, I don't necessarily mean the majority, but something close, 40%, 45% can't express their political views without consequence, without severe consequences to them personally. So that's a form of censorship. If you're afraid to state a mainstream opinion, then if you're afraid to state it because of career consequences, then that's a big problem. That That is a form of censorship. But let's go back to the marketplace of ideas. How is this not the marketplace of ideas? How is it not just uh, people are stating something that's bad, stating something that's harmful, and they're suffering consequence for it? Well, because it's not necessarily bad and harmful. It's just that a very vocal group on the other side has taken it upon themselves to start punishing people for being vocal about their, their politics that they don't agree with. And that's very sad. And that's something that should not be supported and that's something that should not be excused as just simply the marketplace of ideas. That's intimidation. That's ideological intimidation where you better not disagree with me or you're going to suffer a real-life consequence. Here, I'm not just going to argue with you. I'm going to make sure you suffer. I'm going to make sure your career suffers. I'm going to make sure that you're going to rue the day you ever said this because of all the bad things that are going to happen to you. Not illegal bad things, but... I can do some legal bad things to really make your life miserable because you dare have a political opinion that's different than mine. That's basically what they're saying. That's a form of censorship. But let's get back to the marketplace of ideas and let's get back to something that happened on the right, a form of what some people say is cancel culture on the right. Way back before anyone used the term cancel culture, way back, I think it was in 2004, when the Dixie Chicks, maybe even before 04, sometime in the early 2000s, the Dixie Chicks fell out of prominence very abruptly when they were in the UK, I think they were in London, and they criticized President Bush and the war, the uh, Iraq war. And they even said they were ashamed to be from Texas like George Bush was because of all the violence he's bringing. And they said this while performing in the UK. And once it got back to people in America... The Dixie Chicks, which was probably the biggest country act in the early 2000s, immediately fell out of favor. People stopped buying their albums. People stopped going to their concerts. People were pressuring radio stations to stop playing their music. I'm talking about, when I say people, I mean country music fans. The ones who loved them before suddenly hated them. And they went from a major, major top mainstream act that was wildly successful to falling into semi-obscurity. They still existed, they still made music, but they were more of a niche act at that point. They were no longer mainstream, and you weren't hearing them on country radio anymore. I know this because I'm a country music fan, and I stopped hearing them on country radio, and I followed the whole thing as it happened. So some people look back on that and say, hey, look, the right engages in cancel culture. They, they did it to the Dixie Chicks. The Dixie Chicks said something about the president and, uh, and the war, and, and country fans canceled them. So is that cancel culture or is that the marketplace of ideas? Well, I'm actually going to tell you, I believe it was the marketplace of ideas and I'll tell you why. 
the Dixie Chicks were not just – they didn't just hold a, a regular job and they didn't hold an unrelated job. Their career was being country music stars. And country music is known to be very patriotic. It's known to very much skew right wing. It's not all right wing, but it very much skews right wing. And uh, when so, so the problem is here that if you go to a foreign country and you bash the U.S. foreign policy and you bash the president, who's also a Republican president, then all of a sudden you are being you're you're pretty much the opposite of what people in your fan base want to hear. You're pretty much exactly what the people in your fan base are trying to get away from when they listen to country music. If you ask a country music fan, why do you like country music? You'll get answers like, it's patriotic, it's wholesome, I like the honest message of it, things like that. Uh, you're not going to get, uh, oh, it's subversive, oh, I, I, love how it, uh, I love how it criticizes the president, I love how it criticizes uh, the U.S., I love how it says the, e- the U.S. is an evil, a bigoted place. Like No one's going to say that because that's not what country music is about. Country music, is, is a large portion of it is loving your country. And, and being patriotic and believing that America is great. And that's not all of country music. You know, there's, there's other aspects to it. There's the, uh, the songs about love and about relationships, even ones that are negative. But uh, there's not many uh, subversive country music songs because they wouldn't survive. They wouldn't do well. They wouldn't become hits because that's not why people listen to country music. So the Dixie Chicks were not just musicians – they they were they have an image and that image was tainted they tainted their own image where all of a sudden they became subversive and people who are country music fans didn't like that they no longer wanted to listen to them because they are listening to country music to get away from that they they're not they're they're, they're getting away from the subversion listening to the country music they want, they're not turning on country music to hear about how evil the Iraq war is and how bad uh, George Bush is. So even if the Dixie Chicks aren't singing that, if you're hearing that they're saying this while performing in other countries, then uh, this, makes, this makes country music fans upset, and they, they, cho- they chose to abandon them. So, so in my opinion, that's actually fine because you can't tell people what to enjoy. You can't tell people what uh, artists to like, and you can't tell them... Uh, that they can't change their opinion about an artist because the artist uh, has political beliefs and states them out, out loud while in another country uh, th- that that oppose your beliefs, then uh, that's more of the marketplace of ideas. You may you may have agreed with the Dixie Chicks. You may have thought they were right. You may have uh, felt it was too bad that they they basically lost their careers thanks to this. But this here's where it's different. And by the way, we have, we have Trader Risky on. Hello. Trader Risky, there. What's happening? Oh, there you, there you. I, I did not realize you were such a big country music fan. Oh no, I have been. I, I've been for uh, since the, the early '90s. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you after this little thing I'm saying what, how I became a country music fan. But uh, they, so so here's the difference. Let's say Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks. Let's say she was uh, an engineer working for Boeing, and she said this while she was in the UK and, and it got back to people in the U S and they said, okay, we're going to get her fired from Boeing because uh, she hates president Bush and she, th- she hates the Iraq war. I would say that was wrong. 
I would say she should not be fired for that. She has a right to feel that way, and this doesn't affect her job working as an engineer at Boeing, and you, you shouldn't do that. I would say that. Let's say she was an actress who was appearing in a romantic comedy. Uh, I would not say you should drop her from the cast, because that has nothing to do with her opinion of, of President Bush. Aside from the fact that most most actresses probably wouldn't like President Bush back then anyway, but putting that aside, even if most of them did, I, I don't care what politics someone has, and and most and you shouldn't care what they have, if it has nothing to do with their job. So you're, you know, if, if you're an actress, it, it doesn't have to do with your job. You should you should be able to appreciate an actor or an actress regardless of their politics if they do a good job in the films they appear. Uh, let's say uh, she was a teacher. Same thing. So there, there's so many different careers where you could say it would not be fair to have career consequences for have for having a certain political opinion, even if it's one you hate. But when her political opinion is tied to the uh, the type of music that she's thriving in, when, when her audience is there because they are uh, lo- looking for patriotism, because that they are listening to this uh, form of music to get away from that sort of thing, and then you show that you're part of what they're trying to get away from, of course they're not going to listen to you anymore because it's very related to it. Just like uh, um, if... If a uh, let's say there was a successful white rapper that was uh, that was doing well, and 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 black people were buying his music, if that person started criticizing Barack Obama and then nobody wanted to listen to him anymore, I, I'd understand that too, because you when when there's uh, something that's tied to directly tied to what uh, your job is, and especially if it's if it's the performing arts where people are either like you or dislike you, and that you say something to make them dislike you, that's very different than being punished at an unrelated job because they just want someone wants to get back at you for not thinking the way they think. That's two totally different things. Because again, think of yourself if you're a country music fan, you're listening to country music, and you 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 generally believe that the people you're listening to have uh, that they're not subversive. They're, they they don't hate the president. They don't hate they don't hate. Uh, they don't think the U.S.'s involvement is an atrocity, whatever. Like You're listening specifically to get away from that. And then you find out that one of these artists you listen to actually does feel that way. You can think, oh, crap, that's, that's what I'm trying to get away from. I don't want to listen to them anymore. Like, that's what happened there. So nobody has a right to have an audience. Nobody has a right to have fans. Nobody has a right to be liked. But you do you do have a right in general, maybe not a legal right, but you should have a moral right to be able to live normally and not have your entire life upended because you have a political opinion which has absolutely nothing to do with your job. And that's that's where I find the difference. And that's where I don't think people should ever be punished for uh, for beliefs that they have politically on whatever side they're on uh, if their job is unrelated to it. I'll give you another example. Which Let's say uh, someone like Ben Shapiro, a conservative uh, broadcaster. Let's say all of a sudden he started expressing a lot of left-wing viewpoints. Well, guess what would happen? His audience would abandon him. He would become a nobody. I don't think the left would want him either. I think, I think nobody would listen to him at that point if he just turned around and all of a sudden just became left-wing and started bashing Republicans. Well, his entire fan base would leave. I don't want to hear this from him. And, they, and there would probably be a lot of Republicans telling everybody not to listen to him. But again, this would have to do directly with his job, which is to be a conservative commentator. Whereas uh, if Ben Shapiro was just a lawyer, like was his original job title before he got into the uh, the conservative talk genre, 
then he shouldn't be canceled, no matter what his political opinions are, even if they change. So that's that's where the that's where I feel there's a big difference between the marketplace of ideas and cancel cultures. And that unfortunately, some people are believing that if you have certain viewpoints, which again, I'm talking about mainstream viewpoints, not if you if you go onto Twitter and type overtly racist things. If you, if you do that, I agree. If then then. If you suffer consequences from it, it's your fault because you're you're straying so far from the mainstream and and saying extreme offensive stuff. It may be your right to say it, but it's not your right to have zero consequence from it. But the fact that people are afraid to express the true political opinions, mainstream ones, because of their careers, which have nothing to do with politics, is very sad. And I've said many times before, I could not say a lot of what I say. On this show, on my forum, I could not say a lot of things I say if I was working for somebody else. And that's sad, because I don't say anything very extreme. I say things that are opinionated and are definitely on one side, but I don't say anything that's so extreme that like almost nobody believes it. And it's uh, it, it's really too bad that that's happened. So that's... I, I What I want is pretty simple. I want everybody, right and left to be able to express their true viewpoints and not suffer consequences from it. Again, something super extreme, if there's some sort of consequence they have in their career, fine. But anything that's even close to mainstream, everybody should be should have the right to express themselves and just say, okay, well, we don't agree, but we can be civil about it. We can have a civil discussion. At the end of the day, we may not be able to agree with each other at all. But we're not going to try to hurt each other, and I don't mean physically, I mean even hurt each other's careers or whatever. There should be no attempt to ruin someone because they don't think like like you do. And again, the only exception is if you're in a particular genre which directly relates to this opinion. Because you're also not guaranteed to everybody like you. So if if, uh, if your career depends upon a certain niche group liking you, then yeah, if you say something to make them dislike you, that's that's tough luck. That's the marketplace of ideas. I always say nobody's guaranteed an audience. I'm not guaranteed an audience. If I say things to drive everyone away here, then that's what happens. Everybody leaves. And I, I could not blame everybody. If everybody just said, I suck and I'm and everything I say here is awful and they don't listen to me, uh, that would be my fault for misreading the audience. I couldn't say what the hell you guys screwed me over by not listening to me anymore. I've never believed that I deserve anybody's listenership. And I've always been anti-censorship, and I've always been anti all forms of censorship other than where it's obviously justified. And when I say obviously justified, I mean where it's uh, preventing direct harm or stopping things that are actually breaking the law, like credit card numbers or whatever. Or... uh, you know, in small private settings or, or some kind of organized setting where something doesn't belong. So I'm not again, you know, certain forums that are not supposed to be places where people can say outrageous things. If, if the forum owner wants to delete uh, acts of you know statements of racism or homophobia, that's uh, totally fine. That's that's their choice to do. Social media is a different story. The social media is supposed to be a, a, a large open exchange of ideas. I could get on board with like really extreme overt offensive statements being uh being blocked there provided that's all they stick to. 
but nothing beyond that. This was thought about long before social media, long before any of us were born. The value of free speech was understood. It was understood back in the 1700s. And while much has changed since then, and I, I always hear that article, uh, I always hear that argument. Oh, you know, there was no social media. There wasn't all the fake news then. There wasn't a way for, for fringe outlets to reach people and, and trick them into believing that absurd things are true. We, we've got to find a way to stop that. Well, if you could find a, a perfect way to stop things that are untrue from being published without suppressing things that are true but unflattering to one side, great. But there's no way. There's no way to do that. No such thing as totally accurate fact-checking, because fact-checking is never totally neutral. There's no way to do it. So then the solution is, just don't do it. Just let let the marketplace of ideas decide. Let's just let, if people are going to post bullshit, you're going to get a lot of people responding, saying, no, 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 that's bullshit. And I see that all the time. I see on Twitter, someone will post something stupid. And then a lot of people come back saying, no, 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 you're a moron. Here, here's why you're wrong. I'll even see where someone has a reasonable point and someone else comes back with a, another point, a counterpoint, which is reasonable. And I kind of think, hmm, it's kind of hard to decide who's right here. I'm talking about like political stuff. So that's what it's for. That's, that's what social media is good for is you can see the full discussion. You're not just – you don't get some one side crammed down your throat without the other side's ability to respond. And you're never going to have it where everybody thinks the way you want. You're never going to have it to where – Everybody can be convinced by you or by others on the same side as you. And you're never going to have it where people are not going to be able to be tricked by bad actors who are putting out uh, false conspiracy theories. So that's the nature of social media. It's going to happen. If you don't think this should happen, there should be no social media. Then we should just shut it all down. It should become illegal, which it shouldn't be. I don't agree it should be illegal, but I'm saying that if, if your view is that this type of stuff shouldn't happen – and it's a tragedy it is happening, then the solution is to shut it all down to where it can't happen. But engaging in censorship is is never the right approach. And I I don't want anything censored. I don't want anything censored that disagrees with me. And I don't want anything censored that agrees with me. And I don't want even uh, wild conspiracy stuff censored. I just want people to be able to respond and say, this stuff is stupid. <laughs> and then anyone with half a brain can read it and see that it's stupid. And yes, you'll, you'll have some delusional people that won't believe it, that, that it's wrong, and will think that it's uh, what they're reading is correct, and that's going to happen. You're always going to have people believing weird things. I, I knew 30 years ago people believed weird things. That's always going to happen, with or without social media. So it, it's sad that there's been increasing support over time for abandoning the concept of free speech. The former head of the ACLU, a fellow Jew named Ira Glasser, he's now like 82 years old, he did an interview two months ago that I watched that he was very disappointed, not just with uh, the current uh, anti-free speech environment out there, on his own side of the aisle. He's, he's not a Republican Jew. This is a, a, a long time, a lifelong left-wing Jew, Ira Glasser, ACLU head in the past. And his politics have not changed. He's the same guy he's always been. And he said he is very disappointed to see on his own side what's happening. 
was very disappointed to see the anti-free speech environment, the cancel culture, the belief that suppressing free speech for supposedly noble causes, such as uh, preventing hate speech or preventing misinformation, that people don't realize that this always results in a worse result than had you done nothing, and that censorship is ultimately used to silence the marginalized, that the way to prevent people from being marginalized or abused is to very much defend free speech, even speech you disagree with. I say he's right. You know, he and I don't agree politically with very much, but as far as all the, as far as all this, he was right, and he has the same opinion he had about free speech as he did thirty, forty, fifty years ago, sixty years ago. I mean, the, the whole his whole life, he's believed that. His whole life, he's been very much on the left, and still is. And he's disappointed. He's disappointed in the ACLU itself, saying that he's sad they've abandoned that, and that the, a lot of people at the ACLU actually now support suppression of speech, support censorship of books. Unfortunately, there's some who really believe that you can make society better by just suppressing the bad stuff. If, if people can't read certain bad stuff, then we've done a good thing. If, if we have silenced a certain contingent that we deem evil or racist or bigoted or homophobic, that if we can keep them from speaking, then society will be better. Now, on the surface, that can seem true until you think about it and go, wait a minute, what about those who aren't, who just have a little bit of a different opinion, or a lot of a different opinion about uh, issues surrounding this stuff? People who are not racist or homophobic or transphobic, but just uh, don't agree that, uh, don't agree with the current leftist viewpoint on these matters. Can they speak? Or are they deemed awful bigots too? And are they also being silenced? So are you really silencing the haters? The evil people? Or are you silencing anyone who disagrees with you? And it's it's a, a line that's very easy to cross even when you don't realize it. And that's why the easiest and simplest and most effective approach is not to silence any of it. And by silence, I really mean silence in any form. If you try to pressure right-wing speakers to not speak on college campuses, that's censorship. If you try to get people fired from their job because they express political points you don't like. That's censorship. If you make people fearful that they will lose their job if they express their political points of view, that's censorship. If you if if you uh, outright suppress their ability to put out their message on social media, that's censorship. So that there's a lot of forms of censorship and there's a lot of denial about that. A lot of people just say, oh no, as long as the government isn't stopping it, as long as it's just private companies that should be allowed, should be fine. Cancel culture, it's fine. Just people, just people uh, asserting their right to shame those that uh, are doing mean and awful and bigoted things. Sounds good, but it's not. In general, sometimes you just shouldn't reinvent the wheel. You shouldn't try to uh, things that have been long-held cornerstones of this country that aren't oppressing any particular group. I'm not talking about things like slavery or anything along those lines. I'm talking about uh, cornerstones of the country that uh, are, are really meant to promote equality. You shouldn't be reevaluating them 
as to why they actually are wrong and why why the way to bring about more equality is to engage in suppression and to engage in control. A lot of this stuff was figured out a long time before we were around, and there's a reason for it. Unrelated to speech, like I'll even see things like the current gig economy with things like Lyft and Uber and Postmates and DoorDash and and Airbnb, and people go, wow, this is great. You know, we have, we have all these industries now where people, just regular people can do these jobs. They can make hotels out of their house. They can turn their car into a taxi. They can... They can become their own delivery service, and what we don't need all this lousy regulation. Boy, our fathers and grandfathers were idiots to support such a structure. Who needs this crappy middleman? And in some ways they're right, but in a lot of ways they're wrong because you start noticing a lot of things suck about these services, and there's a lot of uh, downsides. And you go, hmm, if only there were a way to have some regulations about this stuff. You go, oh, wait a minute. No wonder the, 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 that's why these regulations were here, because before they existed, there were all kinds of abuses and bad things happened. So that's why that's why these are. Oh, OK. Now I understand. Now I understand why. Uh, like, I, I see a lot of things that people are just learning again for the first time that were learned many decades ago. I'm not saying there can't be progress, that there can't be modification or lightening of regulations. Of course, there can be change over time, but some basic things, there's a reason they're there. There's a reason some of the structures that we were born into were in place. And that it's not just that we're so much smarter than people were uh, 80 years ago, that we figured out that all that stuff wasn't necessary. Definitely with censorship, that's the case. And I've I've tried to always hold to those ideals about censorship. I've always run communities with, censor- with with without censorship. I definitely don't ever censor ideas. I allow people to engage in constructive criticism and even outright insulting me as long as it isn't to an extreme to where it uh, just is all they do. But yeah, you read the forum, you see people bashing me all the time. I don't ban them for that. You see the the radio thread. People people were bashing me all over the place about canceling the free roll. That's where I undid it. I didn't ban anyone for that. I actually backed down and put the free roll back. So Trader Risky, you want to know why how I became a country music fan? Oh, he fell back asleep. I think Trader Risky may have. No, no, I did, and I just couldn't get off. Oh, they'll, they'll... I do want to know. I have a feeling Ken Scaler has something. To no, he doesn't. Ken, no, Ken Scaler doesn't like country music, so it wouldn't be from him. It's actually pretty simple. I moved to Riverside in 1993. And in Riverside, it was very big at the time. The country music there, there were like four country music radio stations. By far the most of any genre. Uh, Country music was big in the early to mid-90s anyway. Line dancing exploded, which I was never into line dancing, but that that kind of fueled the rise of country music in the early 90s. So... Would pay to see that drop. <laughs> yeah, video. So, so it, in, in uh, Riverside, there were like there was country music everywhere I looked. There, every time I turned the radio dial, it, it's four different spots there on the FM dial was country music. So I just kind of went up there, 
And then I just, I started to like it. I, and I didn't like it beforehand. In fact, in 89, when I, I worked in a computer store, there was a guy who was a big country music fan. He always put it on and I was always battling with him. I kept changing the station back to Kiss FM, which is the top 40 station. And he kept changing it back to the country music station, whatever it was at the time in 89. And uh, so I, I didn't like that at all back then. But somehow uh, four years later in Riverside, I, I was able to uh, give it more of a chance. And, uh, and I listened to it and and I got to like it. And so... I just got into it, and by the time I left Riverside, a little more than two years later, I, I was a fan of country music, and I actually went on to believe that the late 80s and uh, early 90s was actually the best time for country music. That's the era of it I like best. I, I liked some of it before, from like the 70s, and some of it uh, as late as the 2000s, but I, I really don't listen to modern country music from the... 2010s and now 2020s and I didn't even listen to as much in the 2000s it was kind of like I, I kind of caught it at the time that I found most appealing and I, I've spoken to others who feel the same way that they really like that that era of the 80s and 90s and I think part of this is that pop music had started to creep into it but hadn't really taken over yet it, it didn't sound too poppy yet but it also wasn't – it didn't sound like the the old classic country music. So it was easier to relate to. It was easy for me to bridge over that way from someone who was a, a pop music listener to a country music listener since the pop music had started to influence it but not really uh, ruin it yet. Where I feel I felt as time passed, it got – it became too much that direction and, and wasn't as good anymore. So – Anyway, that, that's how it happened. That's how, how a, a Jew from the West Coast, like myself, uh, got into country music. You wouldn't expect that. But, you know. Wow. Yeah. It, it doesn't, I don't think there's that many uh, West Coast Jews who listen to country music. But I'm one of them. True. I mean, the closest I've ever gotten to country music is I did make out with one of my first cousins one time. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is, is that true? Did you really do that, or is that a joke, or is it both? I I did really do it. Oh my but, goodness! Wait, know, that's that's very a very large family, and I never met her before. And next thing I know, her hammered me out. But it, it did not go any further than that. So I'll just state that. Wait, so so you didn't know, you didn't know she was the first cousin at the time? No, I knew she was my first cousin, but it was just you know, it's just you know, I'm from you know, my whole family's from back east. I, a lot of these people I never even met and. Oh, I see she was a stranger. Went out one night and then, yeah, exactly. Well, I see, I, I couldn't have brought myself to do that. I, I don't have any first cousins, so I, I, I can't say from experience because I, I wouldn't have had the chance. I have zero first cousins, zero second cousins. But if I did, right. I, I don't think I would have been able to bring myself to do it. I just, I don't think I could have found that to be appealing. But I, I guess, I guess it was a little easier because you hadn't seen her before. So you didn't. Well, grow- right, and I've, I have sixty-three first cousins. What? So you have sixty-three? The youngest of eleven. Oh my god! Yeah. I didn't know this. My mom's the youngest of eleven. You know, I've only got three on my dad's side, but then I've got some, you know, from second and third wives. They have kids and fourth wife now. So yeah, but just of my first cousins, just like by my mom's siblings' kids and my dad's siblings' kids, sixty-three. I can't believe that's a, that's an so insane that's why number. It's like so big, you know. That's uh, that's. We did uh, have one of our we 
And we did draft, have one of our cousins meet on Match.com and went out and dated. I think they found out, realized on the second date they were related. Oh, they didn't even know right away. So that's just how big our family. <laughs> now, they were a first cousin. They were like, you know, once removed or something. But uh, anyway, family. Yeah, the, the the closest relative that I found, I haven't done one of these twenty three and Me things or anything like that. But the closest relative I found that, that I knew I know exists is someone that uh, I I I know of people not just someone, but there's there, I have multiple cousins who are like who descended from a, a great grandparent's sibling, but uh, um, that's uh, right. Actually, I, I, let me think. Do I have? I'm trying to think if I have even any from. Uh, I don't think I even have any from grandparents' siblings. No, I don't. That's what I'm saying. I have a second cousin. Yeah, it's a great-grandparents' siblings all I have. Wow. Yeah, and my mom's the youngest of 11. So, like, a lot of my first cousin's kids are my age, too. You know, so, yeah, it's kind of... I don't know if you've met any of my cousins. Oh, I think you met one of my cousins. The one with all the tattoos? Yeah. Yeah, he I think he did dinner one. with us one time. Right, I think. Yeah, yeah. right, so that, yeah, yeah. So him, yeah, your your situation is more unusual than mine. I, I thought having zero first or second cousins was unusual. With you, uh, you actually you have well, sixty three first cousins, especially a especially a Jewish family. Yeah, very, Jewish family. It's right. You're not even Mormon. Very, uh, You're not even Mormon. Crazy. They wanted to keep the Jews going. The grandparents. Yeah, see, I've got, I've got the other opposite problem. You know, in my family, it is possible that my family name is going to die out. It's going to be completely gone. And that is because there is one male who is in the generation after mine. That is Benjamin. He he is the only right. male. Every other, every other person who descended from uh, my generation is female. There are five females and one male. So, uh, Ben, if he does not have kids, there will be no further Wateluses. And if then he only has daughters, that will also be the end of it, unless they somehow keep their last name. So, that that, that could be the end of the, of the Wateluss family line fairly soon. And if, if Ben was not born, there would definitely be the end of it. So that's, that's the problem with not having uh, cousins. And uh, some of this was a result of just people not having kids. Some of it was a result of uh, World War II. Various uh, various things that have happened to have caused the situation. Some which were uh, tragic and some were just the way people live their lives. So I, I, I tried, though. I, I created the only boy. You did your parts. Yeah. Ben- Benjamin. Do you know all the pressures on him yet? Or have you not? Uh... No, no, he knows, and, and uh, he also knows he has five female first cousins, but I, I, I think he's he's not going to go the route you did. I don't th- I don't think he's going to kiss any of them. That would be requested. We don't want the future with Tellers to have uh, three eyes or something. You know, there's actually a lot of first cousins that got married as recently as like 100 years ago. And uh, then that fell out of favor. But that was actually considered acceptable. It was only the, the brother-sister thing that was considered uh, to be scandalous. But uh, the, the first cousin thing was considered okay until uh, there was discovery that from a genetic standpoint it causes problems. Because it doesn't, it doesn't cause nearly the amount of problems that like brothers and sisters would do. So you can actually have uh, kids of first cousins that are that are pretty normal. And they'll, they'll have like a few... Uh, odd things that that 
occurred because of the inbreeding, but it's not... There was actually a study that the amount of birth defects that, that seem to occur with first cousins is, is about equivalent to when the mother is 40 and it's not first cousins. But but still, like, there's no reason to have to do that. <laughs> you just, you could just not, like, if you're 40, you're 40, then it's either you have kids or you don't. But uh, when you, it's pretty easy to avoid having kids with your first cousin. You could just say, that's just someone out of the pool there. Just not going to do it. But up to, up to, like a hundred years ago, that was very common, especially because people couldn't travel around as easily. So it wasn't as easy, especially people in small towns, they couldn't just go meet people in the next town over. It was, you know, people didn't have cars. They couldn't go, uh, they couldn't leave. It was pretty much whoever's in the town. So sometimes if a lot of them are related, they'll, the cousins will get together. And then that died out. But a lot of people have ancestors, not even ancestors that far back that are first cousins. You weren't as far off as you thought. I don't know how we got into this. Oh, I know you mentioned about the, uh, the country music. I think that's what got us to that. Country music, yeah. Country music connection. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I actually, I try to keep away from being a complete stereotypical Jew. So, yes, I'm cheap. And, uh, and yes, I, I will complain about things a lot. So you can say there I'm, I'm meeting the stereotype. And, yes, I, I live in, a, in an area that, the, a general metropolitan area that has a lot of Jews. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of things that, that could be said that uh, I meet the stereotype, but I said, I've got to break it in some ways too. So I'm on the political right. I'm tall. I listen to country music. So, and, and I have a, I have a last name that doesn't end in, uh, in, in Steen or Stein or men, or Berg. None of those things are true either. So, so the, uh, so in fact, a lot of people they they can't tell I'm a Jew for those reasons. On this show, obviously, people can tell, but uh, in some ways, they throw them off. Speaking of thrown off, I think. I, I think that beard, by the way, chews you up a little bit. But that, yeah, yeah, that's that's a new thing. That's a newer thing. But yes, that that's true. That is true. Now, now I have a, a Jewish beard also. Yeah, I actually looked less Jewish when I had no facial hair. Like, before I had any facial hair, people people just, unless I told them, they couldn't tell I was Jewish. They weren't shocked when I said I was, but, like, it, it didn't jump out at them. Like, I don't have, a, I don't have like, a really big nose. I don't have a small nose, but I don't have a really big nose. And uh, uh, and, and I'm tall, and I, I just didn't, you know, before I had any facial hair, when I was shaving it all off, uh, the people couldn't tell. Unless and my name didn't sound it, so it just it didn't jump out at them. Now some people, like one step, claims he can always tell when he meets other Jews. So he said he would have been able to tell with me, but I, I don't know because he he already knew coming in, so that's not the same. It's like it's like hearing somebody is gay, and then saying, "Oh yeah, I would have been able to tell." Well, you can't really say that if you already know it beforehand. Like it'd have to be something you'd suspect first and then find out later. Same, same with being a Jew. You have to, you hear someone's a Jew, then you can't really say, oh yeah, I would have guessed that anyway. Unless it's really obvious. I mean, there's, there's some Jews that's very obvious they're Jewish. And I've, I've even met obvious Jews who turn out not to be Jewish. I've met guys that be sure are Jewish and it turns out they're not. In fact, Brett Ritchie was saying that people used to think he was Jewish because he was from the East Coast and had a big nose. And he used to always say to people, I'm, I'm not Jewish, I just have a big nose. 
That's what he always say when he. <laughs> he does kind of look Jewish. He does, and and he and he and he, and he, and he does. Uh, uh, and I think that Richie could be like the Jewy name too. I mean, I think he could be a Jewish name. Yeah, you know, right? it, it definitely could. Yeah, yeah, no. right. The whole the whole thing. Yeah, I, I I totally thought he was Jewish. I was surprised when he said he wasn't. I, I asked him. I said, "I said you're Jewish, right?" He says, "No, no, no. I'm not Jewish. I just have a big nose." That was his response to me. And I said, "No, it's not just a big nose. You just you just kind of seem like you are." Yeah, and you think that Richie used to be like Richmond or something when yeah. he came across from Ellis Island or something, you know. Yeah, like I, I really thought he was, and then he wasn't. So I, I was. Yeah, mine was uh, mine was Lightenberg, I think, before it got changed to my current. Oh, I didn't name. know that. I didn't know but, that. Yeah, but I saw it on Ellis Island when my grandparents oh, came over. So I, I I found only one ancestor on Ellis Island. I just I just went there in 2017, and I I looked and I found one. Up there, and oddly enough, his wife was not up there. Only he was. Now I know he came separately from his wife, but but he was the only one on that whole thing. And I think there's something about how to get up there. Like someone had to have paid to get you up there. Like I think there's some. It, you weren't automatically there. Up like on that uh, on that plaque they have of all the names. Right. Oh God, the Wittellis ancestor had his wife stuffed in, stuffed in the uh, suitcase <laughs> so he could save some shekels. <laughs> yeah. The, the, so that's. Uh, I, I think. I think he came separately. I think he came first and then went back for her and brought her. So I think, whatever for whatever reason, only he got up there. But that was the only ancestor I found up there. And. I probably got people sick when I was there too. I, I was I was I had a terrible cold that day, terrible, and I didn't want to be close to people. But boy, they packed that boat close. Boy, did they pack that boat in. On that boat, there's really no avoiding it. That that boat was was so closely packed. I mean, there was. I I just thought they they made a fortune here, and then like there was a tremendous line to to get back, and especially at, the, at Liberty Island, Ellis Island for some reason. Yeah. I think it was kind of more staggered of people going back, but I remember it was on Liberty Island's insane line to get off of there, and and then uh, and then on the boat, just it just every deck got super crowded, and I'm like, oh wow, I have such a bad cold today. <laughs> They're not going to like that. I, I want to tell everybody to stay away from me, but then I didn't want everyone to say, ah, what are you doing here with a cold? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm visiting New York for only a short time here. I'm not. I'm not going to stay home. I probably should have though, because I, I was. I felt like shit. I felt really lousy. I, I really did it for the sake of the family, because I didn't want just everyone to sit in the hotel room because I had a cold. So I did it, but boy, I was sick that day. And uh, that was the last time I was in Ellis Island. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know the next time I'll be taking trips like this. I hope it'll be soon, but I don't know. It just kind of feels like something I'm not going to be doing. In the near future, like I, I don't even think there's much of a chance at all I'll play the World Series in 2021, and that doesn't require a flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I just don't think. I just don't but think. Have I'm, you thought about taking the family like on an RV trip or something? I mean, that might just be safest for the next few years. You know, uh, it's. I don't have an RV. I know I could rent one. Uh, I don't love the idea of driving one because it's kind of big and cumbersome and hard to park and all that. Uh, but. The biggest problem is food. I know you can bring some along, but it starts to get harder and harder. I don't take out food anywhere. Now, eventually I may soften all these things, especially if COVID goes down a lot from the uh, from the vaccine 
even if there continues to be a danger, if it's much lesser one, then I can start taking a little bit more of a chance, especially believing that if I have, you know, like I probably have immunity from it at that point. Uh, There's a lot that I'll have to take in to figure out what I'm going to do and also take in what the likelihood that things are going to stick around for a long time. So if I, if I hear that COVID is just going to be part of life forever and every year we have to take a new vaccine and hope it works, then I'll have to make some decisions about what do I do? What don't I do? So I'm not going to just stay home forever and do nothing, but I also might modify where things I would have done before with no reservations. Now I may think, okay, well, maybe this isn't worth it, or maybe I want to limit the exposure somewhat. So I, I don't know. We'll have to see as the year passes. And I, I even, it, there's even a possibility I could just quit online poker or not quit online poker. That'll never happen, but I can quit uh, live poker if I just don't ever feel comfortable regarding COVID. But I, I'm just hoping the whole thing eventually disappears like within the next year or so. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but like the swine flu vanished. I keep thinking back to that. Like part of me thinks, oh no, this is going to be around forever. But then like the swine flu wasn't. So this isn't too different than that. So it it could disappear just as easily. It just was much less of a big deal when the swine flu disappeared because nobody cared about it. But it did hit about 20% of the population, which I'm guessing COVID has probably hit as well. I think about 20% is at COVID by now. We're not seeing that in the official testing numbers. Official testing numbers are like about 7%. But I think that there's like, it's probably like three times that given all the people who never got tested or were asymptomatic and didn't know to get tested. So still a long way to go to <laughs> if there's 20% and 80% haven't gotten it yet. But that that's kind of my guess. By the way, Veronica Brill, the one who... Uh, was the whistleblower in the Mike Possa situation has COVID right now. Oh, that's fucked up. Yep. I, I don't know where she got it. She just announced it today on Twitter that she has COVID. She is not claiming that there's any uh, symptoms at the moment. So hopefully she'll get lucky. She, she tested positive for it in some way. So if she either she had to take a test for something or she uh, felt something and then took the test. She is not young, younger than me, but she's like 42, I think, so. Definitely in a, in a range where it can be unpleasant. But so far, nothing big. But yeah, it's like I'm just used to be on Twitter and just like random poker players like, yeah, I have COVID now. Like it's not even shocking anymore. It's I just hope it won't be me saying that soon. Yeah, true. I mean, over 80 million cases globally now. Well, I was saying there's more than that. A lot more than that because of the testing. Right, plus, right, totally. Plus people that just assume they have it or just going to stay at home. I mean, I don't, you know, as far as getting tested, it's like if you're not going anywhere, why not just stay home and get the antibody test afterwards? Yeah, and that, that's what, like, I said, like Ken Scaler's friend Ryan did that. He, he lost his smell and taste, and he had a bad cough, and he's like, okay, well, I know what this is. I don't even feel like going out for it. I, right. So he, yeah, he, How's he, he doing, by the way? He's all better now, or is he still a lot fatigued? Uh, Master Scaler is totally better. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's totally better, and uh, Eric Benzamokin is totally better. Yeah. yeah. And, and Master Scaler finally, his big thing is he, he kept testing positive when he felt fine. So 
Master Scaler felt he had kind of like a moderate case. So he had real symptoms and he had a b- bad cough and fatigue and stuff. But it was he never had breathing problems. He never lost smell or taste. Uh, but he, he was sick probably about two weeks, and then it was all gone. And then it just weeks and weeks and weeks went by, and, and he could not test negative. And finally, he tested negative about uh, a week and a half ago. Wow, so he's back to work now and everything, huh? Uh, I don't know if his job is back open, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there. But uh, I do know that uh, he's finally tested uh, negative after a very long time of a positive test while no longer feeling anything. The CDC claims you're not contagious at that point, but who knows? Like, the CDC was actually okay with him returning into general society a long time before his negative result. Wow. But I, that might be some good new job opportunities for him now that he's gone through it and he has the antibodies. Yeah, well, he is. Uh, he's, to, uh, he is. He's going to get uh, an antibody test and, and uh, he's going to bring it to plasma and get $100 every time he does plasma. He's, he's all excited about that. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. <laughs> I was like, I, I'm like, I hate to encourage this, but. He's going to do it anyway, so he, he might as well get paid more. So there's, they're going to be paying him more for that for a while. And, yeah, there could be other things where they, they'd be looking for somebody who's not COVID positive to take the job. I, I've thought of that. Like, shouldn't there be a market at this point? Though maybe it's going away with the vaccine coming. But shouldn't there be a market at this point for companies that could say that all the employees have uh, already had COVID? Right. Or just like concerts that if you've had COVID, you go to, right? Or, I mean... Yeah. Like, all these, the movie theaters, you can just have people, right? So, yeah, like, like I, I'll tell you, I felt better that the dentist who did my root canal had COVID back in March. Like, that was that was nice to know that, that he wasn't right. going to give me COVID. So, the, the, the other employees there didn't, but at, at least the, the guy being closest to me for the longest time is going to be the one who is not going to give it to me. So, I, I would think there there should be some market where you... you the, why, why don't more companies try to hire people who are like, why don't they try to put together a uh, workforce that's all COVID recovered? So at least the employees, you're not afraid of getting you uh, like, you know, you know, what would be uh, like, what about like uh, someone who cuts hair that's already had COVID? Like, why am I not seeing advertisements for that? Right. right. In fact, I should look for that. I, I still haven't gotten a haircut. I'd like to get a haircut, but I'm really afraid to with the numbers being as high as they are around here now. But if I could be sure that the person cutting my hair has already had it and it's been a while, then I, I would love to do. I didn't even think of that, but that would be. But but you got to know for sure. Like I'd have to see the antibody test. I couldn't just take their word for it. You could even see if you can find someone to come to the house and cut your hair. And I'm wondering, you know what? My brother's girl that cuts his hair, who I grew up with, lives uh, I think within like 20 miles of you. Well, okay, but yeah, I'll have to look it up. But, but has she had COVID already? Is the question? I, I'll find out. I'll find out. <laughs> See, I, I know someone. I know someone. I know someone that can do it. I know someone who's willing to let me come to their house and and, and they'll do it. Someone who the, the fact gave me the last haircut I had back in February, but uh, I, I'm just afraid to go there. I'm even kind of afraid for for her to come here because I just don't like it's it's such high incidence right now. In this area, that I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait till people start getting the vaccine, and and yeah, we're so close. I'd prefer not to, and I'd prefer for Benjamin's sake. Uh, he hasn't had a haircut since then either, so 
I, I would really like, uh, like, why am I not seeing more like formerly COVID positive hairdressers out there advertising? I think that's a market. I think I should make like a website uh, already had COVID, already had COVID.com for, for people offering services if they've, uh, with a positive antibody test. Like you can start up like a whole 1-800-Dentist type service. You <laughs> yeah. know? It could be like the front door for all businesses where they've had COVID. This is a good idea. I've got to look into this because the, now, as I said, this might go obsolete very quickly, which, which I kind of hope, but this is actually a good idea of people who've already – I kind of keep forgetting about this, that people who've already had it aren't a danger. That's that's the that's the trick to this here. You have to try to get – you have to surround yourself with people that uh, aren't going to give it to you under any circumstances. By the way, have you used any of these uh, grocery delivery services? Do you use those or you just go to the store? I just go to the store. I did use uh, I did use um, Whole Foods pickup the other day where I was able to order online and then just pick it up. So that was good. That was easy. They they have all the groceries and like sealed bags, and then just you pull up to the side, they stick it in your trunk, and you're gone. So that was pretty smooth. Yeah, I do. All, as I've mentioned before on here, I, I still do all either curbside pickup or delivery. And there's really some things about it that can be very frustrating. Like a week ago, I go to Target and I come back home. I, I went there right before closing. Not not to be a jerk, it's just that it was uh, well, not right before, like probably like 15 minutes before. But whatever, They're, you know, the people who are doing it are there anyway, and they they have all my things sitting there just to give me. So it's not even like I didn't make anyone stay late. But I showed up about like 10, 15 minutes before. But I, probably the person doing it was already kind of tired and emotionally checked out. So I get home and literally half the stuff is missing. Like actually half the stuff was missing. And this is a big order. Like like how does it half missing from that? So that what happens is they forgot to give me some bags. They just, they had them sitting there. They just forgot to bring them to my car. Then I had to go back the next day. And I, I was a little worried that when I complained that the amount of money involved was enough to where they were going to question me. Because with these... Delivery services, they screw up so often that they actually just take your word for it. You could totally rip them off if you wanted to and just claim you didn't get things that you did or claim the things were messed up if they weren't and they just instantly credit you. But I was a little worried here that they were going to think I was pulling shenanigans saying that like half my order didn't come because like how could like a large order just half the things not be there, including some expensive things? What? What do you think the threshold is? Like a hundred bucks? I, I don't even know. Well, I think I think if they couldn't locate any of this where it went, then there may have been some questioning. It's just my guess. But they, the good thing well, is, right. you just said they're, but you just said they're auto approving too because they don't even want to look into it. So do you feel like seventy five bucks are just never checking? It's no, I think it's probably over a hundred. And uh, like I had wondered, I, I actually bought Ben's. Uh, Oculus at uh, Target, and I did make sure before I drove away that that was in with the order because I ordered like a bunch of food plus an Oculus. So I'm like, okay, if I get home, there's some cans of beans missing. They'll insta credit me. But like, what if I get home and say the Oculus is missing? Like, are they going to really give me three hundred dollars back? So I actually made sure before I drove away that it was there. But uh, I, I did wonder that at the time. Like, what if what if I didn't check and I got home? And there's no Oculus, and they like. 
what do they do then? Do they just give me $300 back? <laughs> like, like what? I, I have wondered about that threshold. So that's what worried me here. But fortunately, they looked and they saw the exact bags I was supposed to get that were just sitting on the side. And fortunately, none of this was supposed to be cold stuff. So it was just – it didn't matter. It sat out. It just – they forgot to give it to me, which was frustrating. But uh, they, they also did something really weird. They were, like, putting things in bags that shouldn't have been. They were putting, like, like 12 packs of Coke into into a plastic bag. And then they're putting like 24 packs of water in a plastic bag. Like, why, why are they doing this? These are in their own bags. So that, and then I'm, they're charging me for the bags, of course, too, which is annoying. They're charging you for the bags? Yes. No, they shouldn't be charging for the bags. Well, they don't let you bring your own bags now. No, no, they do. They Who's say charging you for the bags. Oh, Target is doing it. They're all doing it actually. The, the Target's doing Target's it. No, they're doing it, and they're they're what they're uh, they're they're saying. Well, you can bring your own, and we'll transfer it over for you. Like I really want to sit around while they're transferring it over for like sixty cents. So I I, I just pay. Like that's amazing. Yeah, this Whole Foods doesn't charge for the bags. The whole, the whole charging for the bags thing is a scam anyway, because... Uh, oh, it's the biggest scam in the world, because they keep the money. Right! <laughs> They're like, this is for the environment. I'm like, no, it's not. It's for your it's for your profits. You're, yeah, you guys exactly. are... You're, you're, you know what's funny is they're pocketing the whole thing, and then there was a separate proposition that was on the California ballot to force that money to be redirected to to environmental uh, groups, and, and that failed. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I, I actually voted no against the, the, the mandatory pricing for the bags, but then I voted yes that if it passes that it'll go to environmental groups we go like that's supposed to be the point of this that's supposed to be the point is to help the environment so so why is the grocery store keeping it that doesn't make any sense why why, why would you mandate that they charge for bags and, and keep the money how is that helping the environment so it, it's it's really stupid and then also they, they realized that the reusable bags they were promoting everybody to use that those were actually helping spread covid so they that's why they quit with those and so the, the whole, now I think they probably weren't spreading as much as people were thinking because it's not as much on surfaces as first thought. But that was the it, it was funny because they were going on and on about how much better it is to use the uh, reusable bags, and they're like, "Whoops, it's actually spreading COVID." But you know, it was I don't think it's spreading that much COVID. But I I do believe that there's uh, there is a downside from a health perspective of using bags over and over for groceries because there there's uh, bacterial concerns that you don't have for bags you don't reuse. And that has been acknowledged that that is a little bit of a health danger. Like I, I don't know, the whole, the whole thing seems stupid to me. It seemed like uh, kind of just a, a performative fake environmentalism that was promoted by grocery stores to make more money and to pretend it's for the environment. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being forced to pay for bags, and it, it it pisses me off that when they use bags when they shouldn't use bags, like like to put a 12 pack in and then charge me for it. Like that's that's especially annoying, but uh, so so like the the upside to this is that uh, you just order what you want and it just comes to you, or even if it's pickup, you just show up there. They put it in your car, you drive home, and you don't have to go browse through the store. But there's so many downsides. Like first of all, it takes a while to go through the app and add everything, so you're really not saving much time or any time. And then there's so much fail, and then you don't get to pick out the best dates, or like you'll, you'll get sometimes get things that are near expired, and I don't know. There's so much hassle to this. When this is all done, and I feel safe to return to stores, like I, I don't know if I'm going to continue with any of this crap. Maybe some of the, like some of the curbside stuff or some of the delivery stuff, if uh, it's things that aren't 
that you can't make many mistakes with, like canned goods or whatever. But even there, they make mistakes. They bring the wrong thing, and I don't know. It's it's, it's just like an aggravation. I don't I don't know how much I'll. Well, come- and soon, well, and soon, and I think too, like you know, with all the digital transformation going on, like you know how, and I think they're already starting to do it in some of the old food stores. But you know how they have like the cashier list store up in Seattle. No. The Whole Foods? Or it's like an Amazon store. But basically, as you're going and grabbing things and putting them into your cart, you're you're basically just scanning it so it's going through your Amazon account and charging you right there. You know what? That would be actually a good thing. Something right. I hate, something I despise at the grocery store is the self-checking stations. They never work right. They're super slow. They're super tilting, and and they don't need to be this way. Like they're they're way more particular than the ones the actual checkers use. The ones the checkers use just goes beep beep beep. It's very fast. Yours, the thing is, it's so slow. It has to scan the the barcode super well. You have to put it in a certain area as you're doing it. Please move the item to the bagging area. I hate this crap. It's uh, I can never do it right. Mm-hmm. It's always locking up. It's 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 so slow. It's it's so frustrating. I've never done one of those things faster than going through the checker, except when there's a line and I only have like a few things. Then I'll use it very reluctantly. But it never works right. I hate those things with a passion. And if there's something that's like much more efficient that just uh, goes by putting it in your cart. The only problem is like what if you put it in your cart and then you don't want it? Does it realize you're taking it back out of your cart? Yeah, well, I think you can back it out. And again, I think it's more just through your phone. You know, when you just, you know, so then you just scan and stick it in your cart and then you walk out. I mean, I'm sure it's somewhat on the honor system, but I'm sure there's some RFID chips or something that are verifying some things. Yeah, but it does look good. So could you imagine you don't have to stand in line anymore? Yeah, actually, maybe taking it out of your cart is fine. Maybe your cart just keeps track of what's in there. So if you take something out, it just removes automatically. And then by the time you get to Yeah, like a smart cart. Right. Yeah. And then... uh, That could be the whole thing where it's just clicking stuff that goes in or scanning items. Yeah, that's... uh, By the way, your connection is not the best. You keep kind of cutting out here. But uh, we're almost done anyway, but... If you can move to a better place in the house, it'd probably uh, work a little better. But anyway, yeah, that I wouldn't mind. That would be cool to not have to go through any checker or have to worry about any of that fail. But there's there's a lot of weirdness that goes on with these uh, delivery services and curbside pickups. It's, it's kind of very immature at the moment. There's just too much potential for fail that it happens. And I, you know, I, I deal with so much other customer service shit in my life that I have to complain about. Like, this is this is a new thing that I didn't have to worry about before. Like, before I go to the store, I, 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 know, I get the right things, I know what to get, and then I, I go through, and if there's an issue, as after I go through the check stand, or while I'm going through there, I catch it, and usually I don't have to call back up, because I, I've handled the whole thing while I'm there. And I catch it as it occurs, where here... It, and there's also the problem, like, the substitutions are terrible. Like, you, if you allow substitutions, they substitute ridiculous things. If you don't, then you end up not getting a lot of things. That, that's frustrating, too. Though, once this is all over, there will probably be fewer things that are out. So I guess that won't be as big of a deal. 
Right now, I'm not questioning my decisions to do this. I'm happy I don't, I don't expose myself in the stores, both not only just for the COVID chance itself, but also for the peace of mind where I don't have to worry about it. Because every time I feel like I've exposed a little bit, I get all worried that this is going to be the time I get it. I know, but you can't do it. You know, it's just like, I know the news and everything, oh, it's everywhere, which I, I get, it's a lot of places, but I was just, <clears throat> we're talking about it last weekend, I'm part of this group, we normally have like 220 people on these calls every Saturday, so then it was like, okay, who's had or had it, and it was, so it was seven out of the 220, or 219, I think. A seven? That's, that's, you know, that's unusually yeah. low. Well, maybe. Yeah. So, maybe the seven like, there were. Maybe the group is is one that's more likely to be cautious than others. That I I bet uh, either cautious or or not have the type of jobs where they're exposed a lot or or they have enough money to where they can get uh, they can avoid it a lot. Like there's there's a lot of different ways that you can minimize your chance of it or have the opportunity to minimize your chance. So, like, I, I feel fortunate that I'm in a position that I can bring my chance down very, very low, where if I were in a different uh, position in life, I wouldn't be able to. So that's that's part of it, too. And also, there's even voluntary things you, you do lifestyle-wise that put you more at risk that isn't related to what you have to do. So that is, maybe this call you were on happened to the people probably... Oh. Maybe they skewed more in a direction to where they are able to avoid it and take it seriously. Because there's people who can't avoid it and just say, screw no, it, I don't want no, to. No, 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 for sure. Right. So then maybe it would be double if it wasn't or even triple, but it's still a small percentage. You know, so I just feel like the, you know, freaking out if you think you might have got it or something or just worrying. You know, I just feel like, look, if you get it, you get it. Be careful. And that's all you can do. And I, and I do feel sorry, too, for those people that have to go out and work at a restaurant or a store or have a spouse or something that does. And now, you know, it's just like, uh, you're right, we're lucky we can work at home, and we got to just be very thankful for that. Yeah, well, at least the people like over 40. The, the young people I don't feel that sorry for because they just don't get it that badly. But the people who are 40 or older, I do think about that sometimes so it's unfortunate for them that it's going to be harder for them to avoid it and that then they don't know that they have to just hope that they're not on the unlucky side with it and I, i've been hearing that vitamin d is actually helpful for that you know, to have a good vitamin d level to not get bad symptoms of it fortunately i i have taken care of that prior to covid because I did have a vitamin D problem. But for those listening out there, you should get some vitamin D supplements if you don't have a vitamin D level that is sufficient, or if you don't know, it probably wouldn't hurt to take uh, 4,000 IU every day. So that's just a suggestion for those of you who haven't had COVID yet. They're still kind of unraveling the mystery of why it's bad for some people and not others who are in relatively the same demographic group. It'd be interesting to see years from now, like what they know and what things they missed that they may have uncovered if they had looked in a different direction. Like, like what if, for example, vitamin D was a huge part of it and they just didn't realize it? 
there's there's so many things that like with age the question is, is it the age itself or is it the is certain conditions that are more common with people who are older so like is it something about your immune system that changes just because you're old or is it because there's people old people have a lot more health problems different levels of, of who knows what like there could be so many different ways that this could be getting people and then not others so i've I've been very curious about this. I've, I've really wondered what the real links are to who's getting it badly and who's not. And it'd be very helpful to know so you can do what you can to avoid it. But I've, I've heard vitamin D is a key to this. That's a There's a strong suspicion about this. And there's not a lot of down, downside to taking vitamin D supplements. There's not like side effects from it. There's not, as long as you don't like really, really overdo it, it's not going to really harm you. So it's one of these things you can do without really risking much anyway that is it this is the last show of the year we will be back uh i think on friday next week just look at the twitter account twitter.com slash poker fraud alert i'd like to return this to friday it'll definitely be in 2021 and uh i'm gonna go through the colonoscopy in four weeks. So I'm not sure if four weeks from now, I'm not sure if we're going to have, I'm not sure if we're going to have a show, but uh, I'll see how I feel. What? Not a show live during the colonoscopy draft. Yeah. Well, if I, if I wake up and they tell me I have colon cancer, I may not be able to bring myself to do a show for a while. I may be too depressed to do it, but um, that'll be in about four weeks. Other than that, we should be every Friday or Saturday for the foreseeable future. And I did talk to, sorry to cut you off, Druff, but I did talk to, to PLOL and um, Drexel about the holiday show. So we might come back to you with some ideas oh. to, uh, and some possible dates. Well, there's not much of a holiday anymore. We've only got a few more days until the first. But Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> but I was thinking maybe if we do something prior to the Friday show, I'll call you. We'll talk about it offline. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I guess that's possible. If somehow we throw together a last-minute uh, holiday show, then there will not be a radio show next week except for a simulcast. I'll probably do a simulcast and then an archives version of it that's not video, just like I did for the election show. But I, if there is some kind of holiday video special then that will replace the radio show of that week there's only so much i can do so that's that's something to keep in mind that right, and, and i was even thinking Druff, we could even start a couple hours video and then go out into audio if, if you wanted but, yeah we could also do that know, it's just I, I just people letting people know that if we do that that it would it would replace whatever show is that week whatever i i don't even care if we do it during the holidays i don't care if we do it at the beginning of january like whatever, it's just if we if we do one, then expect that to replace the regular radio show, and then we'll go back to our regular type of stuff the following week. So just letting everybody know that. Okay, I, we've been on for actually it, it feels like it's more, but it's been six hours, and I enjoyed the little conversation with you here, Trader Ruski. And uh, what what time did you wake up? Two, and it does. I woke up at uh, like four, I think, or a quarter till. It's pretty pretty early. Do you wake up on? Do you wake up at that time on days radio is not going? Yeah, I mean that's when I wake up during the week. Really? So. Okay, it's, it's Sunday. Yeah, Sunday though. It's not even during the week. I know, but I got to keep my sleep. You know, <laughs> so I figured. I was so tired last. Night. I was trying to stay up for the show. Then I'm like, screw it. I'm just gonna pass 
pass out and hope he's still going when I wake up. Now, now you uh, you wake up and then you've got hours until it's light again. Yeah, well, I'm going to look at some, you know, some of the football for the day, fantasy football. Um, we have our survivor pool. I got to look at. We were supposed to take Cleveland, but then all their wide receivers are out. But we're down. To, we're down uh, to the end in the survivor pool. No. Oh. And I thought it was like five or six grand. It's thirty-five grand for the Whoa. prize. How many other we're teams? Like, there's thirty-six people left. You know, it's just where you pick one winner each week. So, wow, it'll be interesting. So, so who's in your who's in your team there? Well, me and me and me and uh, Brandon partner on that, and we're in the um, championship of the uh, of one of the. One of the fantasy leagues, and then that other thing is just a survival pool. I see. So there's 30, I think there's 36 left. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, well, good luck. I didn't know it's that much money. Yeah, and we're taking, we're taking the Bears against Jacksonville today. Well, when you said there's 36 left? Yeah. Well, when I made day two of the Limit Hold'em event in 2005, the 3,000 Limit Hold'em event, there were 36 left. Oh. Yeah. And you won it. Okay, I like it. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. No, there wasn't 36. Never mind. I think it was 36. Was it there? No, I see. I'm confusing now. I, it, maybe it was 25. It was either 25 or 36, which is kind of a difference. Well, at, but At one point, there were 36. <laughs> yeah. The 36 that... I was going to say maybe 36 cash, but then there were like more than 400 players, so that doesn't sound right either. Maybe it was 36 left. I think it was 36 left. I think I, maybe I was like number seven out of 36 or something. Uh, it's 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 starting to fade. All I know is I wasn't like at the very top when we went into that, and yet I decided I have to win it. I can't finish second. That was what I decided. That was the only that's the only tournament I felt that way ever. By the way, I've never felt in any other tournament. As I was uh, coming to day two, did I feel it was essential for me to win? That, that was the only one I felt that way. I guess it worked. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, fifteen years since that happened. I, I I you know I don't know if this broke my World Series of Poker cashing streak because I didn't play this year. I don't consider this a real World Series of Poker year. I think it's a fake World Series of Poker year. I'm, I'm not even paying attention to who, like how it's going with that. World Series, that second World Series they're running right now. I have no interest. I don't think many people have interest. Like, like Caesar would tweet out about it and like nobody would respond. So that, that says a lot. I don't know what they're doing. Oh, well, I'm going to shut this down it's here. Such a disaster. It is such a disaster because it's like when you've got an odd... No, but it's just another situation where they completely jacked it. Yeah, I I don't know what they're even doing with it. Like nobody understands. Like why 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 bring something back that nobody's asking for, and cause controversy? Like why? What's the upside here? Unless it's this, unless like someone was saying it's to satisfy some TV contract. That's that's my only guess. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Because no, everybody accepted. It. Everybody said, okay, we're done. We had our little online World Series. That's the best we could do. It's a weird year. That's the way it goes. We're not mad. It's what the way it had to be. Like it's not like everyone's yelling at Caesars. Like why? Why didn't you have a live World Series this year? Like everyone knows why. It's not their fault. So why? 
why cram this down everyone's throats after they've already crowned a champion? The, the whole thing is so strange. And they're claiming they're losing money on it, then why do it? <laughs> why alienate people and piss people off if you're losing money from it? Why not just not do it at all? It doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, I, I'm going to be uh, flying around on, on the flying simulator for the next uh, week or so. You, have you played that yet, the flying simulator? The flight simulator? I have not. Yeah, it's, I, I talked about it at the beginning of the show when you were sleeping. But I, I've, I've, I just started playing it yesterday. And it's it's very interesting. I got a, a gaming computer so it can handle it. And it is a, a very interesting program. And a lot, a lot to see. I can fly anywhere in the world. I already That's a tramp. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, the only problem is, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, you need a very, very good uh, graphics card to be able to run it, or at least to be able to run it well. So if you don't have that, then you either have to lay out the Jew wallet and spend a lot of money like I did, or just not play it or play it when you're visiting somebody who has it. So that's what I've been waiting for for four months until I got such a system. It's actually Benjamin's system, but it's a system I have access to. All right, well... Let's shut this down here. Have a good week, Truff. And we'll talk to you around ears. Okay, good night, Trader Risky. Good night, brother. Okay, so, had a little Trader Risky conversation at the end here. Just as well, this is a shorter show. You know, otherwise, we would have been way under six hours. Because we got through things quickly. We didn't have any kind of long topic. That's why I had all the time to rant about uh, COVID and about uh, cancel culture. We just had a, a non-big topic week. Partially because it's the holidays, so there's not always a lot of news in poker and gambling. January 10th is coming up, or January 14th, actually. That, that's the date that is projected for Mike Postle's attorney's to separate from him, so unless something changes there, then he will have no attorney after that is over, unless he hires another one. We will give you updates as that occurs, and we will give you all the updates we can with that case, as we have the whole way. By the way, the 2 plus 2 discussion of this is really, really lame. The 2 plus 2 thread about the Mike Postle situation. I mean, at the beginning it was okay, but like about all the lawsuit stuff in the last several pages, it's just really bad. A lot of people who think they know what they're talking about that have no idea what they're talking about. And I'm not referring to me. I'm referring to like the whole discussion of the case. A lot of stupidity there. A lot of misinformed people. And I can say this even though I am not an attorney. Sorry to Eric Benson-Mokin, I didn't get his ad in here this time. I just did the whole thing straight. I hope he forgives me. Well, that is all for tonight. We'll be back Friday or Saturday next week. I haven't decided yet, but it'll be one of those two days. Good night, and... Shalom! Shalom!